for a new liberty, The Libertarian Manifesto by Murray and Rothbard, narrated by Jeff Riggenbach, with a new introduction by Llewellyn H. Rockwell, Jr. Copyright 2006 by the Ludwig von Mises Institute. This audiobook was produced by the Ludwig von Mises Institute. For more information or to discover more about the Ludwig von Mises Institute and Austrian economics, visit Mises.org. Introduction There are many varieties of libertarianism alive in the world today, but Rothbardianism remains the center of its intellectual gravity, its primary muse and conscience, its strategic and moral core, and the focal point of debate even when its name is not acknowledged. The reason is that Murray Rothbard was the creator of modern libertarianism, a political ideological system that proposes a once-and-for-all escape from the trappings of left and right and their central plans for how state power should be used. Libertarianism is the radical alternative that says state power is unworkable and immoral. Mr. Libertarian, Murray and Rothbard was called, and the state's greatest living enemy. He remains so, yet he had many predecessors from whom he drew, the whole of the classical liberal tradition, the Austrian economists, the American anti-war tradition, and the natural rights tradition. But it was he who put all these pieces together into a unified system that seems implausible at first, but inevitable once it has been defined and defended by Rothbard. The individual pieces of the system are straightforward. Self-ownership, strict property rights, free markets, and I state in every conceivable respect. But the implications are earth-shaking. Once you are exposed to the complete picture, and for a new liberty has been the leading means of exposure for more than a quarter of a century, you cannot forget it. It becomes the indispensable lens through which we can see events in the real world with the greatest possible clarity. This book, more than any other explains by Rothbard, seems to grow in stature every year. His influence has vastly risen since his death, and why Rothbardianism has so many enemies on the left, right, and center. Quite simply, the science of liberty that he brought into clear relief is as thrilling in the hope it creates for a free world as it is unforgiving of error. Its logical and moral consistency, together with its empirical explanatory muscle, represents a threat to any intellectual vision that sets out to use the state to refashion the world according to some pre-programmed plan. And to the same extent, it impresses the reader with a hopeful vision of what might be. Rothbard set out to write this book soon after he got a call from Tom Mandel, an editor at Macmillan who had seen an op-ed by Rothbard in the New York Times that appeared in the spring of 1971. It was the only commission Rothbard ever received from a commercial publishing house. Looking at the original manuscript, which is so consistent in its typeface and almost complete after its first draft, it does seem that it was nearly an effortless joy for him to write it. It is seamless, unrelenting, and energetic. The historical context illustrates a point often overlooked. Modern libertarianism was born not in reaction to socialism or leftism, though it is certainly anti-leftist, as the term is commonly understood, and anti-socialist. Rather, libertarianism in the American historical context came into being in response to the statism of conservatism and its selected celebration of a conservative-style central planning. American conservatives may not adore the welfare state or excessive business regulation, but they appreciate power exercised in the name of nationalism, warfarism, pro-family policies, and invasions of personal liberty and privacy. In the post-LBJ period of American history, 
It has been Republican presidents, more than Democratic ones, who have been responsible for the largest expansions of executive and judicial power. It was to defend a pure liberty against the compromises and corruptions of conservatism, beginning with Nixon, but continuing with Reagan and the Bush presidencies, that inspired the birth of Rothbardian political economy. It is also striking how Rothbard chose to pull no punches in his argument. Other intellectuals on the receiving end of such an invitation might have tended to water down the argument to make it more palatable. Why, for example, make a case for statelessness or anarchism when a case for limited government might bring more people into the movement? Why condemn U.S. imperialism when doing so can only limit the book's appeal to anti-Soviet conservatives who might otherwise appreciate the free market bent? Why go into such depth about privatizing courts and roads and water when doing so might risk alienating people? Why enter into the sticky area of regulation of consumption and of personal morality and do it with such disorienting consistency when it would surely have drawn a larger audience to leave it out? And why go into such detail about monetary affairs and central banking and the like when a watered-down case for free enterprise would have pleased so many Chamber of Commerce conservatives? But trimming and compromising for the sake of the times of the audience was just not his way. He knew that he had a once-in-a-lifetime chance to present the full package of libertarianism in all its glory, and he was not about to pass it up. And thus do we read here, not a case for cutting government, but eliminating it altogether. Not just an argument for assigning property rights, but for deferring to the market even on questions of contract enforcement. And not just a case for cutting welfare, but for banishing the entire welfare warfare state. Whereas other attempts to make a libertarian case both before and after this book might typically call for transitional or half-measures, or be willing to concede as much as possible to statists, that is not what we get from Murray. Not for him such schemes as school vouchers or the privatization of government programs that should not exist at all. Instead, he presents and follows through with the full-blown and fully-bracing vision of what liberty can be. This is why so many other similar attempts to write the libertarian manifesto have not stood the test of time, and yet this book remains in high demand. Similarly, there have been many books on libertarianism in the intervening years that have covered philosophy alone, politics alone, economics alone, or history alone. Those that have put all these subjects together have usually been collections by various authors. Rothbard alone had mastery in all fields that permitted him to write an integrated manifesto, one that has never been displaced. And yet his approach is typically self-effacing. He constantly points to other writers and intellectuals of the past and his own generation. In addition, some introductions of this sort are written to give the reader an easier passage into a difficult book, but that is not the case here. He never talks down to his readers, but always with clarity. Rothbard speaks for himself. I'll spare the reader an enumeration of my favorite parts or speculations of what passages Rothbard might have clarified if he had the chance to put out a new edition. The reader will discover on his or her own that every page exudes energy and passion, that the logic of his argument is impossibly compelling, and that the intellectual fire that inspired this work burns as bright now as it did all those years ago. The book is still regarded as dangerous precisely because once the exposure to Rothbardianism takes place, no other book on politics, economics, or sociology can be read the same way again. What was once a commercial phenomenon has truly become a classical statement that I predict will be read for generations to come. Chapter 1. The Libertarian Heritage The American Revolution and Classical Liberalism 
On Election Day 1976, the Libertarian Party presidential ticket of Roger L. McBride for president and David P. Berglund for vice president amassed 174,000 votes in 32 states throughout the country. The sober Congressional Quarterly was moved to classify the fledgling Libertarian Party as the third major political party in America. The remarkable growth rate of this new party may be seen in the fact that it only began in 1971, with a handful of members gathered in a Colorado living room. The following year, it fielded a presidential ticket, which managed to get on the ballot in two states, and now it is America's third major party. Even more remarkably, the Libertarian Party achieved this growth while consistently adhering to a new ideological creed, libertarianism, thus bringing to the American political scene for the first time in a century a party interested in principle rather than in merely gaining jobs and money at the public trough. We have been told countless times by pundits and political scientists that the genius of America and of our party system is its lack of ideology and its pragmatism, a kind word for focusing solely on grabbing money and jobs from the hapless taxpayers. How then explain the amazing growth of a new party which is frankly and eagerly devoted to ideology? One explanation is that Americans were not always pragmatic and non-ideological. On the contrary, historians now realize that the American Revolution itself was not only ideological, but also the result of devotion to the creed and institutions of libertarianism. The American revolutionaries were steeped in the creed of libertarianism, an ideology which led them to resist with their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor the invasions of their rights and liberties committed by the imperial British government. Historians have long debated the precise causes of the American Revolution. Were they constitutional, economic, political, or ideological? We now realize that, being libertarians, the revolutionaries saw no conflict between moral and political rights on the one hand and economic freedom on the other. On the contrary, they perceived civil and moral liberty, political independence, and the freedom to trade and produce as all part of one unblemished system, what Adam Smith was to call, in the same year that the Declaration of Independence was written, the obvious and simple system of natural liberty. The libertarian creed emerged from the classical liberal movements of the 17th and 18th century in the Western world, specifically from the English Revolution of the 17th century. This radical libertarian movement, even though only partially successful in its birthplace, Great Britain, was still able to usher in the Industrial Revolution there by freeing industry and production from the strangling restrictions of state control and urban government-supported guilds. For the classical liberal movement was, throughout the Western world, a mighty libertarian revolution against what we might call the old order, the ancien régime, which had dominated its subjects for centuries. This regime had, in the early modern period, beginning in the 16th century, imposed an absolute central state and a king ruling by divine right on top of an older, restrictive web of feudal land monopolies and urban guild controls and restrictions. 
The result was a Europe stagnating under a crippling web of controls, taxes, and monopoly privileges to produce and sell, conferred by central and local governments upon their favorite producers. This alliance of the new bureaucratic war-making central state with privileged merchants, an alliance to be called mercantilism by later historians, and with a class of ruling feudal landlords, constituted the old order against which the new movement of classical liberals and radicals arose and rebelled in the 17th and 18th centuries. The object of the classical liberals was to bring about individual liberty in all of its interrelated aspects. In the economy, taxes were to be drastically reduced, controls and regulations eliminated, and human energy, enterprise, and markets set free to create and produce in exchanges that would benefit everyone and the mass of consumers. Entrepreneurs were to be free at last to compete, to develop, to create. The shackles of control were to be lifted from land, labor, and capital alike. Personal freedom and civil liberty were to be guaranteed against the depredations and tyranny of the king or his minions. Religion, the source of bloody wars for centuries when sects were battling for control of the state, was to be set free from state imposition or interference, so that all religions or non-religions could coexist in peace. Peace, too, was the foreign policy credo of the new classical liberals, the age-old regime of imperial and state aggrandizement for power and pelf was to be replaced by a foreign policy of peace and free trade with all nations. And since war was seen as engendered by standing armies and navies, by military power always seeking expansion, these military establishments were to be replaced by voluntary local militia, by citizen civilians who would only wish to fight in defense of their own particular homes and neighborhoods. Thus the well-known theme of separation of church and state was but one of many interrelated motifs that could be summed up as separation of the economy from the state, separation of speech and press from the state, separation of land from the state, separation of war and military affairs from the state. Indeed, the separation of the state from virtually everything. The state, in short, was to be kept extremely small, with a very low, nearly negligible budget. The classical liberals never developed a theory of taxation, but every increase in a tax and every new kind of tax was fought bitterly, in America twice becoming the spark that led, or almost led, to the revolution the stamp tax, the tea tax. The earliest theoreticians of libertarian classical liberalism were the levelers during the English Revolution and the philosopher John Locke in the late 17th century, followed by the true Whig or radical libertarian opposition to the Whig settlement, the regime of 18th century Britain. John Locke set forth the natural rights of each individual to his person and property, the purpose of government was strictly limited to defending such rights. In the words of the Lockean-inspired Declaration of Independence, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. 
that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. While Locke was widely read in the American colonies, his abstract philosophy was scarcely calculated to rouse men to revolution. This task was accomplished by radical Lockeans in the 18th century, who wrote in a more popular, hard-hitting, and impassioned manner, and applied the basic philosophy to the concrete problems of the government, and especially the British government, of the day. The most important writing in this vein was Cato's Letters, a series of newspaper articles published in the early 1720s in London by true Whigs John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon. While Locke had written of the revolutionary pressure which could properly be exerted when government became destructive of liberty, Trenchard and Gordon pointed out that government always tended toward such destruction of individual rights. According to Cato's letters, human history is a record of irrepressible conflict between power and liberty, with power, government, always standing ready to increase its scope by invading people's rights and encroaching upon their liberties. Therefore, Cato declared, power must be kept small and faced with eternal vigilance and hostility on the part of the public, to make sure that it always stays within its narrow bounds. We know by infinite examples and experience that men possessed of power, rather than part with it, will do anything, even the worst and the blackest, to keep it. And scarce ever any man upon earth went out of it as long as he could carry everything his own way in it. This seems certain that the good of the world, or of their people, was not one of their motives, either for continuing in power or for quitting it. It is the nature of power to be ever encroaching and converting every extraordinary power granted at particular times and upon particular occasions into an ordinary power, to be used at all times, and when there is no occasion. Nor does it ever part willingly with any advantage." Alas, power encroaches daily upon liberty, with a success too evident, and the balance between them is almost lost. Tyranny has engrossed almost the whole earth, and striking at mankind root and branch makes the world a slaughterhouse, and will certainly go on to destroy till it is either destroyed itself, or, which is most likely, has left nothing else to destroy." Such warnings were eagerly imbibed by the American colonists, who reprinted Cato's letters many times throughout the colonies and down to the time of the Revolution. Such a deep-seated attitude led to what the historian Bernard Balin has aptly called the transforming radical libertarianism of the American Revolution. For the Revolution was not only the first successful modern attempt to throw off the yoke of Western imperialism, at that time of the world's mightiest power. More important, for the first time in history, Americans hedged in their new governments with numerous limits and restrictions embodied in constitutions and particularly in bills of rights. Church and state were rigorously separated throughout the new states, and religious freedom enshrined. Remnants of feudalism were eliminated throughout the states by the abolition of the feudal privileges of entail and primogeniture. 
In the former, a dead ancestor is able to entail landed estates in his family forever, preventing his heirs from selling any part of the land. In the latter, the government requires sole inheritance of property by the oldest son. The new federal government formed by the Articles of Confederation was not permitted to levy any taxes upon the public, and any fundamental extension of its powers required unanimous consent by every state government. Above all, the military and war-making power of the national government was hedged in by restraint and suspicion, for the 18th century libertarians understood that war, standing armies, and militarism had long been the main method for aggrandizing state power. Bernard Balin has summed up the achievement of the American revolutionaries. The modernization of American politics and government during and after the revolution took the form of a sudden radical realization of the program that had first been fully set forth by the opposition intelligentsia in the reign of George I. Where the English opposition, forcing its way against a complacent social and political order, had only striven and dreamed, Americans, driven by the same aspirations, but living in a society in many ways modern and now released politically, could suddenly act. Where the English opposition had vainly agitated for partial reforms, American leaders moved swiftly and with little social disruption to implement systematically the outermost possibilities in the whole range of radically libertarian ideas. In the process, they infused into American political culture the major themes of 18th-century radical libertarianism brought to realization here. The first is the belief that power is evil, a necessity, perhaps, but an evil necessity, that it is infinitely corrupting, and that it must be controlled, limited, restricted in every way compatible with a minimum of civil order. Written Constitutions the separation of powers, bills of rights, limitations on executives, on legislatures and courts, restrictions on the right to coerce and wage war, all express the profound distrust of power that lies at the ideological heart of the American Revolution, and that has remained with us as a permanent legacy ever after. Thus, while classical liberal thought began in England, it was to reach its most consistent and radical development, and its greatest living embodiment, in America. For the American colonies were free of the feudal land monopoly and aristocratic ruling caste that was entrenched in Europe. In America, the rulers were British colonial officials and a handful of privileged merchants, who were relatively easy to sweep aside when the revolution came and the British government was overthrown. Classical liberalism, therefore, had more popular support and met far less entrenched institutional resistance in the American colonies than it found at home. Furthermore, being geographically isolated, the American rebels did not have to worry about the invading armies of neighboring counter-revolutionary governments, as, for example, was the case in France. After the Revolution Thus America, above all countries, was born in an explicitly libertarian revolution, 
a revolution against empire, against taxation, trade monopoly and regulation, and against militarism and executive power. The revolution resulted in governments unprecedented in restrictions placed on their power. But while there was very little institutional resistance in America to the onrush of liberalism, there did appear from the very beginning powerful elite forces, especially among the large merchants and planters, who wished to retain the restrictive British mercantilist system of high taxes, controls, and monopoly privileges conferred by the government. These groups wished for a strong central and even imperial government, in short, they wanted the British system without Great Britain. These conservative and reactionary forces first appeared during the Revolution and later formed the Federalist Party and the Federalist Administration in the 1790s. During the 19th century, however, the libertarian impetus continued. The Jeffersonian and Jacksonian movements, the Democratic-Republican and then the Democratic parties, explicitly strived for the virtual elimination of government from American life. It was to be a government without a standing army or navy, a government without debt and with no direct federal or excise taxes, and virtually no import tariffs, that is, with negligible levels of taxation and expenditure, a government that does not engage in public works or internal improvements, a government that does not control or regulate, a government that leaves money and banking free, hard, and uninflated. In short, in the words of H. L. Mencken's ideal, a government that barely escapes being no government at all. The Jeffersonian drive toward virtually no government, foundered after Jefferson took office, first with concessions to the Federalists, possibly the result of a deal for Federalist votes to break a tie in the Electoral College, and then with the unconstitutional purchase of the Louisiana Territory. But most particularly, it foundered with the imperialist drive toward war with Britain in Jefferson's second term, a drive which led to war and to a one-party system which established virtually the entire statist Federalist program, high military expenditures, a central bank, a protective tariff, direct federal taxes, public works. Horrified at the results, a retired Jefferson brooded at Monticello and inspired young visiting politicians Martin Van Buren and Thomas Hart Benton to found a new party, the Democratic Party, to take back America from the new federalism and to recapture the spirit of the old Jeffersonian program. When the two young leaders latched on to Andrew Jackson as their savior, the new Democratic Party was born. The Jacksonian Libertarians had a plan. It was to be eight years of Andrew Jackson as president, to be followed by eight years of Van Buren, then eight years of Benton. After 24 years of a triumphant Jacksonian democracy, the Mankinian virtually no-government ideal was to have been achieved. It was by no means an impossible dream— since it was clear that the Democratic Party had quickly become the normal majority party in the country. The mass of the people were enlisted in the libertarian cause. Jackson had his eight years, which destroyed the central bank and retired the public debt, and Van Buren had four, which separated the federal government from the banking system. 
But the 1840 election was an anomaly, as Van Buren was defeated by an unprecedentedly demagogic campaign engineered by the first great modern campaign chairman, Thurlow Weed, who pioneered in all the campaign frills, catchy slogans, buttons, songs, parades, etc., with which we are now familiar. Weed's tactics put in office the egregious and unknown Whig, General William Henry Harrison, but this was clearly a fluke. In 1844, the Democrats would be prepared to counter with the same campaign tactics, and they were clearly slated to recapture the presidency that year. Van Buren, of course, was supposed to resume the triumphal Jacksonian march. But then a fateful event occurred. The Democratic Party was sundered on the critical issue of slavery, or rather, the expansion of slavery into a new territory. Van Buren's easy renomination foundered on a split within the ranks of the democracy over the admission to the Union of the Republic of Texas as a slave state. Van Buren was opposed, Jackson in favor, and this split symbolized the wider sectional rift within the Democratic Party. Slavery, the grave anti-libertarian flaw in the libertarianism of the democratic program, had arisen to wreck the party and its libertarianism completely. The Civil War, in addition to its unprecedented bloodshed and devastation, was used by the triumphal and virtually one-party Republican regime to drive through its statist, formerly Whig, program, National government power, protective tariff, subsidies to big business, inflationary paper money, resumed control of the federal government over banking, large-scale internal improvements, high excise taxes, and, during the war, conscription and an income tax. Furthermore, the states came to lose their previous right of secession and other states' powers as opposed to federal government powers. The Democratic Party resumed its libertarian ways after the war, but it now had to face a far longer and more difficult road to arrive at liberty than it had before. We have seen how America came to have the deepest libertarian tradition, a tradition that still remains in much of our political rhetoric and is still reflected in a feisty and individualistic attitude toward government by much of the American people. There is far more fertile soil in this country than in any other for a resurgence of libertarianism. Resistance to Liberty We can now see that the rapid growth of the libertarian movement and the libertarian party in the 1970s is firmly rooted in what Bernard Balin called this powerful permanent legacy of the American Revolution— but if this legacy is so vital to the American tradition, what went wrong? Why the need now for a new libertarian movement to arise to reclaim the American dream? To begin to answer this question, we must first remember that classical liberalism constituted a profound threat to the political and economic interests, the ruling classes who benefited from the old order, the kings, the nobles and landed aristocrats, the privileged merchants, the military machines, the state bureaucracies. Despite three major violent revolutions precipitated by the liberals, the English of the 17th century and the American and French of the 18th, victories in Europe were only partial, 
Resistance was stiff and managed to successfully maintain landed monopolies, religious establishments, and warlike foreign and military policies, and for a time to keep the suffrage restricted to the wealthy elite. The liberals had to concentrate on widening the suffrage, because it was clear to both sides that the objective economic and political interests of the mass of the public lay in individual liberty. It is interesting to note that by the early 19th century, the laissez-faire forces were known as liberals and radicals, for the purer and more consistent among them, and the opposition that wished to preserve or go back to the old order were broadly known as conservatives. Indeed, conservatism began in the early 19th century as a conscious attempt to undo and destroy the hated work of the new classical liberal spirit of the American, French, and Industrial Revolutions. Led by two reactionary French thinkers, de Bonal and de Maistre, conservatism yearned to replace equal rights and equality before the law by the structured and hierarchical rule of privileged elites, individual liberty and minimal government by absolute rule and big government, religious freedom by the theocratic rule of a state church, peace and free trade by militarism, mercantilist restrictions and war for the advantage of the nation-state, and industry and manufacturing by the old feudal and agrarian order, and they wanted to replace the new world of mass consumption and rising standards of living for all by the old order of bare subsistence for the masses and luxury consumption for the ruling elite. By the middle of, and certainly by the end of the 19th century, conservatives began to realize that their cause was inevitably doomed if they persisted in clinging to the call for outright repeal of the Industrial Revolution and of its enormous rise in the living standards of the mass of the public, and also if they persisted in opposing the widening of the suffrage, thereby frankly setting themselves in opposition to the interests of that public. Hence the right wing, a label based on an accident of geography by which the spokesman for the old order sat on the right of the assembly hall during the French Revolution, decided to shift their gears and to update their statist creed by jettisoning outright opposition to industrialism and democratic suffrage. For the old conservatism's frank hatred and contempt for the mass of the public, the new conservatives substituted duplicity and demagogy. The new conservatives wooed the masses with the following line, We too favor industrialism and a higher standard of living. But to accomplish such ends, we must regulate industry for the public good. We must substitute organized cooperation for the dog-eat-dog of the free and competitive marketplace. And above all, we must substitute for the nation-destroying liberal tenets of peace and free trade the nation-glorifying measures of war, protectionism, empire, and military prowess. For all of these changes, of course, big government, rather than minimal government, was required. And so, in the late 19th century, statism and big government returned, but this time displaying a pro-industrial and pro-general welfare face. The old order returned, but this time the beneficiaries were shuffled a bit. 
They were not so much the nobility, the feudal landlords, the army, the bureaucracy, and privileged merchants, as they were the army, the bureaucracy, the weakened feudal landlords, and especially the privileged manufacturers. Led by Bismarck and Prussia, the new right fashioned a right-wing collectivism based on war, militarism, protectionism, and the compulsory cartelization of business and industry a giant network of controls, regulations, subsidies, and privileges, which forged a great partnership of big government with certain favored elements in big business and industry. Something had to be done, too, about the new phenomenon of a massive number of industrial wage workers, the proletariat. During the 18th and early 19th centuries, indeed until the late 19th century, the mass of workers favored laissez-faire and the free competitive market, as best for their wages and working conditions as workers, and for a cheap and widening range of consumer goods as consumers. Even the early trade unions, for example in Great Britain, were staunch believers in laissez-faire, New conservatives, spearheaded by Bismarck in Germany and Disraeli in Britain, weakened the libertarian will of the workers by shedding crocodile tears about the condition of the industrial labor force, and cartelizing and regulating industry, not accidentally hobbling efficient competition. Finally, in the early 20th century, the new conservative corporate state, then and now the dominant political system in the Western world, incorporated responsible and corporatist trade unions as junior partners to big government and favored big businesses in the new statist and corporatist decision-making system. To establish this new system, to create a new order which was a modernized, dressed-up version of the Ancien Régime before the American and French revolutions, the new ruling elites had to perform a gigantic con-job on the deluded public, a con-job that continues to this day. Whereas the existence of every government, from absolute monarchy to military dictatorship, rests on the consent of the majority of the public, a democratic government must engineer such consent on a more immediate, day-by-day -day basis. And to do so, the new conservative ruling elites had to gull the public in many crucial and fundamental ways. For the masses now had to be convinced that tyranny was better than liberty, that a cartelized and privileged industrial feudalism was better for the consumers than a freely competitive market, that a cartelized monopoly was to be imposed in the name of anti-monopoly, and that war and military aggrandizement for the benefit of the ruling elites was really in the interests of the conscripted, taxed, and often slaughtered public. How was this to be done? In all societies, public opinion is determined by the intellectual classes, the opinion molders of society. For most people neither originate nor disseminate ideas and concepts, on the contrary, they tend to adopt those ideas promulgated by the professional intellectual classes, the professional dealers in ideas. Now throughout history, as we shall see further below, despots and ruling elites of states have had far more need of the services of intellectuals than have peaceful citizens in a free society. 
for states have always needed opinion-molding intellectuals to con the public into believing that its rule is wise, good, and inevitable, into believing that the emperor has clothes. Until the modern world, such intellectuals were inevitably churchmen, or witch-doctors, the guardians of religion. It was a cozy alliance, this age-old partnership between church and state. The church informed its deluded charges that the king ruled by divine command, and therefore must be obeyed. In return, the king funneled numerous tax revenues into the coffers of the church, Hence the great importance for the libertarian classical liberals of their success at separating church and state. The new liberal world was a world in which intellectuals could be secular, could make a living on their own, in the market, apart from state subvention. To establish their new statist order, their neo-mercantilist corporate state, the new conservatives therefore had to forge a new alliance between intellectual and state. In an increasingly secular age, this meant with secular intellectuals, rather than with divines, specifically with the new breed of professors, PhDs, historians, teachers, and technocratic economists, social workers, sociologists, physicians, and engineers. This reforged alliance came in two parts. In the early 19th century, the conservatives, conceding reason to their liberal enemies, relied heavily on the alleged virtues of irrationality, romanticism, tradition, theocracy. By stressing the virtue of tradition and of irrational symbols, the conservatives could gull the public into continuing privileged hierarchical rule, and to continue to worship the nation-state and its war-making machine. In the latter part of the 19th century, the new conservatism adopted the trappings of reason and of science. Now it was science that allegedly required rule of the economy and of society by technocratic experts. In exchange for spreading this message to the public, the new breed of intellectuals was rewarded with jobs and prestige as apologists for the new order, and as planners and regulators of the newly cartelized economy and society. To ensure the dominance of the new statism over public opinion, to ensure that the public's consent would be engineered, the governments of the Western world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries moved to seize control over education, over the minds of men, over the universities, and over general education through compulsory school attendance laws and a network of public schools. The public schools were consciously used to inculcate obedience to the state as well as other civic virtues among their young charges. Furthermore, this statizing of education ensured that one of the biggest vested interests in expanding statism would be the nation's teachers and professional educationists. One of the ways that the new statist intellectuals did their work was to change the meaning of old labels, and therefore to manipulate in the minds of the public the emotional connotations attached to such labels. For example, the laissez-faire libertarians had long been known as liberals, and the purest and most militant of them as radicals. They had also been known as progressives, because they were the ones in tune with industrial progress, the spread of liberty, and the rise in living standards of consumers. 
The new breed of statist academics and intellectuals appropriated to themselves the words liberal and progressive, and successfully managed to tar their laissez-faire opponents with the charge of being old-fashioned, Neanderthal, and reactionary. Even the name conservative was pinned on the classical liberals. And, as we have seen, the new statists were able to appropriate the concept of reason as well. If the laissez-faire liberals were confused by the new recrudescence of statism and mercantilism as progressive corporate statism, another reason for the decay of classical liberalism by the end of the 19th century was the growth of a peculiar new movement, socialism. Socialism began in the 1830s and expanded greatly after the 1880s. The peculiar thing about socialism was that it was a confused hybrid movement, influenced by both the two great pre-existing polar ideologies, liberalism and conservatism. From the classical liberals, the socialists took a frank acceptance of industrialism and the Industrial Revolution, an early glorification of science and reason, and at least a rhetorical devotion to such classical liberal ideals as peace, individual freedom, and a rising standard of living. Indeed, the socialists, long before the much later corporatists, pioneered in a co-opting of science, reason, and industrialism. And the socialists not only adopted the classical liberal adherence to democracy, but topped it by calling for an expanded democracy, in which the people would run the economy and each other. On the other hand, from the conservatives, the socialists took a devotion to coercion and the statist means for trying to achieve these liberal goals. Industrial harmony and growth were to be achieved by aggrandizing the state into an all-powerful institution, ruling the economy and the society in the name of science. A vanguard of technocrats was to assume all-powerful rule over everyone's person and property in the name of the people and of democracy. Not content with the liberal achievement of reason and freedom for scientific research, the socialist state would install rule by the scientists of everyone else. Not content with liberals setting the workers free to achieve undreamt-of prosperity, the socialist state would install rule by the workers of everyone else, or rather, rule by politicians, bureaucrats, and technocrats in their name. Not content with the liberal creed of equality of rights, of equality before the law, the socialist state would trample on such equality on behalf of the monstrous and impossible goal of equality or uniformity of results, or, rather, would erect a new privileged elite, a new class, in the name of bringing about such an impossible equality. Socialism was a confused and hybrid movement because it tried to achieve the liberal goals of freedom, peace, and industrial harmony and growth, goals which can only be achieved through liberty and the separation of government from virtually everything, by imposing the old conservative means of statism, collectivism, and hierarchical privilege. It was a movement which could only fail, which indeed did fail miserably in those numerous countries where it attained power in the 20th century, 
by bringing to the masses only unprecedented despotism, starvation, and grinding impoverishment. But the worst thing about the rise of the socialist movement was that it was able to outflank the classical liberals on the left, that is, as the party of hope, of radicalism, of revolution in the Western world. For just as the defenders of the Ancien Régime took their place on the right side of the hall during the French Revolution, so the liberals and radicals sat on the left. From then on until the rise of socialism, the libertarian classical liberals were the left, even the extreme left on the ideological spectrum. As late as 1848, such militant laissez-faire French liberals as Frédéric Bastiat sat on the left in the National Assembly. The classical liberals had begun as the radical revolutionary party in the West, as the party of hope and of change on behalf of liberty, peace, and progress. To allow themselves to be outflanked, to allow the socialists to pose as the party of the left, was a bad strategic error, allowing the liberals to be put falsely into a confused middle-of-the-road position with socialism and conservatism as the polar opposites. Since libertarianism is nothing if not a party of change and of progress toward liberty, abandonment of that role meant the abandonment of much of their reason for existence, either in reality or in the minds of the public. But none of this could have happened if the classical liberals had not allowed themselves to decay from within. They could have pointed out, as some of them indeed did, that socialism was a confused, self-contradictory, quasi-conservative movement, absolute monarchy and feudalism with a modern face, and that they themselves were still the only true radicals, undaunted people who insisted on nothing less than complete victory for the libertarian ideal. Decay from Within but after achieving impressive partial victories against statism, the classical liberals began to lose their radicalism, their dogged insistence on carrying the battle against conservative statism to the point of final victory. Instead of using partial victories as a stepping stone for ever more pressure, the classical liberals began to lose their fervor for change and for purity of principle, they began to rest content with trying to safeguard their existing victories, and thus turned themselves from a radical into a conservative movement, conservative in the sense of being content to preserve the status quo. In short, the liberals left the field wide open for socialism to become the party of hope and of radicalism, and even for the later corporatists to pose as liberals and progressives as against the extreme right-wing and conservative libertarian classical liberals, since the latter allowed themselves to be boxed into a position of hoping for nothing more than stasis, than absence of change. Such a strategy is foolish and untenable in a changing world. But the degeneration of liberalism was not merely one of stance and strategy, but one of principle as well. For the liberals became content to leave the war-making power in the hands of the state, to leave the education power in its hands, to leave the power over money and banking and over roads in the hands of the state. 
In short, to concede to state dominion over all the crucial levers of power in society. In contrast to the 18th century liberals' total hostility to the executive and to bureaucracy, the 19th century liberals tolerated and even welcomed the build-up of executive power and of an entrenched oligarchic civil service bureaucracy. Moreover, principle and strategy merged in the decay of 18th century and early 19th century liberal devotion to abolitionism, to the view that, whether the institution be slavery or any other aspect of statism, it should be abolished as quickly as possible, since the immediate abolition of statism, while unlikely in practice, was to be sought after as the only possible moral position. For to prefer a gradual whittling away to immediate abolition of an evil and coercive institution is to ratify and sanction such evil, and therefore to violate libertarian principles. As the great abolitionist of slavery and libertarian William Lloyd Garrison explained, urge immediate abolition as earnestly as we may, it will, alas, be gradual abolition in the end. We have never said that slavery would be overthrown by a single blow. That it ought to be, we shall always contend. There were two critically important changes in the philosophy and ideology of classical liberalism, which both exemplified and contributed to its decay as a vital, progressive, and radical force in the Western world. The first and most important, occurring in the early to mid-nineteenth century, was the abandonment of the philosophy of natural rights and its replacement by technocratic utilitarianism. Instead of liberty grounded on the imperative morality of each individual's right to person and property, that is, instead of liberty being sought primarily on the basis of right and justice, utilitarianism preferred liberty as generally the best way to achieve a vaguely defined general welfare or common good. There were two grave consequences of this shift from natural rights to utilitarianism. First, the purity of the goal, the consistency of the principle, was inevitably shattered. For whereas the natural rights libertarian seeking morality and justice cleaves militantly to pure principle, the utilitarian only values liberty as an ad hoc expedient. And since expediency can and does shift with the wind, it will become easy for the utilitarian in his cool calculus of cost and benefit to plump for statism in ad hoc case after case, and thus to give principle away. Indeed, this is precisely what happened to the Benthamite utilitarians in England. Beginning with ad hoc libertarianism and laissez-faire, they found it ever easier to slide further and further into statism. An example was the drive for an efficient and therefore strong civil service and executive power, an efficiency that took precedence, indeed replaced, any concept of justice or right. Second, and equally important, it is rare indeed ever to find a utilitarian who is also radical, who burns for immediate abolition of evil and coercion. Utilitarians, with their devotion to expediency, almost inevitably oppose any sort of upsetting or radical change. 
there have been no utilitarian revolutionaries. Hence, utilitarians are never immediate abolitionists. The abolitionist is such because he wishes to eliminate wrong and injustice as rapidly as possible. In choosing this goal, there is no room for cool, ad hoc weighing of cost and benefit. Hence, the classical liberal utilitarians abandoned radicalism and became mere gradualist reformers. But in becoming reformers, they also put themselves inevitably into the position of advisors and efficiency experts to the state. In other words, they inevitably came to abandon libertarian principle, as well as a principled libertarian strategy. The utilitarians wound up as apologists for the existing order, for the status quo, and hence were all too open to the charge by socialists and progressive corporatists that they were mere narrow-minded and conservative opponents of any and all change. Thus, starting as radicals and revolutionaries, as the polar opposites of conservatives, the classical liberals wound up as the image of the thing they had fought. This utilitarian crippling of libertarianism is still with us. Thus, in the early days of economic thought, utilitarianism captured free market economics with the influence of Bentham and Ricardo, and this influence is today fully as strong as ever. Current free market economics is all too rife with appeals to gradualism, with scorn for ethics, justice, and consistent principle, and with a willingness to abandon free market principles at the drop of a cost-benefit hat. Hence, current free market economics is generally envisioned by intellectuals as merely apologetics for a slightly modified status quo, and all too often such charges are correct. A second reinforcing change in the ideology of classical liberals came during the late 19th century, when, at least for a few decades, they adopted the doctrines of social evolutionism, often called social Darwinism. Generally, statist historians have smeared such social Darwinist laissez-faire liberals as Herbert Spencer and William Graham Sumner as cruel champions of the extermination, or at least of the disappearance, of the socially unfit. Much of this was simply the dressing up of sound economic and sociological free market doctrine in the then-fashionable trappings of evolutionism. But the really important and crippling aspect of their social Darwinism was the illegitimate carrying over to the social sphere of the view that species, or later, genes, change very, very slowly after millennia of time. The social Darwinist liberal came then to abandon the very idea of revolution or radical change, in favor of sitting back and waiting for the inevitable tiny evolutionary changes over eons of time. In short, ignoring the fact that liberalism had had to break through the power of ruling elites by a series of radical changes and revolutions, the social Darwinists became conservatives, preaching against any radical measures and in favor of only the most minutely gradual of changes. Ironically enough, modern evolutionary theory is coming to abandon completely the theory of gradual evolutionary change, 
Instead, it is now perceived that a far more accurate picture is sharp and sudden flips from one static species equilibrium to another. This is being called the theory of punctuational change. As one of the expounders of the new view, Professor Stephen J. Gould writes, Gradualism is a philosophy of change, not an induction from nature. Gradualism, too, has strong ideological components, more responsible for its previous success than any objective matching with external nature. The utility of gradualism as an ideology must explain much of its influence, for it became liberalism's quintessential dogma against radical change, Sudden flips are against the laws of nature. In fact, the great libertarian Spencer himself is a fascinating illustration of just such a change in classical liberalism, and his case is paralleled in America by William Graham Sumner. In a sense, Herbert Spencer embodies within himself much of the decline of liberalism in the 19th century. For Spencer began as a magnificently radical liberal as virtually a pure libertarian. But as the virus of sociology and social Darwinism took over in his soul, Spencer abandoned libertarianism as a dynamic, radical, historical movement, although without abandoning it in pure theory. While looking forward to an eventual victory of pure liberty, of contract as against status, of industry as against militarism, Spencer began to see that victory as inevitable, but only after millennia of gradual evolution. Hence, Spencer abandoned liberalism as a fighting radical creed, and confined his liberalism in practice to a weary, conservative, rear-guard action against the growing collectivism and statism of his day. But if utilitarianism, bolstered by social Darwinism, was the main agent of philosophical and ideological decay in the liberal movement, the single most important and even cataclysmic reason for its demise was its abandonment of formerly stringent principles against war, empire, and militarism. In country after country, it was the siren song of nation-state and empire that destroyed classical liberalism. In England, the liberals in the late 19th and early 20th centuries abandoned the anti-war, anti-imperialist, little Englandism of Cobden, Bright, and the Manchester School. Instead, they adopted the obscenely entitled liberal imperialism, joining the conservatives in the expansion of empire, and the conservatives and the right-wing socialists in the destructive imperialism and collectivism of World War I. In Germany, Bismarck was able to split the previously almost triumphant liberals by setting up the lure of unification of Germany by blood and iron. In both countries, the result was the destruction of the liberal cause. In the United States, the classical liberal party had long been the Democratic Party, known in the latter 19th century as the Party of Personal Liberty, Basically, it had been the party not only of personal, but also of economic liberty, the stalwart opponent of prohibition, of Sunday blue laws, and of compulsory education, the devoted champion of free trade, hard money, absence of governmental inflation, separation of banking from the state, and the absolute minimum of government. 
It construed state power to be negligible and federal power to be virtually non-existent. On foreign policy, the Democratic Party, though less rigorously, tended to be the party of peace, anti-militarism, and anti-imperialism. But personal and economic libertarianism were both abandoned with the capture of the Democratic Party by the Bryan forces in 1896, and the foreign policy of non-intervention was then rudely abandoned by Woodrow Wilson two decades later. It was an intervention and a war that were to usher in a century of death and devastation, of wars and new despotisms, and also a century in all warring countries of the new corporatist statism, of a welfare-warfare state run by an alliance of big government, big business, unions, and intellectuals that we have mentioned above. The last gasp, indeed, of the old laissez-faire liberalism in America was the doughty and aging libertarians who banded together to form the Anti-Imperialist League at the turn of the century, to combat the American war against Spain and the subsequent imperialist American war to crush the Filipinos who were striving for national independence from both Spain and the United States. To current eyes, the idea of an anti-imperialist who is not a Marxist may seem strange, but opposition to imperialism began with laissez-faire liberals such as Cobden and Bright in England and Eugen Richter in Prussia. In fact, the Anti-Imperialist League, headed by Boston industrialist and economist Edward Atkinson, and including Sumner, consisted largely of laissez-faire radicals who had fought the good fight for the abolition of slavery and had then championed free trade, hard money, and minimal government. To them, their final battle against the new American imperialism was simply part and parcel of their lifelong battle against coercion, statism, and injustice, against big government in every area of life, both domestic and foreign. We have traced the rather grisly story of the decline and fall of classical liberalism after its rise and partial triumph in previous centuries. What, then, is the reason for the resurgence, the flowering, of libertarian thought and activity in the last few years, particularly in the United States? How could these formidable forces and coalitions for statism have yielded even that much to a resurrected libertarian movement? Shouldn't the resumed march of statism in the late 19th and 20th centuries be a cause for gloom, rather than usher in a reawakening of a seemingly moribund libertarianism? Why didn't libertarianism remain dead and buried? We have seen why libertarianism would naturally arise first and most fully in the United States, a land steeped in libertarian tradition. But we have not yet examined the question, why the renaissance of libertarianism at all within the last few years? What contemporary conditions have led to this surprising development? We must postpone answering this question until the end of the book, until we first examine what the libertarian creed is and how that creed can be applied to solve the leading problem areas in our society. Part 1. The Libertarian Creed Chapter 2. Property and Exchange 
the non-aggression axiom. The libertarian creed rests upon one central axiom, that no man or group of men may aggress against the person or property of anyone else. This may be called the non-aggression axiom. Aggression is defined as the initiation of the use or threat of physical violence against the person or property of anyone else. Aggression is therefore synonymous with invasion. If no man may aggress against another, if, in short, everyone has the absolute right to be free from aggression, then this at once implies that the libertarian stands four-square for what are generally known as civil liberties, the freedom to speak, publish, assemble, and to engage in such victimless crimes as pornography, sexual deviation, and prostitution, which the libertarian does not regard as crimes at all, since he defines a crime as violent invasion of someone else's person or property. Furthermore, he regards conscription as slavery on a massive scale, and since war, especially modern war, entails the mass slaughter of civilians, the libertarian regards such conflicts as mass murder, and therefore totally illegitimate. All of these positions are now considered leftist on the contemporary ideological scale. On the other hand, since the libertarian also opposes invasion of the rights of private property, this also means that he just as emphatically opposes government interference with property rights, or with the free market economy, through controls, regulations, subsidies, or prohibitions. For if every individual has the right to his own property without having to suffer aggressive depredation, then he also has the right to give away his property, bequest and inheritance, and to exchange it for the property of others free contract and the free market economy, without interference. The libertarian favors the right to unrestricted private property and free exchange, hence a system of laissez-faire capitalism. In current terminology, again, the libertarian position on property and economics would be called extreme right-wing, but the libertarian sees no inconsistency in being leftist on some issues and rightist on others. On the contrary, he sees his own position as virtually the only consistent one, consistent on behalf of the liberty of every individual. For how can the leftist be opposed to the violence of war and conscription, while at the same time supporting the violence of taxation and government control? And how can the rightist trumpet his devotion to private property and free enterprise, while at the same time favoring war, conscription, and the outlawing of non-invasive activities and practices that he deems immoral? And how can the rightist favor a free market while seeing nothing amiss in the vast subsidies, distortions, and unproductive inefficiencies involved in the military-industrial complex? While opposing any and all private or group aggression against the rights of person and property, the libertarian sees that throughout history and into the present day, there has been one central, dominant, and overriding aggressor upon all of these rights. The state. In contrast to all other thinkers, left, right, or in-between, 
The libertarian refuses to give the state the moral sanction to commit actions that almost everyone agrees would be immoral, illegal, and criminal if committed by any person or group in society. The libertarian, in short, insists on applying the general moral law to everyone and makes no special exemptions for any person or group. But if we look at the state naked, as it were, we see that it is universally allowed, and even encouraged, to commit all the acts which even non-libertarians concede are reprehensible crimes. The state habitually commits mass murder, which it calls war, or sometimes suppression of subversion. The state engages in enslavement into its military forces, which it calls conscription and it lives and has its being in the practice of forcible theft, which it calls taxation. The libertarian insists that whether or not such practices are supported by the majority of the population is not germane to their nature, that regardless of popular sanction, war is mass murder, conscription is slavery, and taxation is robbery. The libertarian, in short, is almost completely the child in the fable, pointing out insistently that the emperor has no clothes. Throughout the ages, the emperor has had a series of pseudo-clothes provided for him by the nation's intellectual caste. In past centuries, the intellectuals informed the public that the state or its rulers were divine, or at least clothed in divine authority, and therefore what might look to the naive and untutored eye as despotism, mass murder, and theft on a grand scale was only the divine working its benign and mysterious ways in the body politic. In recent decades, as the divine sanction has worn a bit threadbare, the emperor's court intellectuals have spun ever more sophisticated apologia, informing the public that what the government does is for the common good and the public welfare, that the process of taxation and spending works through the mysterious process of the multiplier to keep the economy on an even keel, and that, in any case, a wide variety of governmental services could not possibly be performed by citizens acting voluntarily on the market or in society. All of this the libertarian denies. He sees the various apologia as fraudulent means of obtaining public support for the state's rule, and he insists that whatever services the government actually performs could be supplied far more efficiently and far more morally by private and cooperative enterprise. The libertarian therefore considers one of his prime educational tasks is to spread the demystification and desanctification of the state among its hapless subjects. His task is to demonstrate repeatedly and in depth that not only the emperor, but even the democratic state, has no clothes, that all governments subsist by exploitive rule over the public, and that such rule is the reverse of objective necessity. He strives to show that the very existence of taxation and the state necessarily sets up a class division between the exploiting rulers and the exploited ruled. He seeks to show that the task of the court intellectuals, who have always supported the state, has ever been to weave mystification in order to induce the public to accept state rule, 
and that these intellectuals obtain, in return, a share in the power and pelf extracted by the rulers from their deluded subjects. Take, for example, the institution of taxation, which statists have claimed is in some sense really voluntary. Anyone who truly believes in the voluntary nature of taxation is invited to refuse to pay taxes and to see what then happens to him. If we analyze taxation, we find that among all the persons and institutions in society, only the government acquires its revenues through coercive violence. Everyone else in society acquires income either through voluntary gift, lodge, charitable society, chess club, or through the sale of goods or services voluntarily purchased by consumers. If anyone but the government proceeded to tax, this would clearly be considered coercion and thinly disguised banditry. Yet the mystical trappings of sovereignty have so veiled the process that only libertarians are prepared to call taxation what it is, legalized and organized theft on a grand scale. Property Rights If the central axiom of the libertarian creed is non-aggression against anyone's person and property, how is this axiom arrived at? What is its groundwork or support? Here, libertarians, past and present, have differed considerably. Roughly, there are three broad types of foundation for the libertarian axiom, corresponding to three kinds of ethical philosophy. The emotivist, the utilitarian, and the natural rights viewpoint. The emotivists assert that they take liberty or non-aggression as their premise purely on subjective emotional grounds. While their own intense emotion might seem a valid basis for their own political philosophy, this can scarcely serve to convince anyone else. By ultimately taking themselves outside the realm of rational discourse, the emotivists thereby ensure the lack of general success of their own cherished doctrine. The utilitarians declare from their study of the consequences of liberty, as opposed to alternative systems, that liberty will lead more surely to widely approved goals, harmony, peace, prosperity, etc. Now, no one disputes that relative consequences should be studied in assessing the merits or demerits of respective creeds. But there are many problems in confining ourselves to a utilitarian ethic. For one thing, utilitarianism assumes that we can weigh alternatives and decide upon policies on the basis of their good or bad consequences. But if it is legitimate to apply value judgments to the consequences of X, why is it not equally legitimate to apply such judgments to X itself? May there not be something about an act itself which, in its very nature, can be considered good or evil? Another problem with the utilitarian is that he will rarely adopt a principle as an absolute and consistent yardstick to apply to the varied concrete situations of the real world. He will only use a principle, at best, as a vague guideline or aspiration, as a tendency which he may choose to override at any time. 
This was the major defect of the 19th-century English radicals, who had adopted the laissez-faire view of the 18th-century liberals, but had substituted a supposedly scientific utilitarianism for the supposedly mystical concept of natural rights as the groundwork for that philosophy. Hence the 19th-century laissez-faire liberals came to use laissez-faire as a vague tendency rather than as an unblemished yardstick and therefore increasingly and fatally compromised the libertarian creed. To say that a utilitarian cannot be trusted to maintain libertarian principle in every specific application may sound harsh, but it puts the case fairly. A notable contemporary example is the free market economist Professor Milton Friedman, who, like his classical economist forebears, holds to freedom as against state intervention as a general tendency, but in practice allows a myriad of damaging exceptions, exceptions which serve to vitiate the principle almost completely, notably in the fields of police and military affairs, education, taxation, welfare, neighborhood effects, antitrust laws, and money and banking. Let us consider a stark example. Suppose a society which fervently considers all redheads to be agents of the devil, and therefore to be executed whenever found. Let us further assume that only a small number of redheads exist in any generation, so few as to be statistically insignificant. The utilitarian libertarian might well reason, While the murder of isolated redheads is deplorable, the executions are small in number. The vast majority of the public, as non-redheads, achieves enormous psychic satisfaction from the public execution of redheads. The social cost is negligible. The social psychic benefit to the rest of society is great. Therefore, it is right and proper for society to execute the redheads. The natural rights libertarian, overwhelmingly concerned as he is for the justice of the act, will react in horror, and staunchly and unequivocally oppose the executions as totally unjustified murder and aggression upon non-aggressive persons. The consequence of stopping the murders, depriving the bulk of society of great psychic pleasure, would not influence such a libertarian, the absolutist libertarian, in the slightest. Dedicated to justice and to logical consistency, the natural rights libertarian cheerfully admits to being doctrinaire, to being, in short, an unabashed follower of his own doctrines. Let us turn, then, to the natural rights basis for the libertarian creed, a basis which, in one form or another, has been adopted by most of the libertarians past and present. Natural rights is the cornerstone of a political philosophy which, in turn, is embedded in a greater structure of natural law. Natural law theory rests on the insight that we live in a world of more than one, in fact, a vast number, of entities, and that each entity has distinct and specific properties, a distinct nature which can be investigated by man's reason, by his sense perception and mental faculties. Copper has a distinct nature, and behaves in a certain way, and so do iron, salt, etc. The species man, therefore, has a specifiable nature, as does the world around him, and the ways of interaction between them. To put it with undue brevity, 
the activity of each inorganic and organic entity is determined by its own nature and by the nature of the other entities with which it comes in contact. Specifically, while the behavior of plants, and at least the lower animals, is determined by their biological nature, or perhaps by their instincts, the nature of man is such that each individual person must, in order to act, choose his own ends and employ his own means in order to attain them. Possessing no automatic instincts, each man must learn about himself and the world, use his mind to select values, learn about cause and effect, and act purposively to maintain himself and advance his life. Since men can think, feel, evaluate, and act only as individuals, it becomes vitally necessary for each man's survival and prosperity that he be free to learn, choose, develop his faculties, and act upon his knowledge and values. This is the necessary path of human nature. To interfere with and cripple this process by using violence goes profoundly against what is necessary by man's nature for his life and prosperity. Violent interference with a man's learning and choices is therefore profoundly anti-human. It violates the natural law of man's needs. Individualists have always been accused by their enemies of being atomistic, of postulating that each individual lives in a kind of vacuum, thinking and choosing without relation to anyone else in society. This, however, is an authoritarian straw man. Few, if any, individualists have ever been atomists. On the contrary, it is evident that individuals always learn from each other, cooperate and interact with each other, and that this, too, is required for man's survival. But the point is that each individual makes the final choice of which influences to adopt and which to reject, or of which to adopt first and which afterwards. The libertarian welcomes the process of voluntary exchange and cooperation between freely acting individuals. What he abhors is the use of violence to cripple such voluntary cooperation and force someone to choose and act in ways different from what his own mind dictates. The most viable method of elaborating the natural rights statement of the libertarian position is to divide it into parts and to begin with the basic axiom of the right to self-ownership. The right to self-ownership asserts the absolute right of each man, by virtue of his or her being a human being, to own his or her own body. That is, to control that body, free of coercive interference. Since each individual must think, learn, value, and choose his or her ends and means in order to survive and flourish, the right to self-ownership gives man the right to perform these vital activities without being hampered and restricted by coercive molestation. Consider, too, the consequences of denying each man the right to own his own person. There are then only two alternatives. Either one, a certain class of people, A, have the right to own another class, B, or two, Everyone has the right to own his own equal quotal share of everyone else.
The first alternative implies that while Class A deserves the rights of being human, Class B is in reality subhuman, and therefore deserves no such rights. But since they are, indeed, human beings, the first alternative contradicts itself in denying natural human rights to one set of humans. Moreover, as we shall see, allowing Class A to own Class B means that the former is allowed to exploit, and therefore to live parasitically, at the expense of the latter. But this parasitism itself violates the basic economic requirement for life, production and exchange. The second alternative, what we might call participatory communalism or communism, holds that every man should have the right to own his equal quotal share of everyone else. If there are two billion people in the world, then everyone has the right to own one two billionth of every other person. In the first place, we can state that this ideal rests on an absurdity, proclaiming that every man is entitled to own a part of everyone else, yet is not entitled to own himself. Secondly, we can picture the viability of such a world, a world in which no man is free to take any action whatever without prior approval, or indeed command, by everyone else in society. It should be clear that in that sort of communist world, no one would be able to do anything, and the human race would quickly perish. But if a world of zero self-ownership and 100% other ownership spells death for the human race, then any steps in that direction also contravene the natural law of what is best for man and his life on earth. Finally, however, the participatory communist world cannot be put into practice. For it is physically impossible for everyone to keep continual tabs on everyone else, and thereby to exercise his equal quotal share of partial ownership over every other man. In practice, then, the concept of universal and equal other ownership is utopian and impossible, and supervision, and therefore control and ownership of others, necessarily devolves upon a specialized group of people who thereby become a ruling class. Hence, in practice, any attempt at communist rule will automatically become class rule, and we would be back at our first alternative. The libertarian therefore rejects these alternatives, and concludes by adopting as his primary axiom the universal right of self-ownership, a right held by everyone by virtue of being a human being. A more difficult task is to settle on a theory of property in non-human objects, in the things of this earth. It is comparatively easy to recognize the practice when someone is aggressing against the property right of another's person. If A assaults B, he is violating the property right of B in his own body. But with non-human objects, the problem is more complex. If, for example, we see X seizing a watch in the possession of Y, we cannot automatically assume that X is aggressing against Y's right of property in the watch. For may not X have been the original, true owner of the watch, who can therefore be said to be repossessing his own legitimate property? In order to decide, we need a theory of justice in property 
a theory that will tell us whether X or Y, or indeed someone else, is the legitimate owner. Some libertarians attempt to resolve the problem by asserting that whoever the existing government decrees has the property title should be considered the just owner of the property. At this point, we have not yet delved deeply into the nature of government, but the anomaly here should be glaring enough. It is surely odd to find a group eternally suspicious of virtually any and all functions of government, suddenly leaving it to government to define and apply the precious concept of property, the base and groundwork of the entire social order. It is particularly the utilitarian laissez-faireists who believe it most feasible to begin the new libertarian world by confirming all existing property titles, that is, property titles and rights as decreed by the very government that is condemned as a chronic aggressor. Let us illustrate with a hypothetical example. Suppose that libertarian agitation and pressure has escalated to such a point that the government and its various branches are ready to abdicate. But they engineer a cunning ruse. Just before the government of New York State abdicates, it passes a law turning over the entire territorial area of New York to become the private property of the Rockefeller family. The Massachusetts legislature does the same for the Kennedy family and so on for each state. The government could then abdicate and decree the abolition of taxes and coercive legislation, but the victorious libertarians would now be confronted with a dilemma. Do they recognize the new property titles as legitimately private property? The utilitarians, who have no theory of justice in property rights, would, if they were consistent with their acceptance of given property titles as decreed by government, have to accept a new social order in which fifty new satraps would be collecting taxes in the form of unilaterally imposed rent. The point is that only natural rights libertarians, only those libertarians who have a theory of justice in property titles that does not depend on government decree, could be in a position to scoff at the new ruler's claims to have private property in the territory of the country, and to rebuff these claims as invalid. As the great 19th century liberal Lord Acton saw clearly, the natural law provides the only sure ground for a continuing critique of governmental laws and decrees. What specifically the natural rights position on property titles may be, is the question to which we now turn. We have established each individual's right to self-ownership, to a property right in his own body and person. But people are not floating wraiths, they are not self-subsistent entities, they can only survive and flourish by grappling with the earth around them. They must, for example, stand on land areas. They must also, in order to survive and maintain themselves, transform the resources given by nature into consumer goods, into objects more suitable for their use and consumption. Food must be grown and eaten. Minerals must be mined and then transformed into capital and then useful consumer goods, etc. Man, in other words, must own not only his own person, but also material objects for his control and use. How, then, should the property titles in these objects be allocated?
Let us take as our first example a sculptor fashioning a work of art out of clay and other materials, and let us waive for the moment the question of original property rights in the clay and the sculptor's tools. The question then becomes, who owns the work of art as it emerges from the sculptor's fashioning? It is, in fact, the sculptor's creation, not in the sense that he has created matter, but in the sense that he has transformed nature-given matter, the clay, into another form dictated by his own ideas and fashioned by his own hands and energy. Surely it is a rare person who, with the case put thus, would say that the sculptor does not have the property right in his own product. Surely, if every man has the right to own his own body, and if he must grapple with the material objects of the world in order to survive, then the sculptor has the right to own the product he has made, by his energy and effort, a veritable extension of his own personality. He has placed the stamp of his person upon the raw material by mixing his labor with the clay, in the phrase of the great property theorist John Locke, and the product transformed by his own energy has become the material embodiment of the sculptor's ideas and vision. John Locke put the case this way, Every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. Whatsoever, then, he removes out of the state that nature hath provided and left it in, he hath mixed his labor with it, and joined it to something that is his own, and thereby makes it his property. It being by him removed from the common state nature placed it in, it hath by this labor something annexed to it that excludes the common right of other men. For this labor being the unquestionable property of the laborer, no man but he can have a right to what that is once joined to. As in the case of the ownership of people's bodies, we again have three logical alternatives. One, Either the transformer or creator has the property right in his creation, or, two, another man or set of men have the right in that creation, that is, have the right to appropriate it by force without the sculptor's consent, or, three, every individual in the world has an equal quotal share in the ownership of the sculpture, the communal solution. Again, put baldly, there are very few who would not concede the monstrous injustice of confiscating the sculptor's property, either by one or more others, or on behalf of the world as a whole. By what right do they do so? By what right do they appropriate to themselves the product of the Creator's mind and energy? In this clear-cut case, the right of the Creator to own what He has mixed His person and labor with would be generally conceded. Once again, as in the case of communal ownership of persons, the world communal solution would in practice be reduced to an oligarchy of a few others expropriating the Creator's work in the name of world public ownership. The main point, however, is that the case of the sculptor is not qualitatively different from all cases of production. 
The man or men who had extracted the clay from the ground and had sold it to the sculptor may not be as creative as the sculptor, but they, too, are producers. They, too, have mixed their ideas and their technological know-how with the nature-given soil to emerge with a useful product. They, too, are producers, and they, too, have mixed their labor with natural materials to transform those materials into more useful goods and services. These persons, too, are entitled to the ownership of their products. Where, then, does the process begin? Again, let us turn to Locke. He that is nourished by the acorns he picked up under an oak, or the apples he gathered from the trees in the wood, has certainly appropriated them to himself. Nobody can deny but the nourishment is his. I ask, then, when did they begin to be his? When he digested? Or when he ate? Or when he boiled? Or when he brought them home? Or when he picked them up? And tis plain, if the first gathering made them not his, nothing else could. That labor put a distinction between them and common. That added something to them more than nature, the common mother of all, had done, and so they became his private right. And will any one say he had no right to those acorns or apples he thus appropriated, because he had not the consent of all mankind to make them his? Was it a robbery thus to assume to himself what belonged to all in common? If such a consent as that was necessary, man had starved, notwithstanding the plenty God had given him. Thus the grass my horse has bit the turfs my servant has cut, and the ore I have digged in my place, where I have a right to them in common with others, become my property without the assignation or consent of anybody. The labor that was mine, removing them out of that common state they were in, hath fixed my property in them. By making an explicit consent of every commoner necessary to any one's appropriating to himself any part of what is given in common, children or servants could not cut the meat which their father or master had provided for them in common without assigning to every one his peculiar part. Though the water running in the fountain be every one's, yet who can doubt but that in the pitcher is his only who drew it out? His labor hath taken it out of the hands of nature where it was common, and hath thereby appropriated it to himself. Thus the law of reason makes the deer that Indians who killed it. Tis allowed to be his goods who hath bestowed his labor upon it, though before it was the common right of every one. And amongst those who are counted the civilized part of mankind, this original law of nature for the beginning of property in what was before common still takes place, and by virtue thereof, what fish any one catches in the ocean, that great and still remaining common of mankind, or what ambergris any one takes up here is by the labor that removes it out of that common state nature left it in, made his property, who takes that pains about it. If every man owns his own person, and therefore his own labor, 
and if, by extension, he owns whatever property he has created or gathered out of the previously unused, unowned state of nature, then what of the last great question, the right to own or control the earth itself? In short, if the gatherer has the right to own the acorns or berries he picks, or the farmer the right to own his crop of wheat or peaches, who has the right to own the land on which these things have grown? It is at this point that Henry George and his followers, who have gone all the way so far with the libertarians, leave the track and deny the individual's right to own the piece of land itself, the ground on which these activities have taken place. The Georgists argue that, while every man should own the goods which he produces or creates, since nature or God created the land itself, no individual has the right to assume ownership of that land. Yet if the land is to be used at all as a resource in any sort of efficient manner, it must be owned or controlled by someone or some group. And we are again faced with our three alternatives. Either the land belongs to the first user, the man who first brings it into production, or it belongs to a group of others, or it belongs to the world as a whole, with every individual owning a quotal part of every acre of land. George's option for the last solution hardly solves his moral problem. If the land itself should belong to God or nature, then why is it more moral for every acre in the world to be owned by the world as a whole than to concede individual ownership? In practice, again, it is obviously impossible for every person in the world to exercise effective ownership of his four-billionth portion, if the world population is, say, four billion, of every piece of the world's land surface. In practice, of course, a small oligarchy would do the controlling and owning, and not the world as a whole. But apart from these difficulties in the Georgist position, the natural rights justification for the ownership of ground land is the same as the justification for the original ownership of all other property. For as we have seen, no producer really creates matter. He takes nature-given matter and transforms it by his labor energy in accordance with his ideas and vision. But this is precisely what the pioneer, the homesteader, does when he brings previously unused land into his own private ownership. Just as the man who makes steel out of iron ore transforms that ore out of his know-how and with his energy, and just as the man who takes the iron out of the ground does the same, so does the homesteader who clears, fences, cultivates, or builds upon the land. The homesteader, too, has transformed the character of the nature-given soil by his labor and his personality. The homesteader is just as legitimately the owner of the property as the sculptor or the manufacturer. He is just as much a producer as the others. Furthermore, if the original land is nature or God-given, then so are people's talents, health, and beauty. And just as all these attributes are given to specific individuals and not to society, so then are land and natural resources. All of these resources are given to individuals and not to society, 
which is an abstraction that does not actually exist. There is no existing entity called society. There are only interacting individuals. To say that society should own land or any other property in common, then, must mean that a group of oligarchs, in practice government bureaucrats, should own the property, and at the expense of expropriating the creator or the homesteader who had originally brought this product into existence. Moreover, no one can produce anything without the cooperation of original land, if only as standing room. No man can produce or create anything by his labor alone. He must have the cooperation of land and other natural raw materials. Man comes into the world with just himself and the world around him, the land and natural resources given him by nature. He takes these resources and transforms them by his labor and mind and energy into goods more useful to man. Therefore, if an individual cannot own original land, neither can he in the full sense own any of the fruits of his labor. The farmer cannot own his wheat crop if he cannot own the land on which the wheat grows. Now that his labor has been inextricably mixed with the land, he cannot be deprived of one without being deprived of the other. Moreover, If a producer is not entitled to the fruits of his labor, who is? It is difficult to see why a newborn Pakistani baby should have a moral claim to a quotal share of ownership of a piece of Iowa land that someone has just transformed into a wheat field, and vice versa, of course, for an Iowan baby and a Pakistani farm. Land in its original state is unused and unowned. Georgists and other land communalists may claim that the whole world population really owns it, but if no one has yet used it, it is in the real sense owned and controlled by no one. The pioneer, the homesteader, the first user and transformer of this land is the man who first brings this simple valueless thing into production and social use, It is difficult to see the morality of depriving him of ownership in favor of people who have never gotten within a thousand miles of the land, and who may not even know of the existence of the property over which they are supposed to have a claim. The moral, natural rights issue involved here is even clearer if we consider the case of animals. Animals are economic land, since they are original nature-given resources. Yet will anyone deny full title to a horse, to the man who finds and domesticates it? Is this any different from the acorns and berries that are generally conceded to the gatherer? Yet in land, too, some homesteader takes the previously wild, undomesticated land and tames it by putting it to productive use. Mixing his labor with land sites should give him just as clear a title as in the case of animals. As Locke declared, as much land as a man tills, plants, improves, cultivates, and can use the product of, so much is his property. He, by his labor, does, as it were, enclose it from the common. The libertarian theory of property was eluquently summed up by two 19th-century laissez-faire French economists. If man acquires rights over things, it is because he is at once active, intelligent, and free. 
By his activity, he spreads over external nature. By his intelligence, he governs it and bends it to his use. By his liberty, he establishes between himself and it the relation of cause and effect and makes it his own. Where is there in a civilized country a clod of earth, a leaf, which does not bear this impress of the personality of man? In the town we are surrounded by the works of man. We walk upon a level pavement or a beaten road. It is man who made healthy the formerly muddy soil, who took from the side of a faraway hill the flint or stone which covers it. We live in houses. It is man who has dug the stone from the quarry, who has hewn it, who has planed the woods. It is the thought of man which has arranged the materials properly and made a building of what was before rock and wood. And in the country the action of man is still everywhere present. Men have cultivated the soil, and generations of laborers have mellowed and enriched it. The works of man have dammed the rivers and created fertility where the waters had brought only desolation. Everywhere a powerful hand is divined, which has molded matter, and an intelligent will which has adapted it to the satisfaction of the wants of one same being. Nature has recognized her master, and man feels that he is at home in nature. Nature has been appropriated by him for his use. She has become his own. She is his property. This property is legitimate. It constitutes a right as sacred for man as is the free exercise of his faculties. It is his because it has come entirely from himself, and is in no way anything but an emanation from his being. Before him there was scarcely anything but matter. Since him, and by him, there is interchangeable wealth, that is to say, articles having acquired a value by some industry by manufacture, by handling, by extraction, or simply by transportation. From the picture of a great master, which is perhaps of all material production that in which matter plays the smallest part, to the pail of water which the carrier draws from the river and takes to the consumer, wealth, whatever it may be, acquires its value only by communicated qualities, and these qualities are part of human activity, intelligence, strength. The producer has left a fragment of his own person in the thing, which has thus become valuable, and may hence be regarded as a prolongation of the faculties of man acting upon external nature. As a free being, he belongs to himself. Now the cause, that is to say, the productive force, is himself. The effect, that is to say, the wealth produced, is still himself. Who shall dare contest his title of ownership, so clearly marked by the seal of his personality? It is, then, to the human being, the creator of all wealth, that we must come back. It is by labor that man impresses his personality on matter. It is labor which cultivates the earth and makes of an unoccupied waste an appropriated field. It is labor which makes of an untrodden forest a regularly ordered wood. It is labor, or rather a series of labors, often executed by a very numerous succession of workmen, which brings hemp from seed, thread from hemp, 
cloth from thread, clothing from cloth, which transforms the shapeless pyrite picked up in the mine into an elegant bronze which adorns some public place and repeats to an entire people the thought of an artist. Property made manifest by labor participates in the rights of the person whose emanation it is. Like him, it is inviolable so long as it does not extend so far as to come into collision with another right. Like him, it is individual because it has origin in the independence of the individual, and because when several persons have cooperated in its formation, the latest possessor has purchased with a value the fruit of his personal labor, the work of all the fellow laborers who have preceded him. This is what is usually the case with manufactured articles. When property has passed, by sale or by inheritance, from one hand to another, its conditions have not changed. It is still the fruit of human liberty manifested by labor, and the holder has the rights as the producer who took possession of it by right. Society and the Individual we have talked at length of individual rights, but what, it may be asked, of the rights of society? Don't they supersede the rights of the mere individual? The libertarian, however, is an individualist. He believes that one of the prime errors in social theory is to treat society as if it were an actually existing entity. Society is sometimes treated as a superior or quasi-divine figure with overriding rights of its own, at other times as an existing evil which can be blamed for all the ills of the world. The individualist holds that only individuals exist, think, feel, choose, and act, and that society is not a living entity but simply a label for a set of interacting individuals. Treating society as a thing that chooses and acts, then, serves to obscure the real forces at work. If in a small community ten people band together to rob and expropriate three others, then this is clearly and evidently a case of a group of individuals acting in concert against another group. In this situation, if the ten people presume to refer to themselves as society acting in its interest, the rationale would be laughed out of court. Even the ten robbers would probably be too shamefaced to use this sort of argument. But let their size increase, and this kind of obfuscation becomes rife, and succeeds in duping the public. The fallacious use of a collective noun like nation, similar in this respect to society, has been trenchantly pointed out by the historian Parker T. Moon. When one uses the simple monosyllable France, one thinks of France as a unit, an entity. When we say, France sent her troops to conquer Tunis, we impute not only unit, but personality to the country. The very words conceal the facts and make international relations a glamorous drama in which personalized nations are the actors, and all too easily we forget the flesh-and-blood men and women who are the true actors. If we had no such word as France, then we should more accurately describe the Tunis expedition in some such way as this. A few of these thirty-eight million persons sent thirty thousand others to conquer Tunis. 
This way of putting the fact immediately suggests a question, or rather, a series of questions. Who were the few? Why did they send the thirty thousand to Tunis? And why did these obey? Empire building is done not by nations, but by men. The problem before us is to discover the men, the active, interested minorities in each nation who are directly interested in imperialism and then to analyze the reasons why the majorities pay the expense and fight the war necessitated by imperialist expansion. The individualist view of society has been summed up in the phrase, Society is everyone but yourself. Put thus bluntly, this analysis can be used to consider those cases where society is treated not only as a superhero with super-rights, but as a supervillain on whose shoulders massive blame is placed. Consider the typical view that not the individual criminal, but society, is responsible for his crime. Take, for example, the case where Smith robs or murders Jones. The old-fashioned view is that Smith is responsible for his act. The modern liberal counters that society is responsible. This sounds both sophisticated and humanitarian, until we apply the individualist perspective. Then we see that what liberals are really saying is that everyone but Smith, including, of course, the victim Jones, is responsible for the crime. Put this baldly, almost everyone would recognize the absurdity of this position. But conjuring up the fictive entity, society, obfuscates this process. As the sociologist Arnold W. Green puts it, it would follow, then, that if society is responsible for crime, and criminals are not responsible for crime, only those members of society who do not commit crime can be held responsible for crime. Nonsense this obvious can be circumvented only by conjuring up society as devil, as evil being, apart from people and what they do. The great American libertarian writer Frank Chodorov stressed this view of society when he wrote that society are people. Society is a collective concept and nothing else. It is a convenience for designating a number of people. So too is family or crowd or gang or any other name we give to an agglomeration of persons. Society is not an extra person. If the census totals a hundred million, that's all there are, not one more, for there cannot be any accretion to society except by procreation. The concept of society as a metaphysical person falls flat when we observe that society disappears when the component parts disperse, as in the case of a ghost town or of a civilization we learn about by the artifacts they left behind. When the individuals disappear, so does the whole. The whole has no separate existence. Using the collective noun with a singular verb leads us into a trap of the imagination. We are prone to personalize the collectivity and to think of it as having a body and a psyche of its own. Free Exchange and Free Contract the central core of the libertarian creed, then, is to establish the absolute right to private property of every man. First, in his own body, 
and second in the previously unused natural resources which he first transforms by his labor. These two axioms, the right of self-ownership and the right to homestead, establish the complete set of principles of the libertarian system. The entire libertarian doctrine then becomes the spinning out and the application of all the implications of this central doctrine. For example, a man, X, owns his own person and labor, and the farm he clears on which he grows wheat. Another man, Y, owns the fish he catches. A third man, Z, owns the cabbages he has grown and the land under it. But if a man owns anything, he then has the right to give away or exchange these property titles to someone else, after which point the other person also has absolute property title. From this corollary right to private property stems the basic justification for free contract and the free market economy. Thus, if X grows wheat, he may and probably will agree to exchange some of that wheat for some of the fish caught by Y, or for some of the cabbages grown by Z. With both X and Y making voluntary agreements to exchange property titles, or Y and Z, or X and Z, the property then becomes with equal legitimacy the property of the other person. If X exchanges wheat for Y's fish, then that fish becomes X's property to do with as he wishes, and the wheat becomes Y's property in precisely the same way. Further, a man may exchange not only the tangible objects he owns, but also his own labor, which, of course, he owns as well. Thus, Z may sell his labor services of teaching farmer X's children in return for some of the farmer's produce. It so happens that the free market economy, and the specialization and division of labor it implies, is by far the most productive form of economy known to man, and has been responsible for industrialization and for the modern economy on which civilization has been built. This is a fortunate utilitarian result of the free market, but it is not to the libertarian the prime reason for his support of this system. That prime reason is moral, and is rooted in the natural rights defense of private property we have developed above. Even if a society of despotism and systematic invasion of rights could be shown to be more productive than what Adam Smith called the system of natural liberty, the libertarian would support this system. Fortunately, as in so many other areas, the utilitarian and the moral, natural rights and general prosperity, go hand in hand. The developed market economy, as complex as the system appears to be on the surface, is nothing more than a vast network of voluntary and mutually agreed-upon two-person exchanges, such as we have shown to occur between wheat and cabbage farmers, or between the farmer and the teacher. Thus, when I buy a newspaper for a dime, a mutually beneficial two-person exchange takes place. I transfer my ownership of the dime to the newsdealer, and he transfers ownership of the paper to me. We do this because, under the division of labor, I calculate that the paper is worth more to me than the dime while the newsdealer prefers the dime to keeping the paper. Or, when I teach at a university, 
I estimate that I prefer my salary to not expending my labor of teaching, while the university authorities calculate that they prefer gaining my teaching services to not paying me the money. If the news dealer insisted on charging 50 cents for the paper, I might well decide that it isn't worth the price. Similarly, if I should insist on triple my present salary, the university might well decide to dispense with my services. Many people are willing to concede the justice and propriety of property rights and the free market economy, to concede that the farmer should be able to charge whatever his wheat will bring from consumers, or the worker to reap whatever others are willing to pay for his services. But they balk at one point, inheritance. If Willie Stargell is ten times as good and productive a ball player as Joe Jack, they are willing to concede the justice of Stargell's earning ten times the amount. But what, they ask, is the justification for someone whose only merit is being born a Rockefeller inheriting far more wealth than someone born a Rothbard? The libertarian answer is to concentrate not on the recipient, the child Rockefeller or the child Rothbard, but to concentrate on the giver, the man who bestows the inheritance. For if Smith and Jones and Stargell have the right to their labor and property, and to exchange the titles to this property for the similar property of others, they also have the right to give their property to whomever they wish. And, of course, most such gifts consist of the gifts of the property owners to their children. In short, inheritance. If Willie Stargell owns his labor and the money he earns from it, then he has the right to give that money to the baby Stargell. In the developed free market economy, then, the farmer exchanges the wheat for money. The wheat is bought by the miller, who processes and transforms the wheat into flour. The miller sells the flour to the baker, who produces bread. The baker sells the bread to the wholesaler, who in turn sells it to the retailer, who finally sells it to the consumer. And at each step of the way, the producer may hire the labor services of the workers in exchange for money. How money enters the equation is a complex process, but it should be clear that conceptually the use of money is equivalent to any single or group of useful commodities that are exchanged for the wheat, flour, etc. Instead of money, the commodity exchanged could be cloth, iron, or whatever. At each step of the way, mutually beneficial exchanges of property titles are agreed upon and transacted. We are now in a position to see how the libertarian defines the concept of freedom or liberty. Freedom is a condition in which a person's ownership rights in his own body and his legitimate material property are not invaded, are not aggressed against. A man who steals another man's property is invading and restricting the victim's freedom, as does the man who beats another over the head. Freedom and unrestricted property right go hand in hand. On the other hand, to the libertarian, crime is an act of aggression against a man's property right, either in his own person or his materially owned objects. Crime is an invasion by the use of violence against a man's property, and therefore against his liberty. 
Slavery, the opposite of freedom, is a condition in which the slave has little or no right of self-ownership. His person and his produce are systematically expropriated by his master by the use of violence. The libertarian, then, is clearly an individualist, but not an egalitarian. The only equality he would advocate is the equal right of every man to the property in his own person, to the property in the unused resources he homesteads, and to the property of others he has acquired either through voluntary exchange or gift. Property Rights and Human Rights Liberals will generally concede the right of every individual to his personal liberty, to his freedom to think, speak, write, and engage in such personal exchanges as sexual activity between consenting adults. In short, the liberal attempts to uphold the individual's right to the ownership of his own body, but then denies his right to property, that is, to the ownership of material objects. Hence the typical liberal dichotomy between human rights, which he upholds, and property rights, which he rejects. Yet the two, according to the libertarian, are inextricably intertwined. They stand or fall together. Take, for example, the liberal socialist who advocates government ownership of all the means of production while upholding the human right of freedom of speech or press. How is this human right to be exercised if the individuals constituting the public are denied their right to ownership of property? If, for example, the government owns all the newsprint and all the printing shops, how is the right to a free press to be exercised? If the government owns all the newsprint, it then necessarily has the right and the power to allocate that newsprint and someone's right to a free press becomes a mockery if the government decides not to allocate newsprint in his direction. And since the government must allocate scarce newsprint in some way, the right to a free press of, say, minorities or subversive anti-socialists will get short shrift indeed. The same is true for the right to free speech if the government owns all the assembly halls and therefore allocates those halls as it sees fit. Or, for example, if the government of Soviet Russia, being atheistic, decides not to allocate many scarce resources to the production of matzahs, for Orthodox Jews, the freedom of religion becomes a mockery. But again, the Soviet government can always rebut that Orthodox Jews are a small minority and that capital equipment should not be diverted to matzah production. The basic flaw in the liberal separation of human rights and property rights is that people are treated as ethereal abstractions. If a man has the right to self-ownership, to the control of his life, then in the real world he must also have the right to sustain his life by grappling with and transforming resources. He must be able to own the ground and the resources on which he stands and which he must use. In short, to sustain his human right, or his property rights in his own person, he must also have the property right in the material world, in the objects which he produces. Property rights are human rights, and are essential to the human rights which liberals attempt to maintain. The human right of a free press depends upon the human right of private property in newsprint. 
In fact, there are no human rights that are separable from property rights. The human right of free speech is simply the property right to hire an assembly hall from the owners or to own one oneself. The human right of a free press is the property right to buy materials and then print leaflets or books and to sell them to those who are willing to buy. There is no extra right of free speech or free press beyond the property rights we can enumerate in any given case. And furthermore, discovering and identifying the property rights involved will resolve any apparent conflicts of rights that may crop up. Consider, for example, the classic example where liberals generally concede that a person's right of freedom of speech must be curbed in the name of the public interest. Justice Holmes' famous dictum that no one has the right to cry fire falsely in a crowded theater. Holmes and his followers have used this illustration again and again to prove the supposed necessity for all rights to be relative and tentative rather than precise and absolute. But the problem here is not that rights cannot be pushed too far, but that the whole case is discussed in terms of a vague and woolly freedom of speech, rather than in terms of the rights of private property. Suppose we analyze the problem under the aspect of property rights. The fellow who brings on a riot by falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater is necessarily either the owner of the theater, or the owner's agent, or a paying patron. If he is the owner, then he has committed fraud on his customers. He has taken their money in exchange for a promise to put on a movie or play, and now instead he disrupts the show by falsely shouting fire and breaking up the performance. He has thus welched on his contractual obligation, and has thereby stolen the property, the money, of his patrons, and has violated their property rights. Suppose, on the other hand, that the shouter is a patron and not the owner. In that case, he is violating the property right of the owner, as well as of the other guests to their paid-for performance. As a guest, he has gained access to the property on certain terms, including an obligation not to violate the owner's property or to disrupt the performance the owner is putting on. His malicious act, therefore, violates the property rights of the theater owner and of all the other patrons. There is no need, therefore, for individual rights to be restricted in the case of the false shouter of fire. The rights of the individual are still absolute, but they are property rights. The fellow who maliciously cried fire in a crowded theater is indeed a criminal but not because his so-called right of free speech must be pragmatically restricted on behalf of the public good. He is a criminal because he has clearly and obviously violated the property rights of another person. Chapter 3. The State The State as Aggressor the central thrust of libertarian thought, then, is to oppose any and all aggression against the property rights of individuals, in their own persons, and in the material objects they have voluntarily acquired. While individual and gangs of criminals are, of course, opposed, there is nothing unique here to the libertarian creed, since almost all persons and schools of thought oppose the exercise of random violence against persons and property. 
There is, however, a difference of emphasis on the part of libertarians, even in this universally accepted area of defending people against crime. In the libertarian society, there would be no district attorney who prosecutes criminals in the name of a non-existent society, even against the wishes of the victim of crime. The victim would himself decide whether to press charges. Furthermore, as another side to the same coin, in a libertarian world, the victim would be able to press suit against a wrongdoer without having to convince the same district attorney that he should proceed. Moreover, in the system of criminal punishment in the libertarian world, the emphasis would never be, as it is now, on societies jailing the criminal. The emphasis would necessarily be on compelling the criminal to make restitution to the victim of his crime. The present system, in which the victim is not recompensed, but instead has to pay taxes to support the incarceration of his own attacker, would be evident nonsense in a world that focuses on the defense of property rights, and therefore on the victim of crime. Furthermore, while most libertarians are not pacifists, they would not join the present system in interfering with people's right to be pacifists. Thus, suppose that Jones, a pacifist, is aggressed against by Smith, a criminal. If Jones, as the result of his beliefs, is against defending himself by the use of violence, and is therefore opposed to any prosecution of crime, then Jones will simply fail to prosecute, and that will be the end of it. There will be no governmental machinery that pursues and tries criminals even against the wishes of the victim. But the critical difference between libertarians and other people is not in the area of private crime. The critical difference is their view of the role of the state, the government. For libertarians regard the state as the supreme, the eternal, the best organized aggressor against the persons and property of the mass of the public. All states, everywhere, whether democratic, dictatorial, or monarchical, whether red, white, blue, or brown. The state. Always and ever, the government and its rulers and operators have been considered above the general moral law. The Pentagon Papers are only one recent instance among innumerable instances in history of men, most of whom are perfectly honorable in their private lives, who lie in their teeth before the public. Why? For reasons of state. Service to the state is supposed to excuse all actions that would be considered immoral or criminal if committed by private citizens. The distinctive feature of libertarians is that they coolly and uncompromisingly apply the general moral law to people acting in their roles as members of the state apparatus. Libertarians make no exceptions. For centuries, the state, or, more strictly, individuals acting in their roles as members of the government, has cloaked its criminal activity in high-sounding rhetoric, for centuries, the state has committed mass murder and called it war, then ennobled the mass slaughter that war involves. For centuries, the state has enslaved people into its armed battalions and called it conscription in the national service. For centuries, the state has robbed people at bayonet point and called it taxation. 
In fact, if you wish to know how libertarians regard the state and any of its acts, simply think of the state as a criminal band, and all of the libertarian attitudes will logically fall into place. Let us consider, for example, what it is that sharply distinguishes government from all other organizations in society. Many political scientists and sociologists have blurred this vital distinction and refer to all organizations and groups as hierarchical, structured, governmental, etc. Left-wing anarchists, for example, will oppose equally government and private organizations, such as corporations, on the ground that each is equally elitist and coercive. But the rightist libertarian is not opposed to inequality and his concept of coercion applies only to the use of violence. The libertarian sees a crucial distinction between government, whether central, state, or local, and all other institutions in society, or rather, two crucial distinctions. First, every other person or group receives its income by voluntary payment, either by voluntary contribution or gift, such as the local community chest or bridge club, or by voluntary purchase of its goods or services on the market. For example, grocery store owner, baseball player, steel manufacturer, etc. Only the government obtains its income by coercion and violence, that is, by the direct threat of confiscation or imprisonment if payment is not forthcoming. This coerced levy is taxation. A second distinction is that, apart from criminal outlaws, only the government can use its funds to commit violence against its own or any other subjects. Only the government can prohibit pornography, compel a religious observance, or put people in jail for selling goods at a higher price than the government deems fit. Both distinctions, of course, can be summed up as only the government in society is empowered to aggress against the property rights of its subjects, whether to extract revenue, to impose its moral code, or to kill those with whom it disagrees. Furthermore, any and all governments, even the least despotic, have always obtained the bulk of their income from the coercive taxing power. And historically, by far the overwhelming portion of all enslavement and murder in the history of the world have come from the hands of government. And since we have seen that the central thrust of the libertarian is to oppose all aggression against the rights of person and property, the libertarian necessarily opposes the institution of the state as the inherent and overwhelmingly the most important enemy of those precious rights. There is another reason why state aggression has been far more important than private, a reason apart from the greater organization and central mobilizing of resources that the rulers of the state can impose. The reason is the absence of any check upon state depredation, a check that does exist when we have to worry about muggers or the mafia. To guard against private criminals, we have been able to turn to the state and its police. But who can guard us against the state itself? No one. For another critical distinction of the state is that it compels the monopolization of the service of protection. 
The state arrogates to itself a virtual monopoly of violence and of ultimate decision-making in society. If we don't like the decisions of the state courts, for example, there are no other agencies of protection to which we may turn. It is true that in the United States, at least, we have a constitution that imposes strict limits on some powers of government. But, as we have discovered in the past century, no constitution can interpret or enforce itself. It must be interpreted by men. And if the ultimate power to interpret a constitution is given to the government's own Supreme Court, then the inevitable tendency is for the court to continue to place its imprimatur on ever broader powers for its own government. Furthermore, the highly touted checks and balances and separation of powers in the American government are flimsy indeed, since in the final analysis all of these divisions are part of the same government and are governed by the same set of rulers. One of America's most brilliant political theorists, John C. Calhoun, wrote prophetically of the inherent tendency of a state to break through the limits of its written constitution. A written constitution certainly has many and considerable advantages, but it is a great mistake to suppose that the mere insertion of provisions to restrict and limit the powers of the government, without investing those for whose protection they are inserted with the means of enforcing their observance, will be sufficient to prevent the major and dominant party from abusing its powers. Being the party in possession of the government, they will be in favor of the powers granted by the Constitution and opposed to the restrictions intended to limit them. As the major and dominant parties, they will have no need of these restrictions for their protection. The minor or weaker party, on the contrary, would take the opposite direction and regard them as essential to their protection against the dominant party. But where there are no means by which they could compel the major party to observe the restrictions, the only resort left them would be a strict construction of the Constitution. To this, the major party would oppose a liberal construction, one which would give to the words of the grant the broadest meaning of which they were susceptible. It would then be construction against construction the one to construct and the other to enlarge the powers of the government to the utmost. But of what possible avail could the strict construction of the minor party be against the liberal interpretation of the major, when the one would have all the powers of the government to carry its construction into effect, and the other be deprived of all means of enforcing its construction? In a contest so unequal, the result would not be doubtful. The party in favor of the restrictions would be overpowered. The end of the contest would be the subversion of the Constitution. The restrictions would ultimately be annulled, and the government be converted into one of unlimited powers. Nor would the division of government into separate and, as it regards each other, independent departments prevent this result. As each and all the departments, and of course the entire government, would be under the control of the numerical majority. It is too clear to require explanation that a mere distribution of its powers among its agents or representatives could do little or nothing to counteract its tendency to oppression and abuse of power. But why worry about the weakness of limits on governmental power?
especially in a democracy, in the phrase so often used by American liberals in their heyday before the mid-1960s, when doubts began to creep into the liberal utopia, are we not the government? In the phrase, we are the government, the useful collective term, we, has enabled an ideological camouflage to be thrown over the naked, exploitative reality of political life. For if we truly are the government, then anything a government does to an individual is not only just and not tyrannical, it is also voluntary on the part of the individual concerned. If the government has incurred a huge public debt, which must be paid by taxing one group on behalf of another, this reality of burden is conveniently obscured by blithely saying that we owe it to ourselves. But who are the we, and who the ourselves? If the government drafts a man or even throws him into jail for dissident opinions, then he is only doing it to himself, and therefore nothing improper has occurred. Under this reasoning, then, Jews murdered by the Nazi government were not murdered. They must have committed suicide, since they were the government, which was democratically chosen, and therefore anything the government did to them was only voluntary on their part. But there is no way out of such grotesqueries for those supporters of government who see the state merely as a benevolent and voluntary agent of the public. And so we must conclude that we are not the government. The government is not us. The government does not in any accurate sense represent the majority of the people, but even if it did, even if 90% of the people decided to murder or enslave the other 10%, this would still be murder and slavery, and would not be voluntary suicide or enslavement on the part of the oppressed minority. Crime is crime. Aggression against rights is aggression, no matter how many citizens agree to the oppression. There is nothing sacrosanct about the majority. The lynch mob, too, is the majority in its own domain. But while, as in the lynch mob, the majority can become actively tyrannical and aggressive, the normal and continuing condition of the state is oligarchic rule, rule by a coercive elite which has managed to gain control of the state machinery. There are two basic reasons for this. One is the inequality and division of labor inherent in the nature of man, which gives rise to an iron law of oligarchy in all of man's activities. And second is the parasitic nature of the state enterprise itself. We have said that the individualist is not an egalitarian. Part of the reason for this is the individualist's insight into the vast diversity and individuality within mankind a diversity that has the chance to flower and expand as civilization and living standards progress. Individuals differ in ability and in interest, both within and between occupations, and hence in all occupations and walks of life, whether it be steel production or the organization of a bridge club. Leadership in the activity will inevitably be assumed by a relative handful of the most able and energetic while the remaining majority will form themselves into rank-and-file followers. This truth applies to all activities, whether they are beneficial or malevolent, as in criminal organizations. 
Indeed, the discovery of the iron law of oligarchy was made by the Italian sociologist Robert Michels, who found that the Social Democratic Party of Germany, despite its rhetorical commitment to egalitarianism, was rigidly oligarchical and hierarchical in its actual functioning. A second basic reason for the oligarchic rule of the state is its parasitic nature, the fact that it lives coercively off the production of the citizenry. To be successful to its practitioners, the fruits of parasitic exploitation must be confined to a relative minority, otherwise a meaningless plunder of all by all would result in no gains for anyone. Nowhere has the coercive and parasitic nature of the state been more clearly limbed than by the great late 19th century German sociologist Franz Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer pointed out that there are two and only two mutually exclusive means for man to obtain wealth. One, the method of production and voluntary exchange, the method of the free market, Oppenheimer termed the economic means. The other, the method of robbery by the use of violence, he called the political means. The political means is clearly parasitic, for it requires previous production for the exploiters to confiscate, and it subtracts from instead of adding to the total production in society. Oppenheimer then proceeded to define the state as the organization of the political means, the systematization of the predatory process over a given territorial area. In short, private crime is at best sporadic and uncertain. The parasitism is ephemeral, and the coercive parasitic lifeline can be cut at any time by the resistance of the victims. The state provides a legal, orderly, systematic channel for predation on the property of the producers. It makes certain, secure, and relatively peaceful the lifeline of the parasitic caste in society. The great libertarian writer Albert J. Nock wrote vividly that the state claims and exercises the monopoly of crime. It forbids private murder, but itself organizes murder on a colossal scale. It punishes private theft, but itself lays unscrupulous hands on anything at once, whether the property of citizen or of alien. At first, of course, it is startling for someone to consider taxation as robbery, and therefore government as a band of robbers. But anyone who persists in thinking of taxation as in some sense a voluntary payment can see what happens if he chooses not to pay. The great economist Joseph Schumpeter, himself by no means a libertarian, wrote that the state has been living on a revenue which was being produced in the private sphere for private purposes, and had to be deflected from these purposes by political force. The theory which construes taxes on the analogy of club dues, or of the purchase of the services of, say, a doctor, only proves how far removed this part of the social sciences is from scientific habits of mind. The eminent Viennese legal positivist Hans Kelsen attempted in his treatise The General Theory of Law and the State to establish a political theory and justification of the state on a strictly scientific and value-free basis. What happened is that early in the book he came to the crucial sticking point, the pons asinorum of political philosophy. 
What distinguishes the edicts of the state from the commands of a bandit gang? Kelson's answer was simply to say that the decrees of the state are valid, and to proceed happily from there, without bothering to define or explain this concept of validity. Indeed, it would be a useful exercise for non-libertarians to ponder this question. How can you define taxation in a way which makes it different from robbery? To the great 19th century individualist anarchist and constitutional lawyer Lysander Spooner, there was no problem in finding the answer. Spooner's analysis of the state as robber group is perhaps the most devastating ever written. It is true that the theory of our Constitution is that all taxes are paid voluntarily, that our government is a mutual insurance company, voluntarily entered into by the people with each other. But this theory of our government is wholly different from the practical fact. The fact is that the government, like a highwayman, says to a man, your money or your life, and many, if not most, taxes are paid under the compulsion of that threat. The government does not, indeed, waylay a man in a lonely place, spring upon him from the roadside, and, holding a pistol to his head, proceed to rifle his pockets. But the robbery is none the less a robbery on that account, and it is far more dastardly and shameful. The highwayman takes solely upon himself the responsibility, danger, and crime of his own act. He does not pretend that he has any rightful claim to your money, or that he intends to use it for your own benefit. He does not pretend to be anything but a robber. He has not acquired impudence enough to profess to be merely a protector, and that he takes men's money against their will merely to enable him to protect those infatuated travelers who feel perfectly able to protect themselves, or do not appreciate his peculiar system of protection. He is too sensible a man to make such professions as these. Furthermore, having taken your money, he leaves you as you wish him to do. He does not persist in following you on the road against your will, assuming to be your rightful sovereign on account of the protection he affords you. He does not keep protecting you by commanding you to bow down and serve him, by requiring you to do this and forbidding you to do that, by robbing you of more money as often as he finds it for his interest or pleasure to do so, and by branding you as a rebel, a traitor, and an enemy to your country, and shooting you down without mercy if you dispute his authority or resist his demands. He is too much of a gentleman to be guilty of such impostures and insults and villainies as these. In short, he does not, in addition to robbing you, attempt to make you either his dupe or his slave. If the state is a group of plunderers, who, then, constitutes the state? Clearly, the ruling elite consists at any time of a. the full-time apparatus, the kings, politicians, and bureaucrats who man and operate the state, and b. the groups who have maneuvered to gain privileges, subsidies, and benefices from the state. The remainder of society constitutes the ruled. It was again John C. Calhoun who saw with crystal clarity that no matter how small the power of government, no matter how low the tax burden or how equal its distribution, the very nature of government creates two unequal and inherently conflicting classes in society. Those who, on net, 
pay the taxes, the taxpayers, and those who, on net, live off taxes, the tax consumers. Suppose that the government imposes a low and seemingly equally distributed tax to pay for building a dam. This very act takes money from most of the public to pay it out to net tax consumers, the bureaucrats who run the operation, the contractors and workers who build the dam, etc. And the greater the scope of government decision-making, the greater its fiscal burdens, Calhoun went on, the greater the burden and the artificial inequality it imposes between these two classes. Few, comparatively as they are, the agents and employees of the government constitute that portion of the community who are the exclusive recipients of the proceeds of the taxes. Whatever amount is taken from the community in the form of taxes, if not lost, goes to them in the shape of expenditures or disbursements. The two, disbursement and taxation, constitute the fiscal action of the government. They are correlatives. What the one takes from the community under the name of taxes is transferred to the portion of the community who are the recipients under that of disbursements. But as the recipients constitute only a portion of the community, it follows, taking the two parts of the fiscal process together, that its action must be unequal between the payers of the taxes and the recipients of their proceeds. Nor can it be otherwise unless what is collected from each individual in the shape of taxes shall be returned to him in that of disbursements, which would make the process nugatory and absurd. The necessary result, then, of the unequal fiscal action of the government is to divide the community into two great classes, one consisting of those who, in reality, pay the taxes, and, of course, bear exclusively the burden of supporting the government, and the other of those who are the recipients of their proceeds through disbursements, and who are, in fact, supported by the government, or, in fewer words, to divide it into taxpayers and tax consumers. But the effect of this is to place them in antagonistic relations in reference to the fiscal action of the government, and the entire course of policy therewith connected, for the greater the taxes and disbursements, the greater the gain of the one and the loss of the other, and vice versa. The effect, then, of every increase is to enrich and strengthen the one, and impoverish and weaken the other. If states have everywhere been run by an oligarchic group of predators, how have they been able to maintain their rule over the mass of the population? The answer, as the philosopher David Hume pointed out over two centuries ago, is that in the long run, every government, no matter how dictatorial, rests on the support of the majority of its subjects. Now this does not, of course, render these governments voluntary, since the very existence of the tax and other coercive powers shows how much compulsion the state must exercise. Nor does the majority support have to be eager and enthusiastic approval. It could well be mere passive acquiescence and resignation. The conjunction in the famous phrase, death and taxes, implies a passive and resigned acceptance to the assumed inevitability of the state and its taxation. The tax consumers, 
the groups that benefit from the operations of the state will of course be eager rather than passive followers of the state mechanism, but these are only a minority. How is the compliance and acquiescence of the mass of the population to be secured? Here we come to the central problem of political philosophy, that branch of philosophy that deals with politics, the exercise of regularized violence, the mystery of civil obedience. Why do people obey the edicts and depredations of the ruling elite? Conservative writer James Burnham, who is the reverse of libertarian, put the problem very clearly, admitting that there is no rational justification for civil obedience. Neither the source nor the justification of government can be put in wholly rational terms. Why should I accept the hereditary or democratic or any other principle of legitimacy? Why should a principle justify the rule of that man over me? His own answer is hardly calculated to convince many others. I accept the principle, well, because I do, because that is the way it is and has been. But suppose that one does not accept the principle. What will the way be then? And why have the bulk of subjects agreed to accept it? The State and the Intellectuals The answer is that, since the early origins of the State, its rulers have always turned, as a necessary bolster to their rule, to an alliance with society's class of intellectuals. The masses do not create their own abstract ideas, or indeed think through these ideas independently. They follow passively the ideas adopted and promulgated by the body of intellectuals, who become the effective opinion molders in society. And since it is precisely a molding of opinion on behalf of the rulers that the state almost desperately needs, this forms a firm basis for the age-old alliance of the intellectuals and the ruling classes of the state. The alliance is based on a quid pro quo. On the one hand, the intellectuals spread among the masses the idea that the state and its rulers are wise, good, sometimes divine, and, at the very least, inevitable and better than any conceivable alternatives. In return for this panoply of ideology, the state incorporates the intellectuals as part of the ruling elite, granting them power, status, prestige, and material security. Furthermore, intellectuals are needed to staff the bureaucracy and to plan the economy and society. Before the modern era, particularly potent among the intellectual handmaidens of the state, was the priestly caste, cementing the powerful and terrible alliance of warrior chief and medicine man, of throne and altar. The state established the church and conferred upon it power, prestige, and wealth extracted from its subjects. In return, the church anointed the state with divine sanction and inculcated this sanction into the populace. In the modern era, when theocratic arguments have lost much of their luster among the public, the intellectuals have posed as the scientific cadre of experts and have been busy informing the hapless public that political affairs, foreign and domestic, are much too complex for the average person to bother his head about. Only the state and its core of intellectual experts, planners, scientists, economists, and national security managers can possibly hope to deal with these problems. 
The role of the masses, even in democracies, is to ratify and assent to the decisions of their knowledgeable rulers. Historically, the union of church and state, of throne and altar, has been the most effective device for inducing obedience and support among the subjects. Burnham attests to the power of myth and mystery in inducing support when he writes that, in ancient times, before the illusions of science had corrupted traditional wisdom, the founders of cities were known to be gods or demigods. To the established priestcraft, the ruler was either anointed by God, or, in the case of the absolute rule of many Oriental despotisms, was even himself God. Hence, any questioning or resistance to his rule would be blasphemy. Many and subtle are the ideological weapons the state and its intellectuals have used over the centuries to induce their subjects to accept their rule. One excellent weapon has been the power of tradition. The longer lasting the rule of any given state, the more powerful this weapon. For then the X dynasty, or the Y state, has the seeming weight of centuries of tradition behind it. Worship of one's ancestors then becomes a none-too-subtle means of cultivating worship of one's ancestral rulers. The force of tradition is, of course, bolstered by ancient habit which confirms the subjects in the seeming propriety and legitimacy of the rule under which they live. Thus the political theorist Bertrand de Juvenel has written, The essential reason for obedience is that it has become a habit of the species. Power is for us a fact of nature. From the earliest days of recorded history it has always presided over human destinies. The authorities which ruled in former times did not disappear without bequeathing to their successors their privilege, nor without leaving in men's minds imprints which are cumulative in their effect. The succession of governments which, in the course of centuries, rule the same society, may be looked on as one underlying government which takes on continuous accretions. Another potent ideological force is for the state to deprecate the individual and exalt either the past or the present collectivity of society. Any isolated voice, any raiser of new doubts, can then be attacked as a profane violator of the wisdom of his ancestors. Moreover, any new idea, much less any new critical idea, must necessarily begin as a small minority opinion. Therefore, in order to ward off any potentially dangerous idea from threatening majority acceptance of its rule, the state will try to nip the new idea in the bud by ridiculing any view that sets itself against mass opinion. The ways in which the state rulers in ancient Chinese despotisms used religion as a method of binding the individual to the state-run society were summarized by Norman Jacobs. Chinese religion is a social religion, seeking to solve the problems of social interests, not individual interests. Religion is essentially a force of impersonal social adjustment and control, rather than a medium for the personal solutions of the individual, and social adjustment and control are effected through education and reverence for superiors. Reverence for superiors superior in age, and hence in education and experience, is the ethical foundation of social adjustment and control. 
In China, the interrelationship of political authority with orthodox religion equated heterodoxy with political error. The orthodox religion was particularly active in persecuting and destroying heterodox sects. In this, it was backed by the secular power. The general tendency of government to seek out and thwart any heterodox views was outlined in typically witty and delightful style by the libertarian writer H. L. Mencken. All that government can see in an original idea is potential change, and hence an invasion of its prerogatives. The most dangerous man to any government is the man who is able to think things out for himself, without regard to the prevailing superstitions and taboos. Almost inevitably he comes to the conclusion that the government he lives under is dishonest, insane, and intolerable, and so if he is romantic he tries to change it, and even if he is not romantic personally he is very apt to spread discontent among those who are. It is also particularly important for the state to make its rule seem inevitable. Even if its reign is disliked, as it often is, it will then be met with the passive resignation expressed in the familiar coupling of death and taxes. One method is to bring to its side historical determinism. If X state rules us, then this has been inevitably decreed for us by the inexorable laws of history, or the divine will, or the absolute, or the material productive forces and nothing that any puny individuals may do can change the inevitable. It is also important for the state to inculcate in its subjects an aversion to any outcropping of what is now called a conspiracy theory of history. For a search for conspiracies, as misguided as the results often are, means a search for motives, and an attribution of individual responsibility for the historical misdeeds of ruling elites. If, however, any tyranny or venality or aggressive war imposed by the state was brought about not by particular state rulers, but by mysterious and arcane social forces, or by the imperfect state of the world, or if, in some way, everyone was guilty, we are all murderers, proclaims a common slogan, then there is no point in anyone's becoming indignant or rising up against such misdeeds. Furthermore, a discrediting of conspiracy theories, or indeed of anything smacking of economic determinism, will make the subjects more likely to believe the general welfare reasons that are invariably put forth by the modern state for engaging in any aggressive actions. The rule of the state is thus made to seem inevitable. Furthermore, any alternative to the existing state is encased in an aura of fear, Neglecting its own monopoly of theft and predation, the state raises the specter among its subjects of the chaos that would supposedly ensue if the state should disappear. The people on their own, it is maintained, could not possibly supply their own protection against sporadic criminals and marauders. Furthermore, each state has been particularly successful over the centuries in instilling fear among its subjects of other state rulers. With the land area of the globe now parceled out among particular states, one of the basic doctrines and tactics of the rulers of each state has been to identify itself with the territory it governs. 
Since most men tend to love their homeland, the identification of that land and its population with the state is a means of making natural patriotism work to the state's advantage. If, then, Ruritania is attacked by Waldavia, the first task of the Ruritanian state and its intellectuals is to convince the people of Ruritania that the attack is really upon them and not simply upon their ruling class. In this way, a war between rulers is converted into a war between peoples, with each people rushing to the defense of their rulers in the mistaken belief that the rulers are busily defending them. This device of nationalism has been particularly successful in recent centuries. It was not very long ago, at least in Western Europe, when the mass of subjects regarded wars as irrelevant battles between various sets of nobles and their retinues. Another tried-and-true method for bending subjects to one's will is the infusion of guilt. Any increase in private well-being can be attacked as unconscionable greed, materialism, or excessive affluence and mutually beneficial exchanges in the market can be denounced as selfish. Somehow the conclusion always drawn is that more resources should be expropriated from the private sector and siphoned into the parasitic public or state sector. Often the call upon the public to yield more resources is couched in a stern call by the ruling elite for more sacrifices for the national or the common weal. Somehow, however, while the public is supposed to sacrifice and curtail its materialistic greed, the sacrifices are always one way. The state does not sacrifice. The state eagerly grabs more and more of the public's material resources. Indeed, it is a useful rule of thumb. When your ruler calls aloud for sacrifices, look to your own life and pocketbook. This sort of argumentation reflects a general double standard of morality that is always applied to state rulers, but not to anyone else. No one, for example, is surprised or horrified to learn that businessmen are seeking higher profits. No one is horrified if workers leave lower-paying for higher-paying jobs. All this is considered proper and normal behavior. But if anyone should dare assert that politicians and bureaucrats are motivated by the desire to maximize their incomes, the hue and cry of conspiracy theorist or economic determinist spreads throughout the land. The general opinion, carefully cultivated, of course, by the state itself, is that men enter politics or government purely out of devoted concern for the common good and the public weal. What gives the gentlemen of the state apparatus their superior moral patina? Perhaps it is the dim and instinctive knowledge of the populace that the state is engaged in systematic theft and predation, and they may feel that only a dedication to altruism on the part of the state makes these actions tolerable. To consider politicians and bureaucrats subject to the same monetary aims as everyone else would strip the Robin Hood veil from the state predation. For it would then be clear that, in the Oppenheimer phrasing, ordinary citizens were pursuing the peaceful, productive, economic means to wealth, while the state apparatus was devoting itself to the coercive and exploitative organized political means.
The emperor's clothes of supposed altruistic concern for the common weal would then be stripped from him. The intellectual arguments used by the state throughout history to engineer consent by the public can be classified into two parts. One, that rule by the existing government is inevitable, absolutely necessary, and far better than the indescribable evils that would ensue upon its downfall. And two, that the state rulers are especially great, wise, and altruistic men, far greater, wiser, and better than their simple subjects. In former times, the latter argument took the form of rule by divine right, or by the divine ruler himself or by an aristocracy of men. In modern times, as we indicated earlier, this argument stresses not so much divine approval as rule by a wise guild of scientific experts, especially endowed in knowledge of statesmanship and the arcane facts of the world. The increasing use of scientific jargon, especially in the social sciences, has permitted intellectuals to weave apologia for state rule which rival the ancient priestcraft in obscurantism. For example, a thief who presumed to justify his theft by saying that he was really helping his victims by his spending, thus giving retail trade a needed boost, would be hooted down without delay. But when this same theory is clothed in Keynesian mathematical equations and impressive references to the multiplier effect, it carries far more conviction with a bamboozled public. In recent years, we have seen the development in the United States of a profession of national security managers, of bureaucrats who never face electoral procedures, but who continue, through administration after administration, secretly using their supposed special expertise to plan wars, interventions, and military adventures. Only their egregious blunders in the Vietnam War have called their activities into any sort of public question. Before that, they were able to ride high, wide, and handsome over the public they saw mostly as cannon fodder for their own purposes. A public debate between isolationist Senator Robert A. Taft and one of the leading national security intellectuals, McGeorge Bundy, was instructive in demarking both the issues at stake and the attitude of the intellectual ruling elite. Bundy attacked Taft in early 1951 for opening a public debate on the waging of the Korean War. Bundy insisted that only the executive policy leaders were equipped to manipulate diplomatic and military force in a lengthy decades-long period of limited war against the communist nations. It was important, Bundy maintained, that public opinion and public debate be excluded from promulgating any policy role in this area. For, he warned, the public was unfortunately not committed to the rigid national purposes discerned by the policy managers. It merely responded to the ad hoc realities of given situations. Bundy also maintained that there should be no recriminations or even examination of the decisions of the policy managers, because it was important that the public accept their decisions without question. Taft, in contrast, denounced the secret decision-making by military advisors and specialists in the executive branch, decisions effectively sealed off from public scrutiny. 
Furthermore, he complained, if anyone dared to suggest criticism or even a thorough debate, he was at once branded as an isolationist and a saboteur of unity and the bipartisan foreign policy. Similarly, at a time when President Eisenhower and Secretary of State Dulles were privately contemplating going to war in Indochina, Another prominent national security manager, George F. Kennan, was advising the public that there are times when, having elected a government, we will be best advised to let it govern and let it speak for us as it will in the councils of the nations. We see clearly why the state needs the intellectuals, but why do the intellectuals need the state? Put simply, the intellectual's livelihood in the free market is generally none too secure, for the intellectual, like everyone else on the market, must depend on the values and choices of the masses of his fellow men, and it is characteristic of these masses that they are generally uninterested in intellectual concerns. The state, on the other hand, is willing to offer the intellectuals a warm, secure, and permanent berth in its apparatus a secure income, and the panoply of prestige. The eager alliance between the state and the intellectuals was symbolized by the avid desire of the professors at the University of Berlin in the 19th century to form themselves into what they themselves proclaimed as the intellectual bodyguard of the House of Hohenzollern. From a superficially different ideological perspective, it can be seen in the revealingly outraged reaction of the eminent Marxist scholar of ancient China, Joseph Needham, to Karl Wittfogel's acidulous critique of ancient Chinese despotism. Wittfogel had shown the importance for bolstering the system of the Confucian glorification of the gentleman scholar officials who manned the ruling bureaucracy of despotic China. Needham charged indignantly that the civilization which Professor Wittfogel is so bitterly attacking was one which could make poets and scholars into officials. What matter the totalitarianism so long as the ruling class is abundantly staffed by certified intellectuals? The worshipful and fawning attitude of intellectuals toward their rulers has been illustrated many times throughout history. A contemporary American counterpart to the intellectual bodyguard of the House of Hohenzollern is the attitude of so many liberal intellectuals toward the office and person of the president. Thus, to political scientist Professor Richard Neustadt, the president is the sole crown-like symbol of the Union. And policy manager Townsend Hoops, in the winter of 1960, wrote that under our system the people can look only to the president to define the nature of our foreign policy problem and the national programs and sacrifices required to meet it with effectiveness. After generations of such rhetoric, it is no wonder that Richard Nixon, on the eve of his election as president, should thus describe his role. He, the President, must articulate the nation's values, define its goals, and marshal its will. Nixon's conception of his role is hauntingly similar to Ernst Huber's articulation in the Germany of the 1930s of the constitutional law of the Greater German Reich. Huber wrote that the head of state sets up the great ends which are to be attained, and draws up the plans for the utilization of all national powers in the achievement of the common goals. He gives the national life its true purpose and value.
The attitude and motivation of the contemporary national security intellectual bodyguard of the state has been caustically described by Marcus Raskin, who was a staff member of the National Security Council during the Kennedy administration. Calling them megadeath intellectuals, Raskin writes that their most important function is to justify and extend the existence of their employers. In order to justify the continued large-scale production of these thermonuclear bombs and missiles, military and industrial leaders needed some kind of theory to rationalize their use. This became particularly urgent during the late 1950s, when economy-minded members of the Eisenhower administration began to wonder why so much money, thought, and resources were being spent on weapons if their use could not be justified. And so began a series of rationalizations by the defense intellectuals in and out of the universities. Military procurement will continue to flourish, and they will continue to demonstrate why it must. In this respect, they are no different from the great majority of modern specialists who accept the assumptions of the organizations which employ them because of the rewards in money and power and prestige. They know enough not to question their employer's right to exist. This is not to say that all intellectuals everywhere have been court intellectuals, servitors and junior partners of power. But this has been the ruling condition in the history of civilizations, generally in the form of a priestcraft, just as the ruling condition in those civilizations has been one or another form of despotism. There have been glorious exceptions, however, particularly in the history of Western civilization, where intellectuals have often been trenchant critics and opponents of state power, and have used their intellectual gifts to fashion theoretical systems which could be used in the struggle for liberation from that power. But invariably these intellectuals have only been able to arise as a significant force when they have been able to operate from an independent power base an independent property base, separate from the apparatus of the state. For wherever the state controls all property, wealth, and employment, everyone is economically dependent on it, and it becomes difficult, if not impossible, for such independent criticism to arise. It has been in the West, with its decentralized foci of power, its independent sources of property and employment, and therefore of bases from which to criticize the state, where a body of intellectual critics has been able to flourish. In the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church, which was at least separate, if not independent from, the state, and the new free towns were able to serve as centers of intellectual and also of substantive opposition. In later centuries, teachers, ministers, and pamphleteers in a relatively free society were able to use their independence from the state to agitate for further expansion of freedom. In contrast, one of the first libertarian philosophers, Lao Tse, living in the midst of ancient Chinese despotism, saw no hope of achieving liberty in that totalitarian society except by counseling quietism to the point of the individuals dropping out of social life altogether. With decentralized power, with a church separate from the state, with flourishing towns and cities able to develop outside the feudal power structure, 
and with freedom in society, the economy was able to develop in Western Europe in a way that transcended all previous civilizations. Furthermore, the Germanic, and particularly the Celtic, tribal structure, which succeeded the disintegrating Roman Empire, had strong libertarian elements. Instead of a mighty state apparatus exerting a monopoly of violence, disputes were solved by contending tribesmen consulting the elders of the tribe on the nature and application of the tribe's customary and common law. The chief was generally merely a war leader, who was only called into his warrior role whenever war with other tribes was underway. There was no permanent war or military bureaucracy in the tribes. In Western Europe, as in many other civilizations, the typical model of the origin of the state was not via a voluntary social contract, but by the conquest of one tribe by another. The original liberty of the tribe or the peasantry thus falls victim to the conquerors. At first, the conquering tribe killed and looted the victims and rode on. But at some time, the conquerors decided that it would be more profitable to settle down among the conquered peasantry and rule and loot them on a permanent and systematic basis. The periodic tribute exacted from the conquered subjects eventually came to be called taxation and, with equal generality, the conquering chieftains parceled out the land of the peasantry to the various warlords, who were then able to settle down and collect feudal rent from the peasantry. The peasants were often enslaved, or rather, enserfed, to the land itself, to provide a continuing source of exploited labor for the feudal lords. We may note a few prominent instances of the birth of a modern state through conquest. One was the military conquest of the Indian peasantry in Latin America by the Spaniards. The conquering Spanish not only established a new state over the Indians, but the land of the peasantry was parceled out among the conquering warlords, who were ever after to collect rent from the tillers of the land. Another instance was the new political form imposed upon the Saxons of England after their conquest by the Normans in 1066. The land of England was parceled out among the Norman warrior lords, who thereby formed a state and feudal land apparatus of rule over the subject population. For the libertarian, the most interesting and perhaps the most poignant example of the creation of a state through conquest was the destruction of the libertarian society of ancient Ireland by England in the 17th century a conquest which established an imperial state and ejected numerous Irish from their cherished land. The Libertarian Society of Ireland, which lasted for a thousand years, and which will be described further below, was able to resist English conquest for hundreds of years because of the absence of a state which could be conquered easily, and then used by the conquerors to rule over the native population. But while throughout Western history, intellectuals have formulated theories designed to check and limit state power, each state has been able to use its own intellectuals to turn those ideas around into further legitimations of its own advance of power. Thus, originally in Western Europe, the concept of the divine right of kings was a doctrine promoted by the Church to limit state power. The idea was that the king could not just impose his arbitrary will, 
His edicts were limited to conforming with the divine law. As absolute monarchy advanced, however, the kings were able to turn the concept around to the idea that God put his stamp of approval on any of the king's actions, that he ruled by divine right. Similarly, the concept of parliamentary democracy began as a popular check on the absolute rule of the monarch. The king was limited by the power of parliament to grant him tax revenues. Gradually, however, as Parliament displaced the king as head of state, the Parliament itself became the unchecked state sovereign. In the early 19th century, English utilitarians, who advocated additional individual liberty in the name of social utility and the general welfare, were to see these concepts turned into sanctions for expanding the power of the state. As de Juvenel writes, Many writers on theories of sovereignty have worked out one or the other of these restrictive devices. But in the end, every single such theory has, sooner or later, lost its original purpose, and come to act merely as a springboard to power, by providing it with the powerful aid of an invisible sovereign with whom it could, in time, successfully identify itself. Certainly the most ambitious attempt in history to impose limits on the state was the Bill of Rights and other restrictive parts of the United States Constitution. Here, written limits on government became the fundamental law to be interpreted by a judiciary supposedly independent of the other branches of government. All Americans are familiar with the process by which John C. Calhoun's prophetic analysis has been vindicated. The state's own monopoly judiciary has inexorably broadened the construction of state power over the last century and a half. But few have been as keen as liberal professor Charles Black, who hails the process, in seeing that the state has been able to transform judicial review itself from a limiting device into a powerful instrument for gaining legitimacy for its actions in the minds of the public. If a judicial decree of unconstitutional is a mighty check on governmental power, so too a verdict of constitutional is an equally mighty weapon for fostering public acceptance of ever greater governmental power. Professor Black begins his analysis by pointing out the crucial necessity for legitimacy of any government in order to endure. That is, basic majority acceptance of the government and its actions. Acceptance of legitimacy, however, becomes a real problem in a country like the United States, where substantive limitations are built into the theory on which the government rests. What is needed, adds Black, is a method by which the government can assure the public that its expanding powers are indeed constitutional. And this, he concludes, has been the major historic function of judicial review. Let Black illustrate the problem. The supreme risk to the government is that of disaffection and a feeling of outrage widely disseminated throughout the population, and loss of moral authority by the government as such, however long it may be propped up by force or inertia or the lack of an appealing and immediately available alternative. 
Almost everybody living under a government of limited powers must sooner or later be subjected to some governmental action which, as a matter of private opinion, he regards as outside the power of government, or positively forbidden to government. A man is drafted, though he finds nothing in the Constitution about being drafted. A farmer is told how much wheat he can raise. He believes, and he discovers that some respectable lawyers believe with him that the government has no more right to tell him how much wheat he can grow than it has to tell his daughter whom she can marry. A man goes to the federal penitentiary for saying what he wants to, and paces his cell reciting, Congress shall make no laws abridging the freedom of speech. A businessman is told what he can ask, and must ask, for buttermilk. The danger is real enough that each of these people, and who is not of their number, will confront the concept of governmental limitation with the reality, as he sees it, of the flagrant overstepping of actual limits, and draw the obvious conclusion as to the status of his government with respect to legitimacy. This danger is averted, Black adds, by the states propounding the doctrine that some one agency must have the ultimate decision on constitutionality, and that this agency must be part of the federal government itself. For while the seeming independence of the federal judiciary has played a vital role in making its actions virtual holy writ for the bulk of the population, it is also true that the judiciary is part and parcel of the government apparatus, and is appointed by the executive and legislative branches. Professor Black concedes that the government has thereby set itself up as a judge in its own case, and has thus violated a basic juridical principle for arriving at any kind of just decision. But Black is remarkably light-hearted about this fundamental breach, the final power of the state must stop where the law stops it, and who shall set the limit, and who shall enforce the stopping against the mightiest power? Why, the state itself, of course, through its judges and its laws. Who controls the temperate? Who teaches the wise? And so Black admits that when we have a state, we hand over all our weapons and means of coercion to the state apparatus. We turn over all of our powers of ultimate decision-making to this deified group, and then we must jolly well sit back quietly and await the unending stream of justice that will pour forth from these institutions, even though they are basically judging their own case. Black sees no conceivable alternative to this coercive monopoly of judicial decisions enforced by the state. But here is precisely where our new movement challenges this conventional view and asserts that there is a viable alternative, libertarianism. Seeing no such alternative, Professor Black falls back on mysticism in his defense of the state. For in the final analysis, he finds the achievement of justice and legitimacy from the state's perpetual judging of its own cause to be something of a miracle, in this way, the liberal black joins the conservative Burnham in falling back on the miraculous, and thereby admitting that there is no satisfactory rational argument in support of the state. Applying his realistic view of the Supreme Court to the famous conflict between the court and the New Deal in the 1930s, 
Professor Black chides his liberal colleagues for their short-sightedness in denouncing judicial obstructionism. The standard version of the story of the New Deal and the Court, though accurate in its way, displaces the emphasis. It concentrates on the difficulties. It almost forgets how the whole thing turned out. The upshot of the matter was, and this is what I like to emphasize, that after some twenty-four months of balking, the Supreme Court, without a single change in the law of its composition, or indeed in its actual manning, placed the affirmative stamp of legitimacy on the New Deal, and on the whole new conception of government in America. In this way, the Supreme Court was able to put the quietest to the large body of Americans who had strong constitutional objections to the expanded powers of the New Deal. Of course, not everyone was satisfied. The Bonnie Prince Charlie of constitutionally commanded laissez-faire still stirs the hearts of a few zealots in the highlands of choleric unreality, but there is no longer any significant or dangerous public doubt as to the constitutional power of Congress to deal as it does with the national economy. We had no means, other than the Supreme Court, for imparting legitimacy to the New Deal. Thus, even in the United States, unique among governments in having a constitution, parts of which at least were meant to impose strict and solemn limits upon its actions, even here, the Constitution has proved to be an instrument for ratifying the expansion of state power rather than the opposite. As Calhoun saw, any written limits that leave it to government to interpret its own powers are bound to be interpreted as sanctions for expanding and not binding those powers. In a profound sense, the idea of binding down power with the chains of a written constitution has proved to be a noble experiment that failed. The idea of a strictly limited government has proved to be utopian. Some other, more radical means must be found to prevent the growth of the aggressive state. The libertarian system would meet this problem by scrapping the entire notion of creating a government an institution with a coercive monopoly of force over a given territory, and then hoping to find ways to keep that government from expanding. The libertarian alternative is to abstain from such a monopoly government to begin with. We will explore the entire notion of a stateless society, a society without formal government, in later chapters. But one instructive exercise is to try to abandon the habitual ways of seeing things, and to consider the argument for the state de novo. Let us try to transcend the fact that for as long as we can remember the state has monopolized police and judicial services in society. Suppose that we were all starting completely from scratch, and that millions of us had been dropped down upon the earth, fully grown and developed, from some other planet. Debate begins as to how protection, police, and judicial services will be provided. Someone says, let's all give all of our weapons to Joe Jones over there and to his relatives, and let Jones and his family decide all disputes among us. In that way, the Joneses will be able to protect all of us from any aggression or fraud that anyone else may commit. 
With all the power and all the ability to make ultimate decisions on disputes in the hands of Jones, we will all be protected from one another. And then let us allow the Joneses to obtain their income from this great service by using their weapons, and by exacting as much revenue by coercion as they shall desire. Surely in that sort of situation no one would treat this proposal with anything but ridicule for it would be starkly evident that there would be no way in that case for any of us to protect ourselves from the aggressions or the depredations of the Joneses themselves. No one would then have the total folly to respond to that long-standing and most perceptive query, Who shall guard the guardians? by answering with Professor Black's blithe, Who controls the temperate? It is only because we have become accustomed over thousands of years to the existence of the state that we now give precisely this kind of absurd answer to the problem of social protection and defense. And, of course, the state never really did begin with this sort of social contract. As Oppenheimer pointed out, the state generally began in violence and conquest, Even if, at times, internal processes gave rise to the state, it was certainly never by general consensus or contract. The libertarian creed can now be summed up as, one, the absolute right of every man to the ownership of his own body, two, the equally absolute right to own and therefore to control the material resources he has found and transformed, and three, Therefore, the absolute right to exchange or give away the ownership to such titles to whoever is willing to exchange or receive them. As we have seen, each of these steps involves property rights. But even if we call step one personal rights, we shall see that problems about personal liberty inextricably involve the rights of material property or free exchange or, briefly, the rights of personal liberty and freedom of enterprise almost invariably intertwine and cannot really be separated. We have seen that the exercise of personal freedom of speech, for example, almost invariably involves the exercise of economic freedom, that is, freedom to own and exchange material property. The holding of a meeting to exercise freedom of speech involves the hiring of a hall, traveling to the hall over roads, and using some form of transportation, etc. The closely related freedom of the press even more evidently involves the cost of printing and of using a press, the sale of leaflets to willing buyers, in short, all the ingredients of economic freedom. Furthermore, our example of shouting fire in a crowded theater provides us with the clear guideline for deciding whose rights must be defended in any given situation, the guidelines being provided by our criterion, the rights of property. Part 2. Libertarian Applications to Current Problems Chapter 4. The Problems Let us take a brief look at the major problem areas of our society and see if we can detect any red thread that runs through all of them. High Taxes High and rising taxes have crippled almost everyone and are hampering productivity, incentives, and thrift, as well as the free energies of the people. 
On the federal level, there is a rising rebellion against the burden of income taxes, and there is a flourishing tax rebel movement with its own organizations and magazines, which refuses to pay a tax which it regards as predatory and unconstitutional. On the state and local levels, there is a rising tide of sentiment against oppressive property taxes. Thus, a record 1.2 million California voters signed the petition for the Jarvis-Gann initiative on the 1978 ballot, a proposal which would drastically and permanently lower property taxes by two-thirds to one percent and place ceilings upon the assessed value of the property. Furthermore, the Jarvis-Gann initiative enforces the freeze by requiring the approval of two-thirds of all registered voters in the state of California to raise property taxes beyond the 1% ceiling, and to make sure that the state doesn't simply substitute some other tax, the initiative also requires a two-thirds vote by the state legislature to increase any other tax in the state. Furthermore, in the fall of 1977, scores of thousands of homeowners in Cook County, Illinois, engaged in a tax strike against the property tax, which had increased dramatically due to higher assessments. It need hardly be emphasized that taxation, of income, property, or whatever, is the exclusive monopoly of government. No other individual or organization enjoys the privilege of taxation of acquiring its income by coercion. Urban Fiscal Crisis Throughout the nation, states and localities are having difficulty paying interest and principal due on their swollen public debt. New York City has already pioneered in a partial default on its contractual obligations. The urban fiscal crisis is simply a matter of urban governments spending too much more even than the high taxes they extract from us. Again, how much urban or state governments spend is up to them. Once again, government is to blame. Vietnam and Other Foreign Interventions The war in Vietnam was a total disaster for American foreign policy. After countless people were murdered and the land devastated, and at an enormous cost in resources, the American-supported government finally collapsed in early 1975. The disaster of the Vietnam War has properly called the rest of America's interventionist foreign policy into severe question, and was partly responsible for Congress's putting a break on U.S. military intervention in the Angolan fiasco. Foreign policy, of course, is also an exclusive monopoly of the federal government. The war was waged by our armed forces, which, again, are a compulsory monopoly of the same federal government. So the government is wholly responsible for the entire war and foreign policy problem, as a whole and in all of its aspects. Crime in the Streets Consider, the crime in question is being committed, by definition, on the streets. The streets are owned almost universally by government, which thereby has a virtual monopoly of street ownership. The police, who are supposed to guard us against this crime, are a compulsory monopoly of the government. And the courts, which are in the business of convicting and punishing criminals, are also a coercive monopoly of the government. 
So government has been in charge of every single aspect of the crime in the streets problem. The failure here, just as the failure in Vietnam, must be chalked up solely to government. Traffic congestion. Once again, this occurs solely on government-owned streets and roads. The military-industrial complex. This complex is entirely a creature of the federal government. It is the government that decides to spend countless billions on overkill weaponry. It is the government that hands out contracts, the government that subsidizes inefficiency through cost-plus guarantees, the government that builds plants and leases or gives them outright to contractors. Of course, the businesses involved lobby for these privileges. But it is only through government that the mechanism for this privilege and this wasteful misallocation of resources can possibly exist. Transportation The crisis of transportation involves not only congested streets, but also decaying railroads, overpriced airlines, airport congestion at peak hours, and subways for example, New York City, that are suffering deficits and visibly heading toward collapse. Yet, the railroads were overbuilt from extensive government subsidies, federal, state, and local, during the 19th century, and have been the most heavily regulated industry for the longest period of time in American history. Airlines are cartelized through regulation by the Civil Aeronautics Board and subsidized through such regulation, mail contracts, and virtually free airports. Airports for commercial lines are all owned by branches of the government, largely local. The New York City subways have been government-owned for decades. River Pollution The rivers are, in effect, unowned. That is, they have been kept as public domain, owned by government. Furthermore, by far the biggest culprits in water pollution are the municipally owned sewage disposal systems. Again, government is at the same time the largest polluter as well as the careless owner of the resource. Water Shortages Water shortages are chronic in some areas of the country and intermittent in others, such as New York City. Yet the government, one, via its ownership of the public domain, owns the rivers from which much of the water comes, and two, as virtually the only commercial supplier of water, the government owns the reservoirs and water conduits. Air Pollution Again, the government, as owner of the public domain, owns the air. Furthermore, it has been the courts, owned solely by the government, which, as an act of deliberate policy, have for generations failed to protect our property rights in our bodies and orchards from the pollution generated by industry. Moreover, much of the direct pollution comes from government-owned plants. Power Shortages and Blackouts Throughout the land, state and local governments have created compulsory monopolies of gas and electric power and have granted these monopoly privileges to private utility companies, which are then regulated and have their rates set by government agencies to ensure a permanent and fixed profit. Again, government has been the source of the monopoly and the regulation. Telephone Service 
Increasingly failing telephone service comes, again, from a utility which receives a compulsory monopoly privilege from government, and which finds its rates set by government to guarantee a profit. As in the case of gas and electricity, no one is allowed to compete with the monopoly phone company. Postal Service Suffering from heavy deficits throughout its existence, the Postal Service, in stark contrast to the goods and services produced by private industry on the free market, has become steadily higher in price and lower in quality. The mass of the public, using first-class mail, has been forced to subsidize businesses using second- and third-class services. Again, the post office has been, since the late 19th century, a compulsory monopoly of government. Whenever private firms have been allowed to compete, even illegally, in delivery of mail, they have invariably provided better service at a lower price. Television Television consists of bland programs and distorted news. Radio and television channels have been nationalized for half a century by the federal government, which grants channels as a gift to privileged licensees, and can and does withdraw these gifts when a station displeases the government's Federal Communications Commission. How can any genuine freedom of speech or of the press exist under such conditions? Welfare System Welfare, of course, is exclusively the province of government, largely state and local. Urban Housing Along with traffic, one of our most conspicuous urban failures. Yet there are few other industries that have been so closely intertwined with government. Urban planning has controlled and regulated the cities. Zoning laws have ringed housing and land use with innumerable restrictions. Property taxes have crippled urban development and forced abandonment of houses. Building codes have restricted housing construction and made it more costly. Urban renewal has provided massive subsidies to real estate developers, forced the bulldozing of apartments and rental stores, lowered the supply of housing, and intensified racial discrimination. Extensive government loans have generated overbuilding in the suburbs. Rent controls have created apartment shortages and reduced the supply of residential housing. Union Strikes and Restrictions Unions have become a nuisance with power to cripple the economy, but only as a result of numerous special privileges afforded by the government, especially various immunities accorded unions, particularly the Wagner Act of 1935, still in effect which compels employers to bargain with unions which gain a majority vote of a bargaining unit arbitrarily defined by the government itself. Education Once as revered and sacrosanct in American opinion as motherhood or the flag, the public school in recent years has come under widespread attack from all parts of the political spectrum, even its supporters would not presume to maintain that the public schools actually teach much of anything, and we have recently seen extreme cases in which the actions of the public schools have motivated a violent reaction in such widely different areas as South Boston and Kanawha County, West Virginia. 
The public schools, of course, are totally owned and operated by state and local government, with considerable assist and coordination from the federal level. The public schools are backed up by compulsory attendance laws, which force all children through high school age to attend school, either public or private schools certified by governmental authorities. Higher education, too, has become closely intertwined with government in recent decades. Many universities are government-owned, and the others are systematic receivers of grants, subsidies, and contracts. Inflation and Stagflation The United States, as well as the rest of the world, has been suffering for many years from chronic and accelerating inflation, an inflation accompanied by high unemployment and persisting through severe as well as mild recessions. Stagflation an explanation of these unwelcome phenomena will be presented below. Here let it be said that the root cause is in a continuing expansion of the money supply, a compulsory monopoly of the federal government. Anyone who presumes to compete with the government's issuing of money goes to jail for counterfeiting. A vital part of the nation's money supply is issued as checkbook money by the banking system which in turn is under total control by the federal government and its Federal Reserve System. Watergate Finally, and not least, is the entire traumatic syndrome suffered by Americans known as Watergate. What Watergate has meant is a total desanctifying of the president and of such previously sacrosanct federal institutions as the CIA and the FBI. The invasions of property, the police state methods, the deception of the public, the corruption, the manifold and systemic commissions of crime by a once virtually all-powerful president, led to a once unthinkable impeachment of a president, and of a widespread and well-justified lack of trust in all politicians and all government officials. The establishment has often bemoaned this new pervasive lack of trust, but has not been able to restore the naive public faith of pre-Watergate days. The liberal historian Cecilia Kenyon once chastised the anti-federalists, the defenders of the Articles of Confederation and opponents of the Constitution, as being men of little faith in the institutions of government. One suspects that she would not be quite so naive if she were writing that article in the post-Watergate era. Watergate, of course, is purely and totally a governmental phenomenon. The president is the chief executive of the federal government. The plumbers were his instrument, and the FBI and the CIA are governmental agencies as well. And it is, quite understandably, faith and trust in government that was shattered by Watergate. If we look around, then, at the crucial problem areas of our society, the areas of crisis and failure, we find in each and every case a red thread marking and uniting them all, the thread of government. In every one of these cases, government either has totally run or heavily influenced the activity. John Kenneth Galbraith, in his best-selling The Affluent Society, recognized that the government sector was the focus of our social failure, but drew instead the odd lesson that therefore still more funds and resources must be diverted from the private to the public sector. 
He thereby ignored the fact that the role of government in America, federal, state, and local, has expanded enormously, both absolutely and proportionately in this century, and especially in recent decades. Unfortunately, Galbraith never once raised the question, is there something inherent in government operation and activity, something which creates the very failures which we see abounding? We shall investigate some of the major problems of government and of liberty in this country, see where the failures come from, and propound the solutions of the new libertarianism. Chapter 5 Involuntary Servitude If there is anything a libertarian must be squarely and totally against, it is involuntary servitude, forced labor, an act which denies the most elemental right of self-ownership. Liberty and slavery have ever been recognized to be polar opposites. The libertarian, therefore, is totally opposed to slavery. There is one exception the punishment of criminals who had themselves aggressed against or enslaved their victims. Such punishment in a libertarian system would at least involve forcing the criminal to work in order to pay restitution to his victim. An academic question nowadays, one might object. But is it really? For what is slavery but a. forcing people to work at tasks the slave-master wishes, and b paying them either pure subsistence, or, at any rate, less than the slave would have accepted voluntarily. In short, forced labor at below free market wages. Thus, are we really free of slavery, of involuntary servitude in present-day America? Is the prohibition against involuntary servitude of the Thirteenth Amendment really being obeyed? Significantly, the Thirteenth Amendment's only exception is the punishment of convicted criminals, mentioned previously. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Conscription Surely, for one example, there can be no more blatant case of involuntary servitude than our entire system of conscription. Every youth is forced to register with the selective service system when he turns 18. He is compelled to carry his draft card at all times, and at whatever time the federal government deems fit, he is seized by the authorities and inducted into the armed forces. There, his body and will are no longer his own. He is subject to the dictates of the government, and he can be forced to kill and to place his own life in jeopardy if the authorities so decree. What else is involuntary servitude, if not the draft? The utilitarian aspect permeates the argument for the conscription system. Thus, the government uses the argument, who will defend us against foreign attack if we do not employ coercion and conscript our defenders? There are several rebuttals for a libertarian to make to this line of reasoning. In the first place, if you and I and our next-door neighbor think that we need defending, we have no moral right to use coercion, the bayonet or the revolver, to force someone else to defend us. 
This act of conscripting is just as much a deed of unjustifiable aggression, of kidnapping and possibly murder, as the alleged aggression we are trying to guard ourselves against in the first place. If we add that the draftees owe their bodies and their lives, if necessary, to society or to their country, then we must retort, who is this society or this country that is being used as a talisman to justify enslavement? It is simply all individuals in the territorial area except the youths being conscripted. Society and country are in this case mythical abstractions that are being used to cloak the naked use of coercion to promote the interests of specific individuals. Secondly, to move to the utilitarian plane, why is it considered necessary to conscript defenders? No one is conscripted on the free market. Yet on that market, people obtain, through voluntary purchase and sale, every conceivable manner of goods and services, even the most necessary ones. On the market, people can and do obtain food, shelter, clothing, medical care, etc. Why can't they hire defenders as well? Indeed, there are plenty of people being hired every day to perform dangerous services. Forest firefighters, rangers, test pilots, and police and private guards and watchmen. Why can't soldiers be hired in the same way? Or, to put it another way, the government employs countless thousands of people for all sorts of services, from truck drivers to scientists to typists. How is it that none of these people have to be conscripted? Why is there no shortage of these occupations to supposedly force the government to resort to compulsion to obtain them? To go a step further, even within the army there is no shortage of officers and no need to draft them. No one conscripts generals or admirals. The answer to these questions is simple. There is no shortage of government typists because the government goes out on the market and hires them at the market wage. There is no shortage of generals because they are paid handsomely in salaries, perquisites, and pensions. There is a shortage of buck privates because their pay is, or was until very recently, abysmally below the market wage. For years, even including the monetary value of the free food, shelter, and other services supplied the GIs, the earnings of the buck private were something like one-half the salary he could have earned in civilian life. Is it any wonder that there has been a chronic shortage of enlistees? For years it has been known that the way to induce people to volunteer for hazardous jobs is to pay them extra as compensation. But the government has been paying the men half of what they could earn in private life. There is also the special disgrace of the doctor's draft, in which physicians are subject to the draft at ages far beyond anyone else. Are doctors then to be penalized for their entry into the profession of medicine? What is the moral justification for onerous burdens placed on this particular and vitally important profession? Is this the way to cure the shortage of doctors? to put every man on notice that if he becomes a physician, he will be sure to be drafted, and at a specially late age? Once again, the armed forces' need for doctors could easily be satisfied if the government were willing to pay physicians the market salary, 
plus enough to compensate them for the hazardous labor. If the government wishes to hire nuclear physicists or think tank strategists, it finds ways of doing so at extremely handsome salaries. Are doctors lower forms of humanity? The Army While conscription into the armed forces is a blatant and aggravated form of involuntary servitude, there is another far more subtle and therefore less detectable form, the structure of the army itself. Consider this. In what other occupation in the country are there severe penalties, including prison and in some cases execution, for desertion, that is, for quitting the particular employment? If someone quits General Motors, is he shot at sunrise? It might be objected that in the case of enlistees, the soldier or officer has voluntarily agreed to serve for a certain term, and he is therefore obligated to continue in service for that term of years. But the whole concept of term of service is part of the problem. Suppose, for example, that an engineer signs a contract with Aramco to serve for three years in Saudi Arabia. After a few months, he decides that the life is not for him, and he quits. This may well be a moral default on his part, a breach of moral obligation. But is it a legally enforceable obligation? In short, can he or should he be forced by the monopoly of weaponry of government to keep working for the remainder of his term? If so, that would be forced labor and enslavement. For while it is true that he made a promise of future work, his body continues, in a free society, to be owned by himself alone. In practice and in libertarian theory as well, then, the engineer might be morally criticized for the breach. He might be blacklisted by other oil firms. He may be forced to return any advance pay tendered to him by the company but he will not be enslaved to Aramco for the three-year period. But if this is true of Aramco, or of any other occupation or job in private life, why should it be different in the army? If a man signs up for seven years and then quits, he should be allowed to leave. He will lose pension rights, he will be morally criticized, he may be blacklisted from similar occupations, but he cannot, as a self-owner, be enslaved against his will. It may be protested that the armed forces is a peculiarly important occupation that needs this sort of coercive sanction that other jobs do not have. Setting aside the importance of such occupations as medicine, agriculture, and transportation that need not resort to such methods, let us consider a comparable defense occupation in civilian life, the police. Surely the police perform an equally and perhaps more vital service. And yet every year people join the police and quit the force, and there is no coercive attempt to bind their labor through years of enlistment. In addition to demanding the end of conscription, then, the libertarian also proposes to do away with the entire concept of a term of enlistment and the practice of slavery this implies. Let the armed forces operate in ways similar to police, firemen, rangers, private guards, etc., free of the blight and the moral crime of involuntary servitude. But there is more to be said about the army as an institution, even if it were made completely voluntary.
Americans have almost totally forgotten one of the noblest and strongest elements in the original American heritage, determined opposition to the entire institution of a standing army. A government that has a permanent standing army at its disposal will always be tempted to use it, and to use it in an aggressive, interventionist, and warlike manner. While foreign policy will be dealt with below, it is clear that a permanent army is a standing temptation to the state to enlarge its power, to push around other people as well as other countries, and to dominate the internal life of the nation. The original aim of the Jeffersonian movement, a largely libertarian factor in American political life, was to abolish the standing army and navy altogether. The original American principle was that if the nation was attacked, then the citizens would hasten to join to repel the invader. A standing armed force, then, could only lead to trouble and to the aggrandizement of state power. In the course of his trenchant and prophetic attack on the proposed Constitution in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Patrick Henry warned of a standing army. Congress, by the power of taxation, by that of raising an army, and by their control over the militia, have the sword in one hand and the purse in the other. Shall we be safe without either? Any standing army, then, poses a standing threat to liberty. Its monopoly of coercive weapons, its modern tendency toward creating and supporting a military-industrial complex to supply that army, and, last but not least, as Patrick Henry notes, the taxing power to finance that army, pose a continuing threat of the army's perpetual expansion in size and power. Any tax-supported institution, of course, is opposed by the libertarian as coercive. But an army is uniquely menacing for its amassing and collecting into one set of hands the massive power of modern weaponry. Anti-Strike Laws On October 4, 1971, President Nixon invoked the Taft-Hartley Act to obtain a court injunction forcing the suspension of a dock strike for 80 days. This was the ninth time the federal government had used the act in a dock strike. Months earlier, the head of the New York City Teachers Union went to jail for several days for defying a law prohibiting public employees from striking. It is no doubt convenient for a long-suffering public to be spared the disruptions of a strike. Yet the solution imposed was forced labor, pure and simple. The workers were coerced against their will into going back to work. There is no moral excuse in a society claiming to be opposed to slavery and in a country which has outlawed involuntary servitude for any legal or judicial action prohibiting strikes or jailing union leaders who fail to comply. Slavery is all too often more convenient for the slave masters. It is true that the strike is a peculiar form of work stoppage. The strikers do not merely quit their jobs. They also assert that somehow, in some metaphysical sense, they still own their jobs and are entitled to them and intend to return to them when the issues are resolved. But the remedy for this self-contradictory policy 
as well as for the disruptive power of labor unions, is not to pass laws outlawing strikes. The remedy is to remove the substantial body of law, federal, state, and local, that confers special governmental privileges on labor unions. All that is needed, both for libertarian principle and for a healthy economy, is to remove and abolish these special privileges. These privileges have been enshrined in federal law, especially in the Wagner-Taft-Hartley Act, passed originally in 1935, and the Norris-LaGuardia Act of 1931. The latter prohibits the courts from issuing injunctions in cases of imminent union violence. The former compels employers to bargain in good faith with any union that wins the votes of the majority of a work unit, arbitrarily defined by the federal government, and also prohibits employers from discriminating against union organizers. It was only after the Wagner Act and its predecessor, the NIRA, in 1933, that labor unions were able to become a powerful force in American life. It was then that unions skyrocketed from something like 5% to over 20% of the labor force. Furthermore, local and state laws often protect unions from being sued, and they place restrictions on the employer's hiring of strike-breaking labor. And police are often instructed not to interfere in the use of violence against strike-breakers by union pickets. Take away these special privileges and immunities, and labor unions would sink back to their previous negligible role in the American economy. It is characteristic of our statist trend that when general indignation against unions led to the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, the government did not repeal any of these special privileges. Instead, it added special restrictions upon unions to limit the power which the government itself had created. Given a choice, the natural tendency of the state is to add to its power, not to cut it down. And so we have the peculiar situation of the government first building up unions and then howling for restrictions against their power. This is reminiscent of the American farm programs, in which one branch of the Department of Agriculture pays farmers to restrict their production, while another branch of the same agency pays them to increase their productivity. Irrational, surely, from the point of view of the consumers and the taxpayers, but perfectly rational from the point of view of the subsidized farmers and of the growing power of the bureaucracy. Similarly, the government's seemingly contradictory policy on unions serves first to aggrandize the power of government over labor relations, and second, to foster a suitably integrated and establishment-minded unionism as junior partner in government's role over the economy. The Tax System In a sense, the entire system of taxation is a form of involuntary servitude. Take in particular the income tax. The high levels of income tax mean that all of us work a large part of the year, several months, for nothing, for Uncle Sam, before being allowed to enjoy our incomes on the market. Part of the essence of slavery, after all, is forced work for someone at little or no pay. 
But the income tax means that we sweat and earn income only to see the government extract a large chunk of it by coercion for its own purposes. What is this but forced labor at no pay? The withholding feature of the income tax is a still more clear-cut instance of involuntary servitude. For, as the intrepid Connecticut industrialist Vivian Kellams argued years ago, the employer is forced to expend time, labor, and money in the business of deducting and transmitting his employees' taxes to the federal and state governments. Yet the employer is not recompensed for this expenditure. What moral principle justifies the government's forcing employers to act as its unpaid tax collectors? The withholding principle, of course, is the linchpin of the whole federal income tax system. Without the steady and relatively painless process of deducting the tax from the worker's paycheck, the government could never hope to raise the high levels of tax from the workers in one lump sum. Few people remember that the withholding system was only instituted during World War II and was supposed to be a wartime expedient. Like so many other features of state despotism, however, the wartime emergency measure soon became a hallowed part of the American system. It is perhaps significant that the federal government, challenged by Vivian Kellams to test the constitutionality of the withholding system, failed to take up the challenge. In February 1948, Miss Kellams, a small manufacturer in Westport, Connecticut, announced that she was defying the withholding law and was refusing to deduct the tax from her employees. She demanded that the federal government indict her so that the courts would be able to rule on the constitutionality of the withholding system. The government refused to do so, but instead seized the amount due from her bank account. Miss Cullums then sued in federal court for the government to return her funds. When the suit finally came to trial in February 1951, the jury ordered the government to refund her money. But the test of constitutionality never came. To add insult to injury, the individual taxpayer, in filling out his tax form, is also forced by the government to work at no pay on the laborious and thankless task of reckoning how much he owes the government. Here again, he cannot charge the government for the cost and labor expended in making out his return. Furthermore, the law requiring everyone to fill out his tax form is a clear violation of the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, prohibiting the government from forcing anyone to incriminate himself. Yet the courts often zealous in protecting Fifth Amendment rights in less sensitive areas, have done nothing here. In a case where the entire existence of the swollen federal government structure is at stake, the repeal of either the income tax or the withholding or self-incriminating provisions would force the government back to the relatively minor levels of power that the country enjoyed before the 20th century. Retail sales, excise, and admission taxes also compel unpaid labor, in these cases, the unpaid labor of the retailer in collecting and forwarding the taxes to the government. The high costs of tax collecting for the government have another unfortunate effect, perhaps not unintended by the powers that be. 
These costs, readily undertaken by large businesses, impose a disproportionately heavy and often crippling cost upon the small employer. The large employer can then cheerfully shoulder the cost, knowing that his small competitor bears far more of the burden. The Courts Compulsory labor permeates our legal and judicial structure. Thus, much venerated judicial procedure rests upon coerced testimony. Since it is axiomatic to libertarianism that all coercion, in this case all coerced labor, against everyone except convicted criminals be eliminated, this means that compulsory testimony must be abolished as well. In recent years, it is true, the courts have been alive to the Fifth Amendment protection that no alleged criminal be forced to testify against himself, to provide the material for his own conviction. The legislatures have been significantly weakening this protection by passing immunity laws, offering immunity from prosecution if someone will testify against his fellows, and, furthermore, compelling the witness to accept the offer and testify against his associates. But compelling testimony from anyone for any reason is forced labor, and furthermore is akin to kidnapping, since the person is forced to appear at the hearing or trial and is then forced to perform the labor of giving testimony. The problem is not only the recent immunity laws. The problem is to eliminate all coerced testimony, including the universal subpoenaing of witnesses to a crime, and then forcing them to testify. In the case of witnesses, there is no question whatever of their being guilty of a crime, so the use of compulsion against them, a use that no one has questioned until now, has even less justification than compelling testimony from accused criminals. In fact, the entire power to subpoena should be abolished, because the subpoena power compels attendance at a trial. Even the accused criminal or tortfeasor should not be forced to attend his own trial, since he has not yet been convicted. If he is indeed, according to the excellent and libertarian principle of Anglo-Saxon law, innocent until proved guilty, then the courts have no right to compel the defendant to attend his trial. For remember, the only exemption to the Thirteenth Amendment's prohibition of involuntary servitude is except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. An accused party has not yet been convicted. The most the court should be able to do then is to notify the defendant that he is going to be tried and invite him or his lawyer to attend. Otherwise, if they choose not to, the trial will proceed in absentia. Then, of course, the defendant will not enjoy the best presentation of his case. Both the Thirteenth Amendment and the Libertarian Creed make the exception for the convicted criminal. The Libertarian believes that a criminal loses his rights to the extent that he has aggressed upon the rights of another and therefore that it is permissible to incarcerate the convicted criminal and subject him to involuntary servitude to that degree. In the libertarian world, however, the purpose of imprisonment and punishment will undoubtedly be different. There will be no district attorney who presumes to try a case on behalf of a non-existent society 
and then punishes the criminal on society's behalf. In that world, the prosecutor will always represent the individual victim, and punishment will be exacted to redound to the benefit of that victim. Thus a crucial focus of punishment will be to force the criminal to repay, make restitution to, the victim. One such model was a practice in colonial America. Instead of incarcerating, say, a man who had robbed a farmer in the district, the criminal was coercively indentured out to the farmer, in effect enslaved for a term, there to work for the farmer until his debt was repaid. Indeed, during the Middle Ages, restitution to the victim was the dominant concept of punishment. Only as the state grew more powerful did the governmental authorities, the kings and the barons, encroach more and more into the compensation process, increasingly confiscating more of the criminal's property for themselves and neglecting the hapless victim. And as the emphasis shifted from restitution to punishment for abstract crimes committed against the state, the punishments exacted by the state upon the wrongdoer became more severe. As Professor Schaefer writes, as the state monopolized the institution of punishment, so the rights of the injured were slowly separated from penal law. Or, in the words of the turn-of-the-century criminologist William Tallack, it was chiefly owing to the violent greed of feudal barons and medieval ecclesiastical powers that the rights of the injured party were gradually infringed upon, and finally, to a large extent, appropriated by these authorities, who exacted a double vengeance, indeed upon the offender, by forfeiting his property to themselves instead of to his victim, and then punishing him by the dungeon, the torture, the stake, or the gibbet. But the original victim of wrong was practically ignored. At any rate, while the libertarian does not object to prisons per se, he does balk at several practices common to the present judicial and penal system. One is the lengthy jail term imposed upon the defendant while awaiting trial. The constitutional right to a speedy trial is not arbitrary but a way of minimizing the length of involuntary servitude before conviction for a crime. In fact, except in those cases where the criminal has been caught red-handed and where a certain presumption of guilt therefore exists, it is impossible to justify any imprisonment before conviction, let alone before trial. And even when someone is caught red-handed, there is an important reform that needs to be instituted to keep the system honest, subjecting the police and the other authorities to the same law as everyone else. As will be discussed further below, if everyone is supposed to be subject to the same criminal law, then exempting the authorities from that law gives them a legal license to commit continual aggression. The policeman who apprehends a criminal and arrests him, and the judicial and penal authorities who incarcerate him before trial and conviction, all should be subject to the universal law. In short, if they have committed an error and the defendant turns out to be innocent, then these authorities should be subjected to the same penalties as anyone else who kidnaps and incarcerates an innocent man. Immunity in pursuit of their trade should no more serve as an excuse than Lieutenant Calley was excused 
for committing atrocities at My Lai in the course of the Vietnam War. The granting of bail is a half-hearted attempt to ease the problem of incarceration before trial, but it is clear that the practice of bail discriminates against the poor. The discrimination persists even though the rise of the business of bail bonding has permitted many more people to raise bail. The rebuttal that the courts are clogged with cases and therefore cannot grant a speedy trial is, of course, no defense of the system. On the contrary, this built-in inefficiency is an excellent argument for the abolition of government courts. Furthermore, the setting of bail is arbitrarily in the hands of the judge, who has excessive and little-checked power to incarcerate people before they are convicted. This is particularly menacing in the case of citations for contempt of court, because judges have almost unlimited power to slap someone into prison after the judge himself has acted as a one-man prosecutor, judge, and jury in accusing, convicting, and sentencing the culprit, completely free from the ordinary rules of evidence and trial, and in violation of the fundamental legal principle of not being a judge in one's own case. Finally, there is another cornerstone of the judicial system, which has unaccountably gone unchallenged even by libertarians for far too long. This is compulsory jury service. There is little difference in kind, though obviously a great difference in degree, between compulsory jury duty and conscription. Both are enslavement. Both compel the individual to perform tasks on the state's behalf and at the state's bidding and both are a function of pay at slave wages. Just as the shortage of voluntary enlistees in the army is a function of a pay scale far below the market wage, so the abysmally low pay for jury service ensures that even if jury enlistments were possible, not many would be forthcoming. Furthermore, not only are jurors coerced into attending and serving on juries, but sometimes they are locked behind closed doors for many weeks and prohibited from reading newspapers. What is this but prison and involuntary servitude for non-criminals? It will be objected that jury service is a highly important civic function and ensures a fair trial which a defendant may not obtain from the judge, especially since the judge is part of the state system and therefore liable to be partial to the prosecutor's case. Very true. But precisely because the service is so vital, it is particularly important that it be performed by people who do it gladly and voluntarily. Have we forgotten that free labor is happier and more efficient than slave labor? The abolition of jury slavery should be a vital plank in any libertarian platform. The judges are not conscripted, neither are the opposing lawyers, and neither should the jurors. It is perhaps not a coincidence that throughout the United States, lawyers are everywhere exempt from jury service. Since it is almost always lawyers who write the laws, can we detect class legislation and class privilege at work? Compulsory Commitment one of the most shameful areas of involuntary servitude in our society is the widespread practice of compulsory commitment or involuntary hospitalization of mental patients. 
In former generations, this incarceration of non-criminals was frankly carried out as a measure against mental patients to remove them from society. The practice of 20th century liberalism has been superficially more humane, but actually far more insidious. Now physicians and psychiatrists help incarcerate these unfortunates for their own good. The humanitarian rhetoric has permitted a far more widespread use of the practice, and for one thing, has allowed disgruntled relatives to put away their loved ones without suffering a guilty conscience. In the last decade, the libertarian psychiatrist and psychoanalyst Dr. Thomas S. Zaz has carried on a one-man crusade, at first seemingly hopeless, but now increasingly influential in the psychiatric field, against compulsory commitment. In numerous books and articles, Dr. Zaz has delivered a comprehensive and systematic attack on this practice. He has insisted, for example, that involuntary commitment is a profound violation of medical ethics. Instead of serving the patient, the physician here serves others, the family, the state, to act against and tyrannize over completely the person he is supposed to be helping. Compulsory commitment and compulsory therapy, moreover, are far more likely to aggravate and perpetuate mental illness than to cure it. All too often, Zaz points out, commitment is a device for incarcerating and thereby disposing of disagreeable relatives, rather than a genuine aid to the patient. The guiding rationale for compulsory commitment is that the patient might well be dangerous to himself or to others. The first grave flaw in this approach is that the police, or the law, in stepping in not when an overt aggressive act is in the process of occurring, but on someone's judgment that such an act might someday take place. But this provides an open sesame for unlimited tyranny. Anyone might be a judge to be capable of or likely to commit a crime someday, and therefore on such grounds anyone may legitimately be locked up, not for a crime, but because someone thinks he might commit one. This sort of thinking justifies not only incarceration, but permanent incarceration of anyone under suspicion. But the fundamental libertarian creed holds that every individual is capable of free will and free choice, that no one, however likely to commit a crime in the future based on a statistical or any other judgment, is inevitably determined to do so, and that, in any case, it is immoral and itself invasive and criminal to coerce anyone who is not an overt and present rather than a suspected criminal. Recently, Dr. Zaz was asked, But don't you think that society has the right and the duty to care for those individuals adjudged to be dangerous to themselves and others? Zaz cogently replied, I think the idea of helping people by imprisoning them and doing terrible things to them is a religious concept, as the idea of saving witches by torture and burning once was. As far as dangerousness to self is concerned, I believe, as did John Stuart Mill, that a man's body and soul are his own, not the state's. And furthermore, that each individual has the right, if you will, to do with his body as he pleases, so long as he doesn't harm anyone else or infringe on someone else's right. 
As far as dangerousness to others goes, most psychiatrists working with hospitalized patients would admit this is pure fantasy. There have, in fact, been statistical studies made which show that mental patients are much more law-abiding than the normal population. And civil liberties lawyer Bruce Ennis adds that, We know that 85% of all ex-convicts will commit more crimes in the future, and that ghetto residents and teenage males are far more likely to commit crime than the average member of the population. We also know from recent studies that mental patients are statistically less dangerous than the average guy. So if what we're really worried about is danger, why don't we first lock up all former convicts, and then lock up all ghetto residents, and then why don't we lock up all teenage males? The question Zaz has been asking is, if a person hasn't broken a law, what right has society to lock him up? The involuntarily committed may be divided into two classes, those who have committed no crime and those who have. For the former, the libertarian calls unconditionally for their release. But what of the latter? What of criminals who, through insanity or other pleas, supposedly escape the brutality of prison punishment and instead receive medical care at the hands of the state? Here again, Dr. Zaz has pioneered in a vigorous and devastating critique of the despotism of liberal humanitarianism. First, it is grotesque to claim that incarceration in a state mental hospital is somehow more humane than equivalent incarceration in prison. On the contrary, the despotism of the authorities is likely to be more severe, and the prisoner is likely to have far less recourse in defense of his rights. For as someone certified as mentally ill, he is placed into the category of a non-person, whom no one feels obliged to take seriously any longer. As Dr. Zaz has jocularly said, being in a state mental hospital would drive anyone crazy. But furthermore, we must question the entire notion of taking anyone out from under the rule of objective law. To do so is far more likely to be damaging than helpful to the people thus singled out. Suppose, for example, that two men, A and B, commit an equivalent robbery, and that the usual punishment for this crime is five years in prison. Suppose that B gets off this punishment by being declared mentally ill and is transferred to a state mental institution. The liberal focuses on the possibility, say, that B may be released in two years by the state psychiatrist through being adjudged cured or rehabilitated. But what if the psychiatrist never considers him cured, or does so only after a very long time? Then B, for the simple crime of theft, may face the horror of lifelong incarceration in a mental institution. Hence, the liberal concept of indeterminate sentence, of sentencing someone not for his objective crime, but on the state's judgment of his psyche or spirit of cooperation, constitutes tyranny and dehumanization in its worst form. It is a tyranny, furthermore, which encourages the prisoner into deceptive behavior to try to fool the state psychiatrist, whom he perceives quite correctly as his enemy into thinking that he is cured so that he can get out of this incarceration. 
To call this process therapy or rehabilitation is surely cruel mockery of these terms. It is far more principled, as well as more truly humane, to treat every prisoner in accordance with objective criminal law. Chapter 6. Personal Liberty Freedom of Speech There are, of course, many problems of personal liberty which cannot be subsumed under the category of involuntary servitude. Freedom of speech and press have long been treasured by those who confine themselves to being civil libertarians. Civil, meaning that economic freedom and the rights of private property are left out of the equation. But we have already seen that freedom of speech cannot be upheld as an absolute except as it is subsumed under the general rights of property of the individual, emphatically including property right in his own person. Thus the man who shouts fire in a crowded theater has no right to do so because he is aggressing against the contractual property rights of the theater owner and of the patrons of the performance. Aside from invasions of property, however, freedom of speech will necessarily be upheld to the uttermost by every libertarian. Freedom to say, print, and sell any utterance becomes an absolute right in whatever area the speech or expression chooses to cover. Here, civil libertarians have a generally good record and in the judiciary the late Justice Hugo Black was particularly notable in defending freedom of speech from government restriction on the basis of the First Amendment of the Constitution. But there are areas in which even the most ardent civil libertarians have been unfortunately fuzzy. What, for example, of incitement to riot, in which the speaker is held guilty of a crime for whipping up a mob, which then riots and commits various actions and crimes against person and property. In our view, incitement can only be considered a crime if we deny every man's freedom of will and of choice, and assume that if A tells B and C, you and him go ahead and riot, that somehow B and C are then helplessly determined to proceed and commit the wrongful act. But the libertarian, who believes in freedom of the will, must insist that while it might be immoral or unfortunate for A to advocate a riot, that this is strictly in the realm of advocacy and should not be subject to legal penalty. Of course, if A also participates in the riot, then he himself becomes a rioter and is equally subject to punishment. Furthermore, if A is a boss in a criminal enterprise, and as part of the crime orders his henchmen, you and him go and rob such and such a bank, then of course A, according to the law of accessories, becomes a participant or even leader in the criminal enterprise itself. If advocacy should never be a crime, then neither should conspiracy to advocate. For, in contrast to the unfortunate development of conspiracy law, conspiring, that is, agreeing to do something, should never be more illegal than the act itself. How, in fact, can conspiracy be defined except as an agreement by two or more people to do something that you, the definer, do not like? Another difficult zone is the law of libel and slander. 
It has generally been held legitimate to restrict freedom of speech if that speech has the effect of either falsely or maliciously damaging the reputation of another person. What the law of libel and slander does, in short, is to argue a property right of someone in his own reputation. Yet someone's reputation is not and cannot be owned by him, since it is purely a function of the subjective feelings and attitudes held by other people. But since no one can ever truly own the mind and attitude of another, this means that no one can literally have a property right in his reputation. A person's reputation fluctuates all the time, in accordance with the attitudes and opinions of the rest of the population. Hence, speech attacking someone cannot be an invasion of his property right, and therefore should not be subject to restriction or legal penalty. It is, of course, immoral to level false charges against another person, but once again, the moral and the legal are, for the libertarian, two very different categories. Furthermore, pragmatically, if there were no laws of libel or slander, people would be much less willing to credit charges without full documentation than they are now. Nowadays, if a man is charged with some flaw or misdeed, the general reaction is to believe it, since if the charge were false, why doesn't he sue for libel? The law of libel, of course, discriminates in this way against the poor, since a person with few financial resources is scarcely as ready to carry on a costly libel suit as a person of affluent means. Furthermore, wealthy people can now use the libel laws as a club against poorer persons, restricting perfectly legitimate charges and utterances under the threat of suing their poorer enemies for libel. Paradoxically, then, a person of limited resources is more apt to suffer from libel and to have his own speech restricted in the present system than he would in a world without any laws against libel or defamation. Fortunately, in recent years, the laws against libel have been progressively weakened, so that one can now deliver vigorous and trenchant criticisms of public officials and of people in the public eye without fear of being subject to costly legal action or legal punishment. Another action that should be completely free of restriction is the boycott. In a boycott, one or more people use their right of speech to urge, for whatever reasons, important or trivial, that other people cease to buy someone else's product. If, for example, several people organize a campaign, for whatever reason, to urge consumers to stop buying XYZ beer, this is again purely advocacy, and furthermore, advocacy of a perfectly legitimate act, not purchasing the beer. A successful boycott might be unfortunate for the producers of XYZ beer, but this again is strictly within the realm of free speech and the rights of private property. The makers of XYZ beer take their chances with the free choices of consumers, and consumers are entitled to listen and to be swayed by anyone they choose. Yet our labor laws have infringed upon the right of labor unions to organize boycotts against business firms. It is also illegal under our banking laws to spread rumors about the insolvency of a bank, an obvious case of the government's extending special privileges to banks by outlawing freedom of speech in opposition to their use. 
A particularly thorny question is the whole matter of picketing and demonstrations. Freedom of speech implies, of course, freedom of assembly, the freedom to gather together and express oneself in concert with others. But the situation becomes more complex when the use of the streets is involved. It is clear that picketing is illegitimate when it is used, as it often is, to block access to a private building or factory, or when the pickets threaten violence against those who cross the picket line. It is also clear that sit-ins are an illegitimate invasion of private property. But even peaceful picketing is not clearly legitimate, for it is part of a wider problem. Who decides on the use of the streets? The problem stems from the fact that the streets are almost universally owned by local government. But the government, not being a private owner, lacks any criterion for allocating the use of its streets, so that any decision it makes will be arbitrary. Suppose, for example, that the Friends of Wisteria wish to demonstrate and parade on behalf of Wisteria in a public street. The police ban the demonstration, claiming that it will clog the streets and disrupt traffic. Civil libertarians will automatically protest and claim that the right of free speech of the Wisteria demonstrators is being unjustly abridged. But the police, too, may have a perfectly legitimate point. The streets may well be clogged, and it is the government's responsibility to maintain the flow of traffic. How then decide? Whichever way the government decides, some group of taxpayers will be injured by the decision. If the government decides to allow the demonstration, the motorists or pedestrians will be injured. If it does not, then the friends of Wisteria will suffer a loss. In either case, the very fact of government decision-making generates inevitable conflict over who shall and who shall not among the taxpayers and citizens, use the governmental resource. It is only the universal fact of government ownership and control of the streets that makes this problem insoluble, and cloaks the true solution to it. The point is that whoever owns a resource will decide on how that resource is to be used. The owner of a press will decide what will be printed on that press, and the owner of the streets will decide how to allocate their use. In short, if the streets were privately owned, and the Friends of Wisteria asked for the use of Fifth Avenue to demonstrate, it will be up to the owner of Fifth Avenue to decide whether to rent the street for demonstration use or to keep it clear for traffic. In a purely libertarian world, where all streets are privately owned, the various street owners will decide at any given time whether to rent out the street for demonstrations, whom to rent it to, and what price to charge. It would then be clear that what is involved is not a free speech or free assembly question at all, but a question of property rights, of the right of a group to offer to rent a street and of the right of the street owner either to accept or reject the offer. Freedom of Radio and Television There is one important area of American life where no effective freedom of speech or the press does or can exist under the present system. That is the entire field of radio and television. In this area, the federal government, in the crucially important Radio Act of 1927, nationalized the airwaves. 
In effect, the federal government took title to ownership of all radio and television channels. It then presumed to grant licenses at its will or pleasure for use of the channels to various privately owned stations. On the one hand, the stations, since they receive the licenses gratis, do not have to pay for the use of the scarce airwaves, as they would on the free market. And so these stations receive a huge subsidy, which they are eager to maintain. But on the other hand, the federal government, as the licensor of the airwaves, asserts the right and the power to regulate the stations minutely and continuously. Thus, over the head of each station is the club of the threat of non-renewal, or even suspension, of its license. In consequence, the idea of freedom of speech in radio and television is no more than a mockery. Every station is grievously restricted, and forced to fashion its programming to the dictates of the Federal Communications Commission. So every station must have balanced programming broadcast a certain amount of public service announcements, grant equal time to every political candidate for the same office and to expressions of political opinion, censor controversial lyrics in the records it plays, etc. For many years, no station was allowed to broadcast any editorial opinion at all. Now, every opinion must be balanced by responsible editorial rebuttals, because every station and every broadcaster must always look over its shoulder at the FCC, free expression in broadcasting is a sham. Is it any wonder that television opinion, when it is expressed at all on controversial issues, tends to be blandly in favor of the establishment? The public has only put up with this situation because it has existed since the beginning of large-scale commercial radio. But what would we think, for example, if all newspapers were licensed, the licenses to be renewable by a federal press commission, and with newspapers losing their licenses if they dare express an unfair editorial opinion, or if they don't give full weight to public service announcements? Would not this be an intolerable, not to say unconstitutional, destruction of the right to a free press? Or consider if all book publishers had to be licensed, and their licenses were not renewable if their book lists failed to suit a federal book commission. Yet what we would all consider intolerable and totalitarian for the press and the book publishers is taken for granted in a medium which is now the most popular vehicle for expression and education, radio and television. Yet the principles in both cases are exactly the same. Here we see, too, one of the fatal flaws in the idea of democratic socialism, that is, the idea that the government should own all resources and means of production, yet preserve and maintain freedom of speech and the press for all its citizens. An abstract constitution guaranteeing freedom of the press is meaningless in a socialist society. The point is that where the government owns all the newsprint, the paper, the presses, etc., the government, as owner, must decide how to allocate the newsprint and the paper, and what to print on them. Just as the government as street owner must make a decision how the street will be used, so a socialist government will have to decide how to allocate newsprint and all other resources involved in the areas of speech and press assembly halls, machines, trucks, etc. 
Any government may profess its devotion to freedom of the press, yet allocate all of its newsprint only to its defenders and supporters. A free press is again a mockery. Furthermore, why should a socialist government allocate any considerable amount of its scarce resources to anti-socialists? The problem of genuine freedom of the press then becomes insoluble. The solution for radio and television? Simple. Treat these media precisely the same way the press and book publishers are treated. For both the libertarian and the believer in the American Constitution, the government should withdraw completely from any role or interference in all media of expression. In short, the federal government should denationalize the airwaves and give or sell the individual channels to private ownership. When private stations genuinely own their channels, they will be truly free and independent. They will be able to put on any programs they wish to produce or that they feel their listeners want to hear, and they will be able to express themselves in whichever way they wish without fear of government retaliation. They will also be able to sell or rent the airwaves to whomever they wish, and in that way the users of the channels will no longer be artificially subsidized. Furthermore, if TV channels become free, privately owned, and independent, the big networks will no longer be able to put pressure upon the FCC to outlaw the effective competition of pay television. It is only because the FCC has outlawed pay TV that it has not been able to gain a foothold. Free TV is, of course, not truly free. The programs are paid for by the advertisers, and the consumer pays by covering the advertising costs in the price of the product he buys. One might ask what difference it makes to the consumer whether he pays the advertising costs indirectly or pays directly for each program he buys. The difference is that these are not the same consumers for the same products. The television advertiser, for example, is always interested in a gaining the widest possible viewing market, and b in gaining those particular viewers who will be most susceptible to his message. Hence the programs will all be geared to the lowest common denominator in the audience, and particularly to those viewers most susceptible to the message, that is, those viewers who do not read newspapers or magazines, so that the message will not duplicate the ads he sees there. As a result, free TV programs tend to be unimaginative, bland, and uniform. Pay TV would mean that each program would search for its own market, and many specialized markets for specialized audiences would develop, just as highly lucrative specialized markets have developed in the magazine and book publishing fields. The quality of programs would be higher, and the offerings far more diverse. In fact, the menace of potential pay-TV competition must be great for the networks to lobby for years to keep it suppressed. But of course, in a truly free market, both forms of television, as well as cable TV and other forms we cannot yet envision, could and would enter the competition. One common argument against private ownership of TV channels is that these channels are scarce and therefore have to be owned and parceled out by the government. To an economist, this is a silly argument. All resources are scarce. 
In fact, anything that has a price on the market commands that price precisely because it is scarce. We have to pay a certain amount for a loaf of bread, for shoes, for dresses, because they are all scarce. If they were not scarce but superabundant like air, they would be free, and no one would have to worry about their production or allocation. In the press area, newsprint is scarce, paper is scarce, printing machinery and trucks are scarce, etc. The more scarce they are, the higher the price they will command, and vice versa. Furthermore, and again pragmatically, there are far more television channels available than are now in use. The FCC's early decision to force stations into the VHF instead of the UHF zone created far more of a scarcity of channels than there needed to be. Another common objection to private property in the broadcast media is that private stations would interfere with each other's broadcasts, and that such widespread interference would virtually prevent any programs from being heard or seen. But this is as absurd an argument for nationalizing the airwaves as claiming that since people can drive their cars over other people's land, this means that all cars, or land, must be nationalized. The problem in either case is for the courts to demarcate property titles carefully enough so that any invasion of another's property will be clear-cut and subject to prosecution. In the case of land titles, this process is clear enough. But the point is that the courts can apply a similar process of staking out property rights in other areas, whether it be in airwaves, in water, or in oil pools. In the case of airwaves, the task is to find the technological unit, that is, the place of transmission, the distance of the wave, and the technological width of a clear channel, and then to allocate property rights to this particular technological unit. If radio station WXYZ, for example, is assigned a property right in broadcasting on 1,500 kilocycles, plus or minus a certain width of kilocycles, for 200 miles around Detroit, then any station which subsequently beams a program into the Detroit area on this wavelength would be subject to prosecution for interference with property rights. If the courts pursue their task of demarking and defending property rights, then there is no more reason to expect continual invasions of such rights in this area than anywhere else. Most people believe that this is precisely the reason the airwaves were nationalized, that before the Radio Act of 1927, stations interfered with each other's signals and chaos ensued, and the federal government was finally forced to step in to bring order and make a radio industry feasible at last. But this is historical legend, not fact. The actual history is precisely the opposite. For when interference on the same channel began to occur, the injured party took the airwave aggressors into court, and the courts were beginning to bring order out of the chaos by very successfully applying the common law theory of property rights, in very many ways similar to the libertarian theory, to this new technological area. In short, the courts were beginning to assign property rights in the airwaves to their homesteading users. It was after the federal government saw the likelihood of this new extension of private property that it rushed in to nationalize the airwaves, using alleged chaos as the excuse. 
To describe the picture a bit more fully, radio in the first years of the century was almost wholly a means of communication for ships, either ship-to-ship or ship-to-shore messages. The Navy Department was interested in regulating radio as a means of ensuring safety at sea, and the initial federal regulation, a 1912 act, merely provided that any radio station had to have a license issued by the Secretary of Commerce. No powers to regulate or to decide not to renew licenses were written into the law, however, and when public broadcasting began in the early 1920s, Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover attempted to regulate the stations. Court decisions in 1923 and 1926, however, struck down the government's power to regulate licenses, to fail to renew them, or even to decide on which wavelengths the stations should operate. At about the same time, the courts were working out the concept of homestead private property rights in the airwaves, notably in the case of Tribune Company versus Oakleaves Broadcasting Station, Circuit Court, Cook County, Illinois, 1926. In this case, the court held that the operator of an existing station had a property right acquired by prior use sufficient to enjoin a new station from using a radio frequency in any way so as to cause interference with the signals of the prior station. And so, order was being brought out of the chaos by means of the assignment of property rights. But it was precisely this development that the government rushed in to forestall. The 1926 Zenith decision striking down the government's power to regulate or to fail to renew licenses and forcing the Department of Commerce to issue licenses to any station that applied produced a great boom in the broadcasting industry. Over 200 new stations were created in the nine months after the decision. As a result, Congress rushed through a stopgap measure in July 1926 to prevent any property rights in radio frequencies, and resolved that all licenses should be limited to 90 days. By February 1927, the Congress passed the law establishing the Federal Radio Commission, which nationalized the airwaves and established powers similar to those of the current FCC. That the aim of the knowledgeable politicians was not to prevent chaos, but to prevent private property in the airwaves as the solution to chaos, is demonstrated by the legal historian H. P. Warner. Warner states that grave fears were expressed by legislators, and those generally charged with the administration of communications, that government regulation of an effective sort might be permanently prevented through the accrual of property rights in licenses or means of access, and that thus franchises of the value of millions of dollars might be established for all time. The net result, however, was to establish equally valuable franchises anyway, but in a monopolistic fashion through the largesse of the Federal Radio Commission, and later FCC, rather than through competitive homesteading. Among the numerous direct invasions of freedom of speech exercised by the licensing power of the FRC and FCC, two cases will suffice. One was in 1931, when the FRC denied renewal of license to a Mr. Baker, who operated a radio station in Iowa. In denying renewal, the commission said, 
This commission holds no brief for the medical associations and other parties whom Mr. Baker does not like. Their alleged sins may be at times of public importance, to be called to the attention of the public over the air in the right way. But this record discloses that Mr. Baker does not do so in any high-minded way. It shows that he continually and erratically over the air rides a personal hobby. His cancer-cure ideas and his likes and dislikes of certain persons and things. Surely his infliction of all this on the listeners is not the proper use of a broadcasting license. Many of his utterances are vulgar, if not indeed indecent. Assuredly they are not uplifting or entertaining. Can we imagine the outcry if the federal government were to put a newspaper or a book publisher out of business on similar grounds? A recent act of the FCC was to threaten non-renewal of license of radio station KTRG in Honolulu, a major radio station in Hawaii. KTRG had been broadcasting libertarian programs for several hours a day for approximately two years. Finally, in late 1970, the FCC decided to open lengthy hearings moving toward non-renewal of license the threatened cost of which forced the owners to shut down the station permanently. Pornography To the libertarian, the arguments between conservatives and liberals over laws prohibiting pornography are distressingly beside the point. The conservative position tends to hold that pornography is debasing and immoral, and therefore should be outlawed. Liberals tend to counter that sex is good and healthy, and that therefore pornography will only have good effects, and that depictions of violence, say on television, in movies, or in comic books, should be outlawed instead. Neither side deals with the crucial point, that the good, bad, or indifferent consequences of pornography, while perhaps an interesting problem in its own right, is completely irrelevant to the question of whether or not it should be outlawed. The libertarian holds that it is not the business of the law, the use of retaliatory violence, to enforce anyone's conception of morality. It is not the business of the law, even if this were practically possible, which is, of course, most unlikely, to make anyone good or reverent or moral or clean or upright. This is for each individual to decide for himself. It is only the business of legal violence to defend people against the use of violence, to defend them from violent invasions of their person or property. But if the government presumes to outlaw pornography, it itself becomes the genuine outlaw, for it is invading the property rights of people to produce, sell, buy, or possess pornographic material. We do not pass laws to make people upright. We do not pass laws to force people to be kind to their neighbors or not to yell at the bus driver. We do not pass laws to force people to be honest with their loved ones. We do not pass laws to force them to eat X amount of vitamins per day. Neither is it the business of government, nor of any legal agency, to pass laws against the voluntary production or sale of pornography. Whether pornography is good, bad, or indifferent should be of no interest to the legal authorities. The same holds true for the liberal bugbear of the pornography of violence. 
Whether or not watching violence on television helps lead to actual crimes should not come under the purview of the state. To outlaw violent films because they might someday induce someone to commit a crime is a denial of man's free will, and a total denial, of course, of the right of those who will not commit crimes to see the film. But more important, it is no more justifiable, in fact, less so, to outlaw violent films for this reason than it would be, as we have noted, to lock up all teenage Negro males because they have a greater tendency to commit crime than the rest of the population. It should be clear, too, that prohibition of pornography is an invasion of property right, of the right to produce, sell, buy, and own. Conservatives who call for the outlawing of pornography do not seem to realize that they are thereby violating the very concept of property rights they profess to champion. It is also a violation of freedom of the press, which, as we have seen, is really a subset of the general right of private property. Sometimes it seems that the beau ideal of many conservatives, as well as of many liberals, is to put everyone into a cage and coerce him into doing what the conservatives, or liberals, believe to be the moral thing. They would, of course, be differently styled cages, but they would be cages just the same. The conservative would ban illicit sex, drugs, gambling, and impiety, and coerce everyone to act according to his version of moral and religious behavior. The liberal would ban films of violence, unesthetic advertising, football, and racial discrimination, and at the extreme, place everyone in a Skinner box to be run by a supposedly benevolent liberal dictator. But the effect would be the same to reduce everyone to a subhuman level, and to deprive everyone of the most precious part of his or her humanity, the freedom to choose. The irony, of course, is that by forcing men to be moral, that is, to act morally, the conservative or liberal jailkeepers would in reality deprive men of the very possibility of being moral. The concept of morality makes no sense unless the moral act is freely chosen. Suppose, for example, that someone is a devout Muslim, who is anxious to have as many people as possible bow to Mecca three times a day. To him, let us suppose this is the highest moral act. But if he wields coercion to force everyone to bow to Mecca, he is thereby depriving everyone of the opportunity to be moral, to choose freely to bow to Mecca. Coercion deprives a man of the freedom to choose, and therefore of the possibility of choosing morally. The libertarian, in contrast to so many conservatives and liberals, does not want to place man in any cage. What he wants for everyone is freedom, the freedom to act, morally or immorally, as each man shall decide. Sex Laws In recent years, liberals have fortunately been coming to the conclusion that any act between two or more consenting adults should be legal. It is unfortunate that the liberals have not yet widened this criterion from sex to trade and exchange, for if they ever would, they would be close to becoming full-scale libertarians. For the libertarian is precisely interested in legalizing all interrelations whatever between consenting adults. 
Liberals have also begun to call for the abolition of victimless crimes, which would be splendid if victims were defined with greater precision as victims of aggressive violence. Since sex is a uniquely private aspect of life, it is particularly intolerable that governments should presume to regulate and legislate sexual behavior. Yet, of course, this has been one of the state's favorite pastimes. Violent acts, such as rape, of course, are to be classed as crimes, in the same way as any other act of violence against persons. Oddly enough, while voluntary sexual activities have often been rendered illegal and prosecuted by the state, accused rapists have been treated far more gently by the authorities than accused perpetrators of other forms of bodily assault. In many instances, in fact, the rape victim has been virtually treated as the guilty party by the law enforcement agencies, an attitude which is almost never taken toward victims of other crimes. Clearly, an impermissible sexual double standard has been at work. As the National Board of the American Civil Liberties Union declared in March 1977, sexual assault victims should be treated no differently from victims of other crimes. Sexual assault victims are often treated with skepticism and abuse at the hands of law enforcement and health services personnel. This treatment ranges from official disbelief and insensitivity to cruel and harsh probes of the victim's lifestyle and motivation. Such abrogation of responsibility by institutions meant to assist and protect victims of crime can only compound the trauma of the victim's original experience. The double standard imposed by government can be remedied by removing rape as a special category of legal and judicial treatment, and of subsuming it under the general law of bodily assault. Whatever standards are used for judges' instructions to the jury or for the admissibility of evidence should be applied similarly in all these cases. If labor and persons in general are to be free, then so should there be freedom for prostitution. Prostitution is a voluntary sale of a labor service, and the government has no right to prohibit or restrict such sales. It should be noted that many of the grimmer aspects of the streetwalking trade have been brought about by the outlawing of brothels. As long-lasting houses of prostitution operated by madams anxious to cultivate goodwill among customers over a long time span, brothels used to compete to provide high-quality service and build up their brand name. The outlawing of brothels has forced prostitution into a black market, fly-by-night existence, with all the dangers and general decline in quality this always entails. Recently, in New York City, there has been a tendency for the police to crack down on prostitution with the excuse that the trade is no longer victimless, since many prostitutes commit crimes against their customers. To outlaw trades that may attract crime, however, would in the same way justify prohibition, because many fights take place in bars. The answer is not to outlaw the voluntary and truly lawful activity, but for the police to see to it that the genuine crimes do not get committed. It should be clear that advocacy of freedom for prostitution does not, for the libertarian, in the least imply advocacy of prostitution itself. In short, if a particularly puritanical government were to outlaw all cosmetics, 
The libertarian would call for legalizing cosmetics, without in any sense implying that he favors, or for that matter opposes, the use of cosmetics themselves. On the contrary, depending upon his personal ethics or aesthetics, he might well agitate against the use of cosmetics after they become legalized. His attempt is always to persuade rather than to compel. If sex should be free, then birth control should, of course, be free as well. It is unfortunately characteristic of our society, however, that scarcely has birth control been made legal when people, in this case liberals, arise to agitate for birth control being made compulsory. It is true, of course, that if my neighbor has a baby, this may well affect me for good or ill. But then almost everything that anyone does may affect one or more people. To the libertarian, this is scarcely justification for using force, which may only be used to combat or restrain force itself. There is no right more personal, no freedom more precious, than for any woman to decide to have or not to have a baby and it is totalitarian in the extreme for any government to presume to deny her that right. Besides, if any family has more children than it can support in comfort, the family itself will bear the main burden. Hence the almost universal result that the wish to preserve a treasured rise in living standards will induce a voluntary reduction of births by the families themselves. This brings us to the more complex case of abortion. For the libertarian, the Catholic case against abortion, even if finally rejected as invalid, cannot be dismissed out of hand. For the essence of that case, not really Catholic at all in a theological sense, is that abortion destroys a human life, and is therefore murder, and hence cannot be condoned. More than that, if abortion is truly murder— then the Catholic, or any other person who shares this view, cannot just shrug his shoulders and say that Catholic views should not be imposed upon non-Catholics. Murder is not an expression of religious preference. No sect, in the name of freedom of religion, can or should get away with committing murder with the plea that its religion so commands. The vital question then becomes, should abortion be considered as murder? Most discussion of the issue bogs down in minutiae about when human life begins, when or if the fetus can be considered to be alive, etc. All this is really irrelevant to the issue of the legality, again, not necessarily the morality, of abortion. The Catholic anti-abortionist, for example, declares that all he wants for the fetus is the rights of any human being, that is, the right not to be murdered. But there is more involved here, and this is the crucial consideration. If we are to treat the fetus as having the same rights as humans, then let us ask, what human has the right to remain unbidden as an unwanted parasite within some other human being's body? This is the nub of the issue, the absolute right of every person, and hence every woman, to the ownership of her own body. What the mother is doing in an abortion is causing an unwanted entity within her body to be ejected from it. If the fetus dies, this does not rebut the point that no being has a right to live unbidden as a parasite within or upon some person's body. 
The common retort that the mother either originally wanted, or at least was responsible for placing the fetus within her body, is again beside the point. Even in the stronger case, where the mother originally wanted the child, the mother as the property owner in her own body has the right to change her mind and to eject it. If the state should not repress voluntary sexual activity, neither should it discriminate for or against either sex. Affirmative action decrees are an obvious way of compelling discrimination against males or other groups in employment, admissions, or wherever this implicit quota system is applied. But protective labor laws in regard to women insidiously pretend to favor women when they really discriminate against them by prohibiting them from working during certain hours or in certain occupations. Women are prevented by law from exercising their individual freedom of choice in deciding for themselves whether or not to enter these occupations or to work during these supposedly onerous hours. In this way, government prevents women from competing freely against men in these areas. All in all, the 1978 Libertarian Party platform is trenchant and to the point in setting forth the libertarian position on governmental sex or other discrimination. No individual rights should be denied or abridged by the laws of the United States or any state or locality on account of sex, race, color, creed, age, national origin, or sexual preference. Wiretapping Wiretapping is a contemptible invasion of privacy and of property right, and of course should be outlawed as an invasive act. Few, if any, people would condone private wiretapping. The controversy arises with those who maintain that the police should be able to tap the wires of persons they suspect as criminals. Otherwise, how would criminals be caught? In the first place, from the pragmatic viewpoint, it is rare that wiretapping is effective in such one-shot crimes as bank robbery. Wiretapping is generally used in cases where the business is set up on a regularized and continuing basis, such as narcotics and gambling, and is therefore vulnerable to espionage and bugging. Secondly, we remain with our contention that it is itself criminal to invade the property of anyone not yet convicted of a crime. It may well be true, for example, that if the government employed a 10-million-man espionage force to spy upon and tap the wires of the entire population, the total amount of private crime would be reduced, just as it would if all ghetto residents or teenage males were promptly incarcerated. But what would this be compared to the mass crime that would thus be committed, legally and without shame, by the government itself? There is one concession we might make to the police argument, but it is doubtful the police would be happy with the concession. It is proper to invade the property of a thief, for example, who has himself invaded to a far greater extent the property of others. Suppose the police decide that John Jones is a jewel thief. They tap his wires and use this evidence to convict Jones of the crime. We might say that this tapping is legitimate and should go unpunished, provided, however, that if Jones should prove not to be a thief, the police and the judges who may have issued the court order for the tap 
are now to be adjudged criminals themselves and sent to jail for their crime of unjust wiretapping. This reform would have two happy consequences. No policeman or judge would participate in wiretapping unless he was dead certain the victim is indeed a criminal, and the police and judges would at last join everyone else as equally subject to the rule of the criminal law. Certainly, equality of liberty requires that the law applies to everyone. Therefore, any invasion of the property of a non-criminal by anyone should be outlawed, regardless of who committed the deed. The policeman who guessed wrong and thereby aggressed against a non-criminal should therefore be considered just as guilty as any private wiretapper. Gambling There are few laws more absurd and iniquitous than the laws against gambling. In the first place, the law, in its broadest sense, is clearly unenforceable. If every time Jim and Jack made a quiet bet on a football game, or on an election, or on virtually anything else, this were illegal, an enormous multi-million man Gestapo would be required to enforce such a law, and to spy on everyone and ferret out every bet. Another large super-espionage force would then be needed to spy on the spies, to make sure that they have not been bought off. Conservatives like to retort to such arguments, used against laws outlawing sexual practices, pornography, drugs, etc., that the prohibition against murder is not fully enforceable either, but this is no argument for repeal of that law. This argument, however, ignores a crucial point. The mass of the public, making an instinctive libertarian distinction, abhors and condemns murder, and does not engage in it. Hence, the prohibition becomes broadly enforceable. But the mass of the public is not as convinced of the criminality of gambling, hence continues to engage in it, and the law, properly, becomes unenforceable. Since the laws against quiet betting are clearly unenforceable, the authorities decide to concentrate on certain highly visible forms of gambling and confine their activities to them. Roulette, bookies, numbers betting, in short, on those areas where gambling is a fairly regularized activity. But then we have a peculiar and surely totally unsupportable kind of ethical judgment. Roulette, horse betting, etc., are somehow morally evil and must be cracked down upon by the massed might of the police, whereas quiet betting is morally legitimate and need not be bothered. In New York State, a particular form of imbecility developed over the years. Until recent years, all forms of horse betting were illegal except those made at the tracks themselves. Why horse betting at Aqueduct or Belmont racetrack should be perfectly moral and legitimate, while betting on the same race with your friendly neighborhood bookie should be sinful and bring down the awful majesty of the law, defies the imagination. Unless, of course, if we consider the point of the law to force betters to swell the coffers of the tracks. Recently, a new wrinkle has developed. The city of New York has itself gone into the horse-betting business, and betting at city-owned stores is perfectly fine and proper, while betting with competing private bookies continues to be sinful and outlawed. Clearly, the point of the system is first to confer a special privilege upon the racetracks, 
and then upon the city's own betting installation. Various states are also beginning to finance their ever-growing expenditures through lotteries, which thus become conferred with the cloak of morality and respectability. A standard argument for outlawing gambling is that if the poor workman is allowed to gamble, he will improvidently blow his weekly paycheck and thereby render his family destitute. Aside from the fact that he can now spend his payroll on friendly betting, this paternalistic and dictatorial argument is a curious one, for it proves far too much. If we must outlaw gambling because the masses might spend too much of their substance, why should we not outlaw many other articles of mass consumption? After all, if a workman is determined to blow his paycheck, he has many opportunities to do so. He can improvidently spend too much on a TV set, a hi-fi, liquor, baseball equipment, and countless other goodies. The logic of prohibiting a man from gambling for his own or his family's good leads straight to that totalitarian cage, the cage in which Papa government tells the man exactly what to do, how to spend his money, how many vitamins he must ingest, and forces him to obey the state's dictates. Narcotics and Other Drugs The case for outlawing any product or activity is essentially the same twofold argument we have seen used to justify the compulsory commitment of mental patients. It will harm the person involved, or it will lead that person to commit crimes against others. It is curious that the general and justified horror of drugs has led the mass of the public to an irrational enthusiasm for outlawing them. The case against outlawing narcotic and hallucinogenic drugs is far weaker than the case against prohibition, an experiment which the grisly era of the 1920s has hopefully discredited for all time. For while narcotics are undoubtedly more harmful than is alcohol, the latter can also be harmful, and outlawing something because it may harm the user leads straight down the logical garden path to our totalitarian cage, where people are prohibited from eating candy and are forced to eat yogurt for their own good. But in the far more imposing argument about harm to others, alcohol is much more likely to lead to crimes, auto accidents, etc., than narcotics, which render the user preternaturally peaceful and passive. There is, of course, a very strong connection between addiction and crime, but the connection is the reverse of any argument for prohibition. Crimes are committed by addicts driven to theft by the high price of drugs caused by the outlawry itself. If narcotics were legal, the supply would greatly increase, the high costs of black markets and police payoffs would disappear, and the price would be low enough to eliminate most addict-caused crime. This is not to argue, of course, for prohibition of alcohol. Once again, to outlaw something which might lead to crime is an illegitimate and invasive assault on the rights of person and property, an assault which, again, would far more justify the immediate incarceration of all teenage males. Only the overt commission of a crime should be illegal, and the way to combat crimes committed under the influence of alcohol is to be more diligent about the crimes themselves, not to outlaw the alcohol. And this would have the further beneficial effect of reducing crimes not committed under the influence of alcohol. 
Paternalism in this area comes not only from the right. It is curious that while liberals generally favor legalizing marijuana, and sometimes of heroin, they seem to yearn to outlaw cigarettes, on the ground that cigarette smoking often causes cancer. Liberals have already managed to use federal control of television to outlaw cigarette advertising on that medium, and thereby to level a grave blow against the very freedom of speech liberals are supposed to cherish. Once again, every man has the right to choose. Propagandize against cigarettes as much as you want, but leave the individual free to run his own life. Otherwise, we may as well outlaw all sorts of possible carcinogenic agents, including tight shoes, improperly fitting false teeth, excessive exposure to the sun, as well as excessive intake of ice cream, eggs, and butter, which might lead to heart disease. And if such prohibitions prove unenforceable, again, the logic is to place people in cages so that they will receive the proper amount of sun, the correct diet, properly fitting shoes, and so on. Police Corruption In the fall of 1971, the Knapp Commission focused public attention on the problem of widespread police corruption in New York City. Midst the drama of individual cases, there is a danger of overlooking what is clearly the central problem, a problem of which the Knapp Commission itself was perfectly aware. In virtually every case of corruption, the policemen were involved in regularly functioning businesses which, by government fiat, had been declared illegal. And yet a vast number of people, by demanding these goods and services, have shown that they do not agree that such activities should be placed in the same category as murder, theft, or assault. Indeed, in practically no case did the purchase of the police involve these heinous crimes. In almost all cases, they consisted of the police looking the other way while legitimate voluntary transactions took place. The common law makes a vital distinction between a crime that is a malum in se and one that is merely a malum prohibitum. A malum in se is an act which the mass of the people instinctively feel is a reprehensible crime, which should be punished. This coincides roughly with the libertarian's definition of a crime as an invasion of person or property, assault, theft, and murder. Other crimes are activities made into crimes by government edict. It is in this far more widely tolerated area that police corruption occurs. In short, police corruption occurs in those areas where entrepreneurs supply voluntary services to consumers, but where the government has decreed that these services are illegal. Narcotics, prostitution, and gambling. Where gambling, for example, is outlawed, the law places into the hands of the police assigned to the gambling detail the power to sell the privilege of engaging in the gambling business. In short, it is as if the police were empowered to issue special licenses to engage in these activities, and then proceeded to sell these unofficial but vital licenses at whatever price the traffic will bear. One policeman testified that if the law were to be fully enforced, not a single construction site in New York City could continue functioning, 
So intricately did the government wrap construction sites in a web of trivial and impossible regulations. In short, whether consciously or not, the government proceeds as follows. First, it outlaws a certain activity, drugs, gambling, construction, or whatever. Then the governmental police sell to would-be entrepreneurs in the field the privilege of entering and continuing in business. At best, the result of these actions is the imposition of higher cost and more restricted output of the activity than would have occurred in a free market. But the effects are still more pernicious. Often what the policemen sell is not just permission to function, but what is, in effect, a privileged monopoly. In that case, a gambler pays off the police not just to continue in business, but also to freeze out any competitors who might want to enter the industry. The consumers are then saddled with privileged monopolists and are barred from enjoying the advantages of competition. It is no wonder, then, that when Prohibition was finally repealed in the early 1930s, the main opponents of repeal were, along with fundamentalist and prohibitionist groups, the organized bootleggers, who had enjoyed special monopolistic privileges from their special arrangements with the police and other enforcement arms of government. The way, then, to eliminate police corruption is simple but effective. Abolish the laws against voluntary business activity and against all victimless crimes. Not only would corruption be eliminated, but a large number of police would then be freed to operate against the real criminals, the aggressors against person and property. This, after all, is supposed to be the function of the police in the first place. We should realize, then, that the problem of police corruption, as well as the broader question of government corruption in general, should be placed in a wider context. The point is that, given the unfortunate and unjust laws prohibiting, regulating, and taxing certain activities, corruption is highly beneficial to society. In a number of countries, without corruption that nullified government prohibitions, taxes, and exactions, virtually no trade or industry would be carried on at all. Corruption greases the wheels of trade. The solution, then, is not to deplore corruption and redouble enforcement against it, but to abolish the crippling policies and laws of government that make corruption necessary. Gun Laws for most of the activities in this chapter, liberals tend to favor freedom of trade and activity, while conservatives yearn for rigorous enforcement and maximum crackdown against violators of the law. Yet, mysteriously, in the drive for gun laws, the positions tend to be reversed. Every time a gun is used in a violent crime, liberals redouble their agitation for the severe restriction, if not prohibition, of private ownership of guns while conservatives oppose such restrictions on behalf of individual freedom. If, as libertarians believe, every individual has the right to own his person and property, it then follows that he has the right to employ violence to defend himself against the violence of criminal aggressors. But for some odd reason, liberals have systematically tried to deprive innocent persons of the means for defending themselves against aggression. 
despite the fact that the Second Amendment to the Constitution guarantees that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, the government has systematically eroded much of this right. Thus, in New York State, as in most other states, the Sullivan Law prohibits the carrying of concealed weapons without a license issued by the authorities. Not only has the carrying of guns been grievously restricted by this unconstitutional edict, but the government has extended this prohibition to almost any object that could possibly serve as a weapon, even those that could only be used for self-defense. As a result, potential victims of crime have been barred from carrying knives, tear gas pens, or even hat pins, and people who have used such weapons in defending themselves against assault have themselves been prosecuted by the authorities. In the cities, this invasive prohibition against concealed weapons has, in effect, stripped victims of any possible self-defense against crime. It is true that there is no official prohibition against carrying an unconcealed weapon. But a man in New York City who, several years ago, tested the law by walking the streets carrying a rifle, was promptly arrested for disturbing the peace. Furthermore, victims are so hamstrung by provisions against undue force in self-defense that the criminal is automatically handed an enormous built-in advantage by the existing legal system. It should be clear that no physical object is, in itself, aggressive. Any object, whether it be a gun, a knife, or a stick, can be used for aggression, for defense, or for numerous other purposes unconnected with crime. It makes no more sense to outlaw or restrict the purchase and ownership of guns than it does to outlaw the possession of knives, clubs, hat pins, or stones. And how are all of these objects to be outlawed? And if outlawed, how is the prohibition to be enforced? Instead of pursuing innocent people carrying or possessing various objects, then, the law should be concerned with combating and apprehending real criminals. There is, moreover, another consideration which reinforces our conclusion. If guns are restricted or outlawed, there is no reason to expect that determined criminals are going to pay much attention to the law. The criminals, then, will always be able to purchase and carry guns. It will only be their innocent victims who will suffer from the solicitous liberalism that imposes laws against guns and other weapons. Just as drugs, gambling, and pornography should be made legal, so too should guns and any other objects that might serve as weapons of self-defense. In a notable article attacking control of handguns, the type of gun liberals most want to restrict, St. Louis University law professor Don B. Cates, Jr. chides his fellow liberals for not applying the same logic to guns that they use for marijuana laws. Thus, he points out that there are over 50 million handgun owners in America today, and that, based on polls and past experience, from two-thirds to over 80 percent of Americans would fail to comply with a ban on handguns. The inevitable result, as in the case of sex and marijuana laws, would be harsh penalties and yet highly selective enforcement, breeding disrespect for the law and law enforcement agencies and the law would be enforced selectively against those people whom the authorities didn't like.
enforcement becomes progressively more haphazard until at last the laws are used only against those who are unpopular with the police. We hardly need to be reminded of the odious search-and-seizure tactics police and government agents have often resorted to in order to trap violators of these laws. Cates adds that, if these arguments seem familiar, it is probably because they parallel the standard liberal argument against pot laws. Cates then adds a highly perceptive insight into this curious liberal blind spot. For gun prohibition is the brainchild of white middle-class liberals who are oblivious to the situation of poor and minority people living in areas where the police have given up on crime control. Such liberals weren't upset about marijuana laws either in the 50s when the busts were confined to the ghettos. Secure in well-policed suburbs or high-security apartments guarded by Pinkertons, whom no one proposes to disarm, the oblivious liberal derides gun ownership as an anachronism from the Old West. Cates further points out the demonstrated empirical value of self-defense armed with guns. In Chicago, for example, armed civilians justifiably killed three times as many violent criminals in the past five years as did the police. And in a study of several hundred violent confrontations with criminals, Cates found the armed civilians to be more successful than the police. The civilians defending themselves captured, wounded, killed, or scared off criminals in 75% of the confrontations whereas the police only had a 61% success rate. It is true that victims who resist robbery are more likely to be injured than those who remain passive, but Cates points out neglected qualifiers. One, that resistance without a gun has been twice as hazardous to the victim than resistance with one, and two, that the choice of resistance is up to the victim and his circumstances and values. Avoiding injury will be paramount to a white liberal academic with a comfortable bank account. It will necessarily be less important to the casual laborer or welfare recipient who is being robbed of the wherewithal to support his family for a month, or to a black shopkeeper who can't get robbery insurance and will be literally run out of business by successive robberies. And the 1975 National Survey of Handgun Owners by the Decision-Making Information Organization found that the leading subgroups who own a gun only for self-defense include blacks, the lowest-income groups, and senior citizens. These are the people, Cates eloquently warns, it is proposed we jail because they insist on keeping the only protection available for their families in areas in which the police have given up. What of historical experience? Have handgun bans really greatly lowered the degree of violence in society, as liberals claim? The evidence is precisely to the contrary. A massive study done at the University of Wisconsin concluded unequivocally in the fall of 1975 that gun control laws have no individual or collective effect in reducing the rate of violent crime. The Wisconsin study, for example, tested the theory that ordinarily peaceful people will be irresistibly tempted to shoot their guns, if available, when tempers are being frayed. The study found no correlation whatever between rates of handgun ownership and rates of homicide when compared state by state. 
Moreover, this finding is reinforced by a 1976 Harvard study of a Massachusetts law providing a mandatory minimum year in prison for anyone found possessing a handgun without a government permit. It turns out that during the year 1975, this 1974 law did indeed considerably reduce the carrying of firearms and the number of assaults with firearms. But lo and behold, the Harvard researchers found to their surprise that there was no corresponding reduction in any type of violence. That is, as previous criminological studies have suggested, deprived of a handgun, a momentarily enraged citizen will resort to the far more deadly long gun. Deprived of all firearms, he will prove almost as deadly with knives, hammers, etc., And clearly, if reducing handgun ownership does not reduce homicide or other violence, a handgun ban is just one more diversion of police resources from real crime to victimless crime. Finally, Cates makes another intriguing point, that a society where peaceful citizens are armed is far more likely to be one where good Samaritans who voluntarily go to the aid of victims of crime will flourish. But take away people's guns, and the public, disastrously for the victims, will tend to leave the matter to the police. Before New York State outlawed handguns, Good Samaritan instances were far more widespread than now. And in a recent survey of Good Samaritan cases, no less than 81% of the Samaritans were owners of guns. If we wish to encourage a society where citizens come to the aid of neighbors in distress, we must not strip them of the actual power to do something about crime. Surely it is the height of absurdity to disarm the peaceful public, and then, as is quite common, to denounce them for apathy for failing to rush to the rescue of victims of criminal assault. Chapter 7. Education Public and Compulsory Schooling Until the last few years, there were few institutions in America that were held more sacred, especially by liberals, than the public school. Devotion to the public school had seized even those early Americans, such as Jeffersonians and Jacksonians, who were libertarian in most other respects. In recent years, the public school was supposed to be a crucial ingredient of democracy, the fount of brotherhood, and the enemy of elitism and separateness in American life. The public school was the embodiment of the alleged right of every child to an education, and it was upheld as a crucible of understanding and harmony between men of all occupations and social classes, who would rub elbows from an early age with all their neighbors. Going hand-in-hand with the spread of public education have been compulsory attendance laws, which have forced all children up to a high and continually increasing minimum age to attend either a public school or a private school certified as suitable by the state apparatus. In contrast to earlier decades, when a relatively small proportion of the population went to school in the higher grades, The entire mass of the population has thus been coerced by the government into spending a large portion of the most impressionable years of their lives in public institutions. 
We could easily have analyzed compulsory attendance laws in our chapter on involuntary servitude, for what institution is more evidently a vast system of incarceration? In recent years, Paul Goodman and other critics of education have trenchantly exposed the nation's public schools, and to a lesser extent their private appendages, as a vast prison system for the nation's youth, dragooning countless millions of unwilling and unadaptable children into the schooling structure. The new left tactic of breaking into the high schools shouting jailbreak may have been absurd and ineffective, but it certainly expressed a great truth about the school system. For if we are to dragoon the entire youth population into vast prisons in the guise of education, with teachers and administrators serving as surrogate wardens and guards, why should we not expect vast unhappiness, discontent, alienation, and rebellion on the part of the nation's youth? The only surprise should be that the rebellion was so long in coming, but now it is increasingly acknowledged that something is terribly wrong with America's proudest institution, that, especially in urban areas, the public schools have become cesspools of crime, petty theft, and drug addiction, and that little or no genuine education takes place amidst the warping of the minds and souls of the children. Part of the reason for this tyranny over the nation's youth is misplaced altruism on the part of the educated middle class. The workers, or the lower classes, they felt, should have the opportunity to enjoy the schooling the middle classes value so highly. And if the parents or the children of the masses should be so benighted as to balk at this glorious opportunity set before them, well then, a little coercion must be applied, for their own good, of course. A crucial fallacy of the middle-class school worshippers is confusion between formal schooling and education in general. Education is a lifelong process of learning, and learning takes place not only in school, but in all areas of life. When the child plays or listens to parents or friends or reads a newspaper or works at a job, he or she is becoming educated. Formal schooling is only a small part of the educational process, and is really only suitable for formal subjects of instruction, particularly in the more advanced and systematic subjects. The elementary subjects, reading, writing, arithmetic, and their corollaries, can easily be learned at home and outside the school. Furthermore, one of the great glories of mankind is its diversity— the fact that each individual is unique, with unique abilities, interests, and aptitudes. To coerce into formal schooling children who have neither the ability nor the interest in this area is a criminal warping of the soul and mind of the child. Paul Goodman has raised the cry that most children would be far better off if they were allowed to work at an early age, learn a trade, and begin to do that which they are most suited for. America was built by citizens and leaders, many of whom received little or no formal schooling, and the idea that one must have a high school diploma, or nowadays an A.B. degree, before he can begin to work and to live in the world, is an absurdity of the current age. Abolish compulsory attendance laws and give children their head, and we will return to a nation of people far more productive, interested, creative, and happy.
Many thoughtful opponents of the new left and the youth rebellion have pointed out that much of the discontent of youth and their divorce from reality is due to the ever-longer period in which youth must remain at school, wrapped in a cocoon of dependence and irresponsibility. Well and good, but what is the main reason for this ever-lengthening cocoon? Clearly, the whole system, and in particular the compulsory attendance laws, which preach that everyone must go perpetually to school, first to high school, now to college, and soon perhaps for a Ph.D. degree. It is the compulsion toward mass schooling that creates both the discontent and the ever-continuing shelter from the real world. In no other nation and in no other age has this mania for mass schooling so taken hold. It is remarkable that the old libertarian right and the new left, from very different perspectives and using very different rhetoric, came to a similar perception of the despotic nature of mass schooling. Thus Albert J. Nock, the great individualist theorist of the 1920s and 30s, denounced the educational system for forcing the ineducable masses into the schools out of a vain egalitarian belief in the equal educability of every child. Instead of allowing those children with the needed aptitude and ability to go to school, all children are being coerced into schools for their own supposed good, and the result is a distortion of the lives of those not suited for school and the wrecking of proper schooling for the truly educable. Nock also perceptively criticized the conservatives who attacked progressive education for diluting educational standards by giving courses in automobile driving, basket weaving, or choosing a dentist. Nock pointed out that if you force a whole host of children who cannot absorb classical education into school, then you have to shift education in the direction of vocational training, suitable for the lowest common denominator. The fatal flaw is not progressive education, but the drive toward universal schooling to which progressivism was a makeshift response. Such new left critics as John McDermott and Paul Goodman charge, for their part, that the middle class has been forcing working-class children, many of them with completely different values and aptitudes, into a public school system designed to force these children into a middle-class mold. It should be clear that whether one favors one class or the other, one ideal of schooling or another, the substance of the criticism is very much the same that a whole mass of children are being dragooned into an institution for which they have little interest or aptitude. Indeed, if we look into the history of the drive for public schooling and compulsory attendance in this and other countries, we find at the root not so much misguided altruism as a conscious scheme to coerce the mass of the population into a mold desired by the establishment. Recalcitrant minorities were to be forced into a majority mold. All citizens were to be inculcated in the civic virtues, notably and always including obedience to the state apparatus. Indeed, if the mass of the populace is to be educated in government schools, how could these schools not become a mighty instrument for the inculcation of obedience to the state authorities?
Martin Luther, a leader in the first modern drive for compulsory state education, phrased the plea typically in his famous letter of 1524 to the rulers of Germany. Dear rulers, I maintain that the civil authorities are under obligation to compel the people to send their children to school. If the government can compel such citizens as are fit for military service to bear spear and rifle, to mount ramparts and perform other martial duties in time of war, how much more has it a right to the people to send their children to school? Because in this case we are warring with the devil, whose object it is secretly to exhaust our cities and principalities. Thus, for Luther, the state schools were to be an indispensable part of the war with the devil, that is, with Catholics, Jews, infidels, and competing Protestant sects. A modern admirer of Luther and of compulsory education was to remark that the permanent and positive value of Luther's pronouncement of 1524 lies in the hallowed associations which it established for Protestant Germany between the national religion and the educational duties of the individual and the state. Thus, doubtless, was created that healthy public opinion which rendered the principle of compulsory school attendance easy of acceptance in Prussia at a much earlier date than in England. The other great Protestant founder, John Calvin, was no less zealous in promoting mass public schooling, and for similar reasons. It is therefore not surprising that the earliest compulsory schooling in America was established by the Calvinist Puritans in Massachusetts Bay, those men who were so eager to plant an absolutist Calvinist theocracy in the New World. In June 1642, only a year after the Massachusetts Bay Colony enacted its first set of laws, the colony established the first system of compulsory education in the English-speaking world. The law declared, For as much as the good education of children is of singular behoof and benefit to any commonwealth, and whereas many parents and masters are too indulgent and negligent of their duty of that kind, it is ordered that the select men of every town shall have a vigilant eye over their neighbors, to see first that none of them shall suffer so much barbarism in any of their families as not to endeavor to teach, by themselves or others, their children and apprentices. Five years later, Massachusetts Bay followed up this law with the establishment of public schools. Thus, from the beginning of American history, the desire to mold, instruct, and render obedient the mass of the population was the major impetus behind the drive toward public schooling. In colonial days, public schooling was used as a device to suppress religious dissent, as well as to imbue unruly servants with the virtues of obedience to the state. It is typical, for example, that in the course of their suppression of the Quakers, Massachusetts and Connecticut forbade that despised sect from establishing their own schools. And Connecticut, in a vain attempt to suppress the New Light movement, in 1742 forbade that sect from establishing any of their own schools. Otherwise, the Connecticut authorities reasoned, the new lights may tend to train youth in ill principles and practices, and introduce such disorders as may be of fatal consequences to the public peace and weal of this colony. 
It is hardly a coincidence that the only truly free colony in New England, Rhode Island, was also the one colony in the area devoid of public schooling. The motivation for public and compulsory schooling after independence scarcely differed in essentials. Thus Archibald D. Murphy, the father of the public school system in North Carolina, called for such schools as follows. All the children will be taught in them. In these schools the precepts of morality and religion should be inculcated, and habits of subordination and obedience be formed. Their parents know not how to instruct them. The state, in the warmth of her affection and solicitude for their welfare, must take charge of those children, and place them in school where their minds can be enlightened and their hearts can be trained to virtue. One of the most common uses of compulsory public schooling has been to oppress and cripple national ethnic and linguistic minorities or colonized peoples, to force them to abandon their own language and culture on behalf of the language and culture of the ruling groups. The English in Ireland and Quebec, and nations throughout Central and Eastern Europe and in Asia, all dragooned their national minorities into the public schools run by their masters. One of the most potent stimuli for discontent and rebellion by these oppressed peoples was the desire to rescue their language and heritage from the weapon of public schools wielded by their oppressors. Thus the laissez-faire liberal Ludwig von Mises has written that in linguistically mixed countries, continued adherence to a policy of compulsory education is utterly incompatible with efforts to establish lasting peace. The question of which language is to be made the basis of instruction assumes crucial importance. A decision, one way or the other, can, over the years, determine the nationality of a whole area. The school can alienate children from the nationality to which their parents belong and can be used as a means of oppressing whole nationalities. Whoever controls the schools has the power to injure other nationalities and to benefit his own. Furthermore, Mises points out, the coercion inherent in rule by one nationality makes it impossible to solve the problem by formally allowing each parent to send his child to a school using a language of his own nationality. It is often not possible for an individual out of regard for his means of livelihood, to declare himself openly for one or another nationality. Under a system of interventionism, it could cost him the patronage of customers belonging to other nationalities, or a job with an entrepreneur of a different nationality. If one leaves to the parents the choice of the school to which they wish to send their children, then one exposes them to every conceivable form of political coercion. In all areas of mixed nationality, the school is a political prize of the highest importance. It cannot be deprived of its political character so long as it remains a public and compulsory institution. There is, in fact, only one solution. The state, the government, the laws must not in any way concern themselves with schooling or education. Public funds must not be used for such purposes. The rearing and instruction of youth must be left entirely to parents and to private associations and institutions. 
In fact, one of the major motivations of the legion of mid-19th century American educational reformers who established the modern public school system was precisely to use it to cripple the cultural and linguistic life of the waves of immigrants into America and to mold them, as educational reformer Samuel Lewis stated, into one people. It was the desire of the Anglo-Saxon majority to tame, channel, and restructure the immigrants, and in particular to smash the parochial school system of the Catholics that formed the major impetus for educational reform. The new left critics who perceive the role of the public schools of today in crippling and molding the minds of ghetto children are only grasping the current embodiment of a long-cherished goal held by the public school establishment, by the Horace Manns and the Henry Barnards and the Calvin Stowes. It was Mann and Barnard, for example, who urged the use of the schools for indoctrination against the mobocracy of the Jacksonian movement. And it was Stowe, author of an admiring tract on the Prussian compulsory school system, originally inspired by Martin Luther, who wrote of the schools in unmistakably Lutheran and military terms. If a regard to the public safety makes it right for a government to compel the citizens to do military duty when the country is invaded, the same reason authorizes the government to compel them to provide for the education of their children. A man has no more right to endanger the state by throwing upon it a family of ignorant and vicious children than he has to give admission to the spies of an invading army. Forty years later, Newton Bateman, a leading educator, spoke of the state's right of eminent domain over the minds and souls and bodies of the nation's children. Education, he asserted, cannot be left to the caprices and contingencies of individuals. The most ambitious attempt by the public school partisans to maximize their control over the nation's children came in Oregon during the early 1920s. The state of Oregon, unhappy even with allowing private schools certified by the state, passed a law on November 7, 1922, outlawing private schools and compelling all children to attend public school. Here was the culmination of the educationist's dream. At last, all children were to be forced into the democratizing mold of uniform education by the state authorities. The law, happily, was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of the United States in 1925, Pierce v. Society of Sisters, June 1, 1925. The Supreme Court declared that the child is not the mere creature of the state, and asserted that the Oregon law clashed with the fundamental theory of liberty upon which all governments in this union repose. The public school fanatics never tried to go that far again, but it is instructive to realize what the forces were that attempted to outlaw all competing private education in the state of Oregon. For the spearheads of the law were not, as we might expect, liberal or progressive educators or intellectuals. The spearhead was the Ku Klux Klan, then strong in the northern states which was eager to crush the Catholic parochial school system and to force all Catholic and immigrant children into the neo-Protestantizing and Americanizing force of the public school.
The clan, it is interesting to note, opined that such a law was necessary for the preservation of free institutions. It is well to ponder that the much-vaunted progressive and democratic public school system had its most ardent supporters in the most bigoted byways of American life, among people anxious to stamp out diversity and variety in America. Uniformity or Diversity While current educationists do not go as far as the Ku Klux Klan, it is important to realize that the very nature of the public school requires the imposition of uniformity and the stamping out of diversity and individuality in education. For it is in the nature of any governmental bureaucracy to live by a set of rules, and to impose those rules in a uniform and heavy-handed manner. If it did not do so, and the bureaucrat were to decide individual cases ad hoc, he would then be accused, and properly so, of not treating each taxpayer and citizen in an equal and uniform manner. He would be accused of discrimination and of fostering special privilege. Furthermore, it is administratively more convenient for the bureaucrat to establish uniform rules throughout his jurisdiction. In contrast to the private, profit-making business, the government bureaucrat is neither interested in efficiency nor in serving his customers to the best of his ability. Having no need to make profits and sheltered from the possibility of suffering losses, the bureaucrat can and does disregard the desires and demands of his consumer customers. His major interest is in not making waves, and this he accomplishes by even-handedly applying a uniform set of rules, regardless of how inapplicable they may be in any given case. The public school bureaucrat, for his part, is faced with a host of crucial and controversial decisions in deciding on the pattern of formal schooling in his area. He must decide, should schooling be traditional or progressive, free enterprise or socialistic, competitive or egalitarian, liberal arts or vocational, segregated or integrated, sex education or not, religious or secular, or various shades between these poles. The point is that whatever he decides, and even if he decides according to the wishes of the majority of the public, there will always be a substantial number of parents and children who will be totally deprived of the kind of education they desire. If the decision is for traditional discipline in the schools, then the more progressive-minded parents lose out, and vice versa and the same is true for all the other critical decisions. The more that education becomes public, the more will parents and children be deprived of the education they feel they need. The more that education becomes public, the more will heavy-handed uniformity stamp out the needs and desires of individuals and minorities. Consequently, the greater the sphere of public as opposed to private education, the greater the scope and intensity of conflict in social life. For if one agency is going to make the decision, sex education or no, traditional or progressive, integrated or segregated, etc., then it becomes particularly important to gain control of the government and to prevent one's adversaries from taking power themselves. 
Hence, in education, as well as in all other activities, the more that government decisions replace private decision-making, the more various groups will be at each other's throats in a desperate race to see to it that the one and only decision in each vital area goes its own way. Contrast the deprivation and intense social conflict inherent in government decision-making with the state of affairs on the free market. If education were strictly private, then each and every group of parents could and would patronize its own kind of school. A host of diverse schools would spring up to meet the varied structure of educational demands by parents and children. Some schools would be traditional, others progressive. Schools would range through the full traditional progressive scale. Some schools would experiment with egalitarian and gradeless education. Others would stress the rigorous learning of subjects and competitive grading. Some schools would be secular. Others would emphasize various religious creeds. Some schools would be libertarian and stress the virtues of free enterprise. Others would preach various kinds of socialism. Let us consider, for example, the structure of the magazine or book publishing industry today, remembering, too, that magazines and books are themselves an extremely important form of education. The magazine market, being roughly free, contains all manner of magazines to suit a wide variety of tastes and demands by consumers. There are nationwide all-purpose magazines, there are liberal, conservative, and all manner of ideological journals, there are specialized scholarly publications, and there are a myriad of magazines devoted to special interests and hobbies, like bridge, chess, hi-fi, etc., a similar structure appears in the free book market. There are wide circulation books, books appealing to specialized markets, books of all ideological persuasions. Abolish public schools, and the free, varied, and diverse magazine and book markets would be paralleled by a similar kind of school market. In contrast, if there were only one magazine for each city or state, think of the battles and conflicts that would rage. Should the magazine be conservative, liberal, or socialist? How much space should it devote to fiction or bridge, etc.? The pressures and conflicts would be intense, and no resolution would be satisfactory, for any decision would deprive countless numbers of people of what they want and require. What the libertarian is calling for, then, is not as outré as it might at first appear— what he is calling for is a school system as free and varied as most other educational media are today. To focus again on other educational media, what then would we think of a proposal for the government, federal or state, to use the taxpayer's money to set up a nationwide chain of public magazines or newspapers, and then to compel all people or all children to read them? Further, what would we think of the government outlawing all other newspapers and magazines, or, at the very least, outlawing all newspapers or magazines that do not come up to certain standards of what a government commission thinks children ought to read? Such a proposal would surely be regarded with horror throughout the country. Yet this is precisely the sort of regime that government has established in the schools. A compulsory public press would rightly be considered an invasion of the basic freedom of the press. 
Is not scholastic freedom at least as important as press freedom? Aren't both vital media for public information and education, for free inquiry and search for the truth? In fact, the suppression of free schooling should be regarded with even greater horror than the suppression of a free press, since here the tender and unformed minds of children are more directly involved. It is intriguing that at least some public school advocates have recognized the analogy between schooling and the press and have pursued their logic to the latter area. Thus prominent in Boston politics in the 1780s and 1790s was the arch-federalist Essex Junto, a group of leading merchants and lawyers originally hailing from Essex County, Massachusetts. The Essex men were particularly anxious for an extensive public school system in order to have the youth taught the proper subordination. Essex man Stephen Higginson frankly declared that the people must be taught to confide in and revere their rulers. And seeing with firm consistency that newspapers were as important a form of education as formal schooling, Another leading Essex merchant and theoretician, Jonathan Jackson, denounced the free press for being necessarily subservient to its readership, and advocated a state-owned newspaper that could be independent of its readers and therefore inculcate the proper virtues into the citizenry. Professor E. G. West has also offered an instructive analogy between the provision of schooling and of food surely an industry of at least an equal importance for children as well as adults. West writes, Protection of a child against starvation or malnutrition is presumably just as important as protection against ignorance. It is difficult to envisage, however, that any government, in its anxiety to see that children have minimum standards of food and clothing, would pass laws for compulsory and universal eating, or that it should entertain measures which lead to increased taxes or rates in order to provide children's food free at local authority kitchens or shops. It is still more difficult to imagine that most people would unquestioningly accept this system, especially where it had developed to the stage that, for administrative reasons, parents were allocated to those shops which happened to be nearest their homes, Yet, strange as such hypothetical measures may appear when applied to the provision of food and clothing, they are nevertheless typical of state education. Several libertarian thinkers from left and right-wing ends of the libertarian spectrum have delivered trenchant critiques of the totalitarian nature of compulsory public schooling. Thus left libertarian British critic Herbert Reed. Mankind is naturally differentiated into many types, and to press all these types into the same mold must inevitably lead to distortions and repressions. Schools should be of many kinds, following different methods and catering for different dispositions. It might be argued that even a totalitarian state must recognize this principle. But the truth is that differentiation is an organic process the spontaneous and roving associations of individuals for particular purposes. The whole structure of education as the natural process we have envisaged falls to pieces if we attempt to make that structure artificial. And the great late 19th century individualist English philosopher Herbert Spencer asked, 
For what is meant by saying that a government ought to educate the people? Why should they be educated? What is the education for? Clearly, to fit the people for social life, to make them good citizens? And who is to say what are good citizens? The government. There is no other judge. And who is to say how these good citizens may be made? The government. There is no other judge. Hence the proposition is convertible into this. A government ought to mold children into good citizens. It must first form for itself a definite conception of a pattern citizen, and having done this, must elaborate such system of discipline as seems best calculated to produce citizens after that pattern. This system of discipline it is bound to enforce to the uttermost, for if it does otherwise, it allows men to become different from what in its judgment they should become, and therefore fails in that duty it is charged to fulfill. And the twentieth-century American individualist writer Isabel Patterson declared, Educational texts are necessarily selective in subject matter, language, and point of view. Where teaching is conducted by private schools, there will be a considerable variation in different schools. The parents must judge what they want their children taught by the curriculum offered. Nowhere will there be any inducement to teach the supremacy of the state as a compulsory philosophy. But every politically controlled educational system will inculcate the doctrine of state supremacy sooner or later, whether as the divine right of kings or the will of the people in democracy. Once that doctrine has been accepted, it becomes an almost superhuman task to break the stranglehold of the political power over the life of the citizen. It has had his body, property, and mind in its clutches from infancy. An octopus would sooner release its prey. A tax-supported compulsory educational system is the complete model of the totalitarian state. As E.G. West indicated, bureaucratic convenience has invariably led the states to prescribe geographical public school districts, to place one school in each district, and then to force each public school child to attend school in the district closest to his residence, while in a free private school market most children would undoubtedly attend schools near their homes. The present system compels a monopoly of one school per district, and thereby coerces uniformity throughout each area. Children who, for whatever reason, would prefer to attend a school in another district are prohibited from doing so. The result is enforced geographic homogeneity, and it also means that the character of each school is completely dependent on its residential neighborhood. It is then inevitable that public schools, instead of being totally uniform, will be uniform within each district, and the composition of pupils, the financing of each school, and the quality of education will come to depend upon the values, the wealth, and the tax base of each geographical area. The fact that wealthy school districts will have costlier and higher quality teaching higher teaching salaries, and better working conditions than the poorer districts, then becomes inevitable. Teachers will regard the better schools as the superior teaching posts, and the better teachers will gravitate to the better school districts, while the poorer ones must remain in the lower-income areas. 
Hence, the operation of district public schools inevitably results in the negation of the very egalitarian goal which is supposed to be a major aim of the public school system in the first place. Moreover, if the residential areas are racially segregated, as they often tend to be, the result of a compulsory geographical monopoly is the compulsory racial segregation of the public schools. Those parents who prefer integrated schooling have to come up against the geographical monopoly system. Furthermore, just as some wag has said that nowadays whatever isn't prohibited is compulsory, the recent tendency of the public school bureaucrats has not been to institute voluntary busing of children to widen parental discretion, but to swing in the opposite direction and institute compulsory busing and compulsory racial integration of the schools, often resulting in a grotesque transfer of children far from their homes. Once again, the typical government pattern either compulsory segregation or compulsory integration. The voluntary way, leaving the decisions up to the individual parents involved, cuts across the grain of any state bureaucracy. It is curious that recent movements for local parental control of public education have sometimes been called extreme right-wing and at other times extreme left-wing when the libertarian motivation has been precisely the same in either case. Thus, when parents have opposed the compulsory busing of their children to distant schools, the educational establishment has condemned these movements as bigoted and right-wing. But when, similarly, Negro parents, as in the case of Ocean Hill-Brownsville in New York City, have demanded local parental control of the school system, this drive, in its turn, has been condemned as extreme left-wing and nihilistic. The most curious part of the affair is that the parents in both cases have failed to recognize their common desire for local parental control, and have themselves condemned the bigots or militants in the other group. Tragically, neither the local white nor black groups have recognized their common cause against the educational establishment against dictatorial control of their children's education by an educational bureaucracy which is trying to ram down their throats a form of schooling which it believes must be imposed upon the recalcitrant masses. One crucial task of libertarians is to highlight the common cause of all groups of parents against the state's educational tyranny. Of course, it must also be pointed out that parents can never get the state off their educational backs until the public school system is totally abolished and schooling becomes free once more. The geographical nature of the public school system has also led to a coerced pattern of residential segregation in income and, consequently, in race throughout the country and particularly in the suburbs. As everyone knows, the United States since World War II has seen an expansion of population, not in the inner central cities, but in the surrounding suburban areas. As new and younger families have moved to the suburbs, by far the largest and growing burden of local budgets has been to pay for the public schools, which have to accommodate a young population with a relatively high proportion of children per capita. These schools invariably have been financed from growing property taxation, which largely falls on the suburban residences.
This means that the wealthier the suburban family, and the more expensive its home, the greater will be its tax contribution for the local school. Hence, as the burden of school taxes increases steadily, the suburbanites try desperately to encourage an inflow of wealthy residents and expensive homes, and to discourage an inflow of poorer citizens. There is, in short, a break-even point of the price of a house beyond which a new family and a new house will more than pay for its children's education in its property taxes. Families in homes below that cost level will not pay enough in property taxes to finance their children's education, and hence will throw a greater tax burden on the existing population of the suburb. Realizing this, suburbs have generally adopted rigorous zoning laws, which prohibit the erection of housing below a minimum cost level, and thereby freeze out any inflow of poorer citizens. Since the proportion of Negro poor is far greater than white poor, this effectively also bars Negroes from joining the move to the suburbs. And since in recent years there has been an increasing shift of jobs and industry from the central city to the suburbs as well, the result is an increasing pressure of unemployment on the Negroes, a pressure which is bound to intensify as the job shift accelerates. The abolition of the public schools, and therefore of the school-burden property tax linkage, would go a long way toward removing zoning restrictions and ending the suburb as an upper-middle-class white preserve. Burdens and Subsidies The very existence of the public school system, furthermore, involves a complex network of coerced levies and subsidies, all of which are difficult to justify on any ethical grounds whatever. In the first place, public schools force those parents who wish to send their children to private schools to shoulder a double burden. They are coerced into subsidizing public school children, and they also have to pay for their own children's education. Only the evident breakdown of public education in the large cities has maintained a flourishing private school system there. In higher education, where the breakdown has not been as stark, private colleges are rapidly being put out of business by the competition from tax-subsidized free tuition and tax-financed higher salaries. Similarly, since public schools must constitutionally be secular, this means that religious parents must be forced to subsidize the secular public schools. While separation of church and state is a noble principle, and a subset of the libertarian principle of separating everything from the state, it is surely going too far in the other direction to force the religious to subsidize the non-religious through state coercion. The existence of the public school also means that unmarried and childless couples are coerced into subsidizing families with children. What is the ethical principle here? And now that population growth is no longer fashionable, consider the anomaly of liberal anti-populationists advocating a public school system that not only subsidizes families with children, but subsidizes them in proportion to the number of children they have. We need not subscribe to the full dimensions of the current anti-population hysteria to question the wisdom of deliberately subsidizing the number of children per family by government action. 
This means, too, that poor single people and poor childless couples are forced to subsidize wealthy families with children. Does this make any ethical sense at all? In recent years, the public school forces have promulgated the doctrine that every child has a right to an education, and therefore that the taxpayers should be coerced into granting that right. But this concept totally misconstrues the concept of right. A right, philosophically, must be something embedded in the nature of man and reality, something that can be preserved and maintained at any time and in any age. The right of self-ownership, of defending one's life and property, is clearly that sort of right. It can apply to Neanderthal cavemen, in modern Calcutta, or in the contemporary United States. Such a right is independent of time or place. But a right to a job, or to three meals a day, or to twelve years of schooling, cannot be so guaranteed. Suppose that such things cannot exist, as was true in Neanderthal days, or in modern Calcutta. To speak of a right as something which can only be fulfilled in modern industrial conditions is not to speak of a human natural right at all. Furthermore, the libertarian right of self-ownership does not require the coercion of one set of people to provide such a right for another set. Every man can enjoy the right of self-ownership without special coercion upon anyone. But in the case of a right to schooling, this can only be provided if other people are coerced into fulfilling it. The right to schooling, to a job, three meals, etc., is then not embedded in the nature of man, but requires for its fulfillment the existence of a group of exploited people who are coerced into providing such a right. Furthermore, the entire concept of a right to education should always be placed in the context that formal schooling is only a small fraction of any person's education in life. If every child really has a right to education, then why not a right to reading newspapers and magazines? And then why should not the government tax everyone to provide free public magazines for everyone who wishes to obtain them? Professor Milton Friedman, an economist at the University of Chicago, has performed an important service in separating out money sums from various aspects of government subsidy, in education as well as in other areas. While Friedman unfortunately accepts the view that every child should have his schooling provided by the taxpayers, he points out the non-sequitur in using this as an argument for public schools. It is quite feasible for the taxpayer to subsidize every child's education without having any public schools whatsoever. In Friedman's now famous voucher plan, the government would give to every parent a voucher, entitling him to pay a certain amount of tuition for each child in any school of the parent's choice. The voucher plan would continue the tax-financed provision of education for every child yet enable the abolition of the vast, monopolistic, inefficient, dictatorial public school bureaucracy. The parent could then send his child to any sort of private school that he wished, and the range of choice for every parent and child would then be maximized. The child could then go to any type of school, progressive or traditional, 
religious or secular, free enterprise or socialistic, the parent desired. The monetary subsidy would then be totally separated from the government's actual provision of schooling through a public school system. While the Freedman Plan would be a great improvement over the present system in permitting a wider range of parental choice and enabling the abolition of the public school system, the libertarian finds many grave problems yet remaining. In the first place, the immorality of coerced subsidy for schooling would still continue in force. Secondly, it is inevitable that the power to subsidize brings with it the power to regulate and control. The government is not about to hand out vouchers for any kind of schooling, whatever. Clearly, then, the government would only pay vouchers for private schools certified as fitting and proper by the state, which means detailed control of the private schools by the government, control over their curriculum, methods, form of financing, etc., the power of the state over private schools, through its power to certify or not to certify for vouchers, will be even greater than it is now. Since the Oregon case, the public school advocates have never gone so far as to abolish private schools. But these schools remain regulated and confined in numerous ways. Each state, for example, provides that every child must be educated in schools it certifies which again coerces the schools into a curricular mold desired by the government. In order to qualify as certified private schools, all sorts of pointless and costly regulations have to be fulfilled by the school as well as by the teacher, who must often take a host of meaningless education courses in order to be deemed qualified to teach. Many fine private schools are now operating technically illegally because they refuse to conform to the often stultifying government requirements. Perhaps the gravest injustice is that in most states, parents are prohibited from teaching their children themselves, since the state will not agree that they constitute a proper school. There are a vast number of parents who are more than qualified to teach their children themselves particularly the elementary grades. Furthermore, they are more qualified than any outside party to judge the abilities and the required pacing of each child, and to gear education to the individual needs and abilities of each child. No formal school, confined to uniform classrooms, can perform that sort of service. Free schools, whether current public schools or future vouchered schools, are of course not really free. Someone, that is, the taxpayers, must pay for the educational services involved. But with service severed from payment, there tends to be an oversupply of children into the schools, apart from the compulsory attendance laws which have the same effect, and a lack of interest by the child in the educational service for which his family does not have to pay. As a result, a large number of children unsuitable for or uninterested in school, who would be better off either at home or working, are dragooned into going to school and into staying there far longer than they should. The resulting mania for mass schooling has led to a mass of discontented and imprisoned children, along with the general view that everyone has to finish high school or even college to be worthy of being employed, 
Adding to this pressure has been the hysterical growth of anti-dropout propaganda in the mass media. Part of this development is the fault of business, for employers are quite happy to have their labor force trained, not by the employers or on the job, but at the expense of the hapless taxpayer. How much of the burgeoning of mass public schooling is a means by which employers foist the cost of training their workers upon the taxpayers at large? One would expect that this training, being without cost to employers, will be highly expensive, inefficient, and far too lengthy. There is, in fact, increasing evidence that a vast amount of current schooling is not needed for productive employment. As Arthur Stinchcombe asks, is there anything that a high school can teach which employers of manual labor would be willing to pay for, if it were learned well? In general, the answer is no. Neither physical abilities nor reliability, the two main variables of interest in employers of manual labor, are much influenced by schooling. Employers concerned with securing reliable workers may require high school diplomas as evidence of good discipline. Otherwise, they can train workers better and cheaper than a high school can on the job. And, as Professor Banfield points out, most job skills are learned on the job anyway. The relative uselessness of the public school system for training manual labor is demonstrated by the fascinating work of MIND, M-I-N-D, a private educational service now operated by the Corn Products Refining Company of Greenwich, Connecticut. MIND deliberately chose high school dropouts who were unskilled for manual jobs and in a few short weeks, using intensive training and teaching machines, was able to teach these dropouts basic skills and typing and place them in corporate jobs. Ten years of public schooling had taught these youngsters less than a few weeks of private, job-oriented training. Allowing youngsters to drop out from enforced dependency into becoming independent and self-supporting could only have immeasurable benefits for the youngsters themselves and for the rest of society. There is considerable evidence linking compulsory attendance laws with the growing problem of juvenile delinquency, particularly in frustrated older children. Thus, Stinchcombe found that rebellious and delinquent behavior is largely a reaction to the school itself, and the British Crowther Committee found that when, in 1947, the minimum school leaving age was raised by the government from 14 to 15, there was an immediate and sharp increase in the delinquencies committed by the newly incarcerated 14-year-olds. Part of the blame for compulsory attendance and mass public schooling must also be laid at the door of the labor unions which, in order to reduce competition from young adolescent workers, try to force the youth out of the labor market and into educational institutions for as long a time as possible. Thus, both labor unions and employers exert powerful pressure for compulsory schooling, and therefore for the non-employment of most of the nation's youth. Higher Education with the exception of the effects of compulsory attendance laws, the same strictures we have leveled against public schools can also be directed against public higher education, with one noteworthy addition. 
There is increasing evidence that, certainly in the case of public higher education, the coerced subsidy is largely in the direction of forcing poorer citizens to subsidize the education of the wealthier. There are three basic reasons. The tax structure for schools is not particularly progressive, that is, does not tax the wealthier in greater proportion. The kids going to college generally have wealthier parents than the kids who do not. And the kids going to college will, as a result, acquire a higher lifetime working income than those who do not go. Hence, a net redistribution of income from the poorer to the richer via the public college. Where is the ethical justification here? Professors Weisbrod and Hansen have already demonstrated this redistribution effect in their studies of public higher education in Wisconsin and California. They found, for example, that the average family income of Wisconsinites without children in Wisconsin State Universities was $6,500 in 1964 1965, while the average family income of families with children at the University of Wisconsin was $9,700. In California, the respective figures were $7,900 and $12,000, and the subsidy disparity was even greater because the tax structure was much less progressive in the latter state. Douglas Wyndham found a similar redistribution effect from poorer to wealthier in the state of Florida. Hansen and Weisbrod concluded from their California study on the whole, the effect of these subsidies is to promote greater rather than less inequality among people of various social and economic backgrounds by making available substantial subsidies that lower-income families are either not eligible for or cannot make use of because of other conditions and constraints associated with their income position. What we have found true in California an exceedingly unequal distribution of subsidies provided through public higher education, quite probably is even more true for other states. No state has such an extensive system of local junior colleges as does California, and for this reason, no state has such a large percentage of its high school graduates going on to public higher education. As a result, we can be rather confident that California has a smaller percentage of its young people receiving a zero subsidy than do other states. Furthermore, the states, in addition to putting private colleges into financial jeopardy by their unfair tax-subsidized competition, enforce strict controls on private higher education through various regulations. Thus, in New York State, no one can establish any institution called a college or university unless he posts a $500,000 bond with the state of New York. Clearly, this severely discriminates against small, poorer educational institutions and effectively keeps them out of higher education. Also, the Regional Association of Colleges, through their power of accreditation, can effectively put any college that does not conform to establishment canons of curriculum or financing out of business. For example, these associations strictly refuse to accredit any college, no matter how excellent its instruction, that is proprietary or profit-making, rather than trustee-governed. 
Since proprietary colleges, having a far greater incentive to be efficient and to serve the consumer, will tend to be more successful financially, this discrimination places another heavy economic burden on private higher education. In recent years, the successful Marjorie Webster Jr. College in Washington, D.C. was almost put out of business by the refusal of its regional association to grant it accreditation. While one might say that the regional associations are private and not public, they work hand-in-hand with the federal government, which, for example, refuses to provide the usual scholarships or GI benefits to unaccredited colleges. Governmental discrimination against proprietary colleges and other institutions as well does not stop at accreditation and scholarships. The entire income tax structure discriminates against them even more severely. By exempting trustee-run organizations from income taxes and by levying heavy taxes on profit-making institutions, the federal and state governments cripple and repress what could be the most efficient and solvent form of private education. The libertarian solution to this inequity, of course, is not to place equal burdens on the trustee colleges, but to remove the tax burdens on the proprietary schools. The libertarian ethic is not to impose equal slavery on everyone, but to arrive at equal freedom. Trustee governance is, in general, a poor way to run any institution. In the first place, in contrast to profit-making firms, partnerships, or corporations, the trustee-run firm is not fully owned by anyone. The trustees cannot make profits from successful operation of the organization, so there is no incentive to be efficient or to serve the firm's customers properly. As long as the college or other organization does not suffer excessive deficits, it can peg along at a low level of performance. Since the trustees cannot make profits by bettering their service to customers, they tend to be lax in their operations. Furthermore, they are hobbled in financial efficiency by the terms of their charters. For example, the trustees of a college are forbidden from saving their institution by converting part of the campus into a commercial enterprise, say a profit-making parking lot. The short changing of the customers is aggravated in the case of current trustee colleges, where the students pay only a small fraction of the cost of their education, the major part being financed by subsidy or endowment. The usual market situation, where the producers sell the product and the consumers pay the full amount, is gone, and the disjunction between service and payment leads to an unsatisfactory state of affairs for everyone. The consumers, for example, feel that the managers are calling the tune. In contrast, as one libertarian remarked at the height of the student riots of the late 1960s, nobody sits in at Berlitz. Furthermore, the fact that the consumers are really the governments, foundations, or alumni who pay the largest share of the bill means that higher education inevitably gets skewed in the direction of their demands rather than toward the education of students. As Professors Buchanan and Devlatoglu state, the interposition of the government between the universities and their student consumers 
has created a situation in which universities cannot meet demand and tap directly resources for satisfying student-consumer preferences. In order to get resources, universities have to compete with other tax-financed activities, armed forces, lower schools, welfare programs, and so forth. In the process, student-consumer demand is neglected, and the resulting student unrest provides the ingredients for the chaos we observe. The mounting dependence on governmental financial support, as this has been translated into the institution of free tuition, may itself be one significant source of current unrest. The libertarian prescription for our educational mess can then be summed up simply, get the government out of the educational process. The government has attempted to indoctrinate and mold the nation's youth through the public school system, and to mold the future leaders through state operation and control of higher education. Abolition of compulsory attendance laws would end the school's role as prison custodians of the nation's youth, and would free all those better off outside the schools for independence and for productive work. The abolition of the public schools would end the crippling property tax burden and provide a vast range of education to satisfy all the freely exercised needs and demands of our diverse and varied population. The abolition of government schooling would end the unjust coerced subsidy granted to large families, and often toward the upper classes and against the poor. The miasma of government, of molding the youth of America in the direction desired by the state, would be replaced by freely chosen and voluntary actions, in short, by a genuine and truly free education, both in and out of formal schools. Chapter 8. Welfare and the Welfare State Why the Welfare Crisis? Almost everyone, regardless of ideology, agrees that there is something terribly wrong with the accelerating runaway welfare system in the United States, a system in which an ever-increasing proportion of the population lives as idle, compulsory claimants on the production of the rest of society. A few figures and comparisons will sketch in some of the dimensions of this galloping problem, in 1934, in the middle of the greatest depression in American history, at a nadir of our economic life, total government social welfare expenditures were $5.8 billion, of which direct welfare payments, public aid, amounted to $2.5 billion. In 1976, after four decades of the greatest boom in American history, at a time when we had reached the status of having the highest standard of living in the history of the world, with a relatively low level of unemployment, government social welfare expenditures totaled $331.4 billion, of which direct welfare amounted to $48.9 billion. In short, Total social welfare spending rose by the enormous sum of 5,614% in these four decades, and direct welfare aid increased by 1,856%. Or, put another way, social welfare spending increased by an average of 133.7% per year during this 1934-1976 to 1976 period 
while direct welfare aid increased by 44.2% per annum. If we concentrate further on direct welfare, we find that spending stayed about the same from 1934 to 1950, and then took off into the stratosphere, along with the post-World War II boom. In the years from 1950 to 1976, in fact, welfare aid increased by the huge sum of 84.4% per year. Now, some of these enormous increases can be accounted for by inflation, which diluted the value and purchasing power of the dollar. If we correct all the figures for inflation by putting them in terms of constant 1958 dollars, that is, where each dollar has roughly the same purchasing power that the dollar could command in 1958, then the relevant figures become as follows. 1934, total social welfare spending, $13.7 billion. Direct welfare aid, $5.9 billion. In 1976, total social welfare spending, $247.7 billion. Direct welfare aid, $36.5 billion. Even if we correct the figures for inflation, then, social welfare spending by the government rose by the vast amount of 1,798%, or 42.8% per year, over these 42 years, while direct welfare aid rose 519%, or 12.4% per annum. Furthermore, if we look at the figures for 1950 and for 1976 for direct welfare aid, corrected for inflation, we find that welfare spending went up during the intervening boom years by 1,077%, or 41.4% per annum. If we adjust the figures still further to correct for population growth, total American population was 126 million in 1934, 215 million in 1976, then we still get an almost tenfold increase in total social welfare expenditures, from $108 to $1,152 per capita in constant 1958 dollars, and a more than tripling of direct public aid, from $47 in 1934 to $170 per capita in 1976. A few more comparisons. From 1955 to 1976, years of great prosperity, the total number of people on welfare quintupled, from 2.2 to 11.2 million. From 1952 to 1970, the population of children 18 years old and younger increased by 42%. The number on welfare, however, increased by 400%. The total population remained static, yet the number of welfare recipients in New York City jumped from 330,000 in 1960 to 1 1.2 million in 1971. Clearly, a welfare crisis is upon us. The crisis is shown to be far greater if we include in welfare payments all social welfare aids to the poor, Thus, federal aid to the poor nearly tripled from 1960 to 1969, leaping from $9.5 billion to $27.7 billion. 
State and local social welfare expenditures zoomed from $3.3 billion in 1935 to $46 billion, a 1,300% increase. Total social welfare expenditures for 1969, federal, state, and local, amounted to a staggering $73.7 billion. Most people think of being on welfare as a process external to the welfare clients themselves, as almost a natural disaster, like a tidal wave or volcanic eruption, that occurs beyond and despite the will of the people on welfare. The usual dictum is that poverty is the cause of individuals or families being on welfare. But on whatever criterion one wants to define poverty— on the basis of any chosen income level, it is undeniable that the number of people or families below that poverty line has been steadily decreasing since the 1930s, not vice versa. Thus, the extent of poverty can scarcely account for the spectacular growth in the welfare clientele. The solution to the puzzle becomes clear once one realizes that the number of welfare recipients has what is called in economics a positive supply function. In other words, that when the incentives to go on welfare rise, the welfare rolls will lengthen, and that a similar result will occur if the disincentives to go on welfare become weaker. Oddly enough, nobody challenges this finding in any other area of the economy. Suppose, for example, that someone, whether the government or a dotty billionaire is not important here, offers an extra $10,000 to everyone who will work in a shoe factory. Clearly, the supply of eager workers in the shoe business will multiply. The same will happen when disincentives are reduced. For example, if the government promises to relieve every shoe worker from paying income taxes. If we begin to apply the same analysis to welfare clientele as to all other areas of economic life, the answer to the welfare puzzle becomes crystal clear. What, then, are the important incentives-disincentives for going on welfare, and how have they been changing? Clearly, an extremely important factor is the relation between the income to be gained on welfare as compared with the income to be earned from productive work. Suppose, to put it simply, that the average or going wage, very roughly the wage open to an average worker, in a certain area is $7,000 a year. Suppose also that the income to be obtained from welfare is $3,000 a year. This means that the average net gain to be made from working before taxes is $4,000 a year. Suppose now that the welfare payments go up to $5,000, or alternatively, that the average wage is reduced to $5,000. The differential, the net gain to be made from working, has now been cut in half, reduced from $4,000 to $2,000 a year. It stands to reason that the result will be an enormous increase in the welfare rolls, which will increase still more when we consider that the $7,000 workers will have to pay higher taxes in order to support a swollen and virtually non-tax-paying welfare clientele. We would then expect that if, as of course has been the case, welfare payment levels have been rising faster than average wages, 
an increasing number of people will flock to the welfare rolls. This effect will be still greater if we consider that, of course, not everyone earns the average. It will be the marginal workers, the ones earning below the average, who will flock to the welfare rolls. In our example, if the welfare payment rises to $5,000 a year, what can we expect to happen to the workers making $4,000, $5,000, or even $6,000? The $5,000 a year man who previously earned a net of $2,000 higher than the welfare client now finds that his differential has been reduced to zero, that he is making no more, even less, after taxes, than the welfare client kept in idleness by the state. Is it any wonder that he will begin to flock to the welfare bonanza? Specifically, during the period between 1952 and 1970, when the welfare rolls quintupled from 2 to 10 million, the average monthly benefit of a welfare family more than doubled, from $82 to $187, an increase of almost 130% at a time when consumer prices were rising by only 50%. Furthermore, in 1968, the Citizens' Budget Commission of New York City compared the 10 states in the Union having the fastest rise in welfare rolls with the 10 states enjoying the lowest rate of growth. The Commission found that the average monthly welfare benefit in the 10 fastest-growing states was twice as high as in the 10 slowest states. Monthly welfare payments per person averaged $177 in the former group of states and only $88 in the latter. Another example of the impact of high welfare payments and of their relation to wages available from working was cited by the McCone Commission, investigating the Watts Riot of 1965. The Commission found that a job at the minimum wage paid about $220 a month, out of which had to come such work-related expenses as clothing and transportation. In contrast, the average welfare family in the area received from $177 to $238 a month out of which no work-related expenses had to be deducted. Another powerful factor in swelling the welfare rolls is the increasing disappearance of the various sturdy disincentives for going on welfare. The leading disincentive has always been the stigma that every person on the welfare dole used to feel, the stigma of being parasitic and living off production instead of contributing to production. This stigma has been socially removed by the permeating values of modern liberalism. Furthermore, the government agencies and social workers themselves have increasingly rolled out the red carpet to welcome and even urge people to get on welfare as quickly as possible. The classical view of the social worker was to help people to help themselves, to aid people in achieving and maintaining their independence, and to stand on their own feet. For welfare clients, the aim of social workers used to be to help them get off the welfare rolls as quickly as possible. But now, social workers have the opposite aim, to try to get as many people on welfare as possible, to advertise and proclaim their rights. The result has been a continuing easing of eligibility requirements, 
a reduction in red tape, and the withering away of the enforcing of residency, work, or even income requirements for being on the dole. Anyone who suggests, however faintly, that welfare recipients should be required to accept employment and get off the dole is considered a reactionary moral leper, and with the old stigma increasingly removed, people now tend more and more to move rapidly toward welfare, instead of shrinking from it. Irving Crystal has trenchantly written of the welfare explosion of the 1960s. This explosion was created, in part intentionally, in larger part unwittingly, by public officials and public employees, who were executing public policies as part of a war on poverty. And these policies had been advocated and enacted by many of the same people who were subsequently so bewildered by the welfare explosion. Not surprisingly, it took them a while to realize that the problem they were trying to solve was the problem they were creating. Here are the reasons behind the welfare explosion of the 1960s. 1. The number of poor people who are eligible for welfare will increase as one elevates the official definitions of poverty and need. The war on poverty elevated these official definitions. Therefore, an increase in the number of eligibles automatically followed. 2. The number of eligible poor who actually apply for welfare will increase as welfare benefits go up, as they did throughout the 1960s. When welfare payments and associated benefits, such as Medicaid and food stamps, compete with low wages, many poor people will rationally prefer welfare. In New York City today, as in many other large cities, welfare benefits not only compete with low wages, they outstrip them. 3. The reluctance of people actually eligible for welfare to apply for it, a reluctance based on pride or ignorance or fear, will diminish if any organized campaign is instituted to sign them up. Such a campaign was successfully launched in the 1960s by a. Various community organizations sponsored and financed by the Office of Economic Opportunity, b. The Welfare Rights Movement, and c. The Social Work Profession which was now populated by college graduates who thought it their moral duty to help people get on welfare, instead of, as used to be the case, helping them get off welfare. In addition, the courts cooperated by striking down various legal obstacles, for example, residence requirements. Somehow, the fact that more poor people are on welfare, receiving more generous payments, does not seem to have made this country a nice place to live, not even for the poor on welfare, whose condition seems not noticeably better than when they were poor and off welfare. Something appears to have gone wrong. A liberal and compassionate social policy has bred all sorts of unanticipated and perverse consequences. The spirit that used to animate the social work profession was a far different and a libertarian one. There were two basic principles. A. That all relief and welfare payments should be voluntary, by private agencies rather than by the coercive levy of government. And B. That the object of giving should be to help the recipient become independent and productive as soon as possible. Of course, in ultimate logic, B follows from A, 
since no private agency is able to tap the virtually unlimited funds that can be mulcted from the long-suffering taxpayer. Since private aid funds are strictly limited, there is therefore no room for the idea of welfare rights as an unlimited and permanent claim on the production of others. As a further corollary of the limitation on funds, the social workers also realized that there was no room for aid to malingerers, those who refused to work, or who used the aid as a racket. Hence came the concept of the deserving as against the undeserving poor. Thus, the 19th century laissez-faire English agency, the Charity Organization Society, included among the undeserving poor, ineligible for aid, those who did not need relief, impostors, and the man whose condition is due to improvidence or thriftlessness, and there is no hope of being able to make him independent of charitable assistance in the future. English laissez-faire liberalism, even though it generally accepted poor law government welfare, insisted that there be a strong disincentive effect, not only strict eligibility rules for assistance, but also making the workhouse conditions unpleasant enough to ensure that workhouse relief would be a strong deterrent rather than an attractive opportunity. For the undeserving poor, those responsible for their own fate, Abuse of the relief system could only be curbed by making it as distasteful as possible to the applicants, that is, by insisting, as a general rule, on a labor test or residence in a workhouse. While a strict deterrent is far better than an open welcome and a preachment about the recipient's rights, the libertarian position calls for the complete abolition of governmental welfare, and reliance on private charitable aid, based as it necessarily will be on helping the deserving poor on the road to independence as rapidly as possible. There was, after all, little or no governmental welfare in the United States until the Depression of the 1930s, and yet, in an era of a far lower general standard of living, there was no mass starvation in the streets. A highly successful private welfare program in the present day is the one conducted by the three-million-member Mormon Church. This remarkable people, hounded by poverty and persecution, emigrated to Utah and nearby states in the 19th century, and by thrift and hard work raised themselves to a general level of prosperity and affluence. Very few Mormons are on welfare. Mormons are taught to be independent, self-reliant, and to shun the public dole. Mormons are devout believers, and have therefore successfully internalized these admirable values. Furthermore, the Mormon Church operates an extensive private welfare plan for its members, based again on the principle of helping their members toward independence as rapidly as possible. Note, for example, the following principles from the Welfare Plan of the Mormon Church. Ever since its organization in 1830, the Church has encouraged its members to establish and maintain their economic independence. It has encouraged thrift and fostered the establishment of employment-creating industries. It has stood ready at all times to help needy, faithful members. In 1936, the Mormon Church developed a Church Welfare Plan, a system under which the curse of idleness would be done away with. 
the evils of a dole abolished, and independence, industry, thrift, and self-respect be once more established amongst our people. The aim of the church is to help the people to help themselves. Work is to be enthroned as the ruling principle of the lives of our church membership. Mormon social workers in the program are instructed to act accordingly. Faithful to this principle, welfare workers will earnestly teach and urge church members to be self-sustaining to the full extent of their powers. No true Latter-day Saint will, while physically able, voluntarily shift from himself the burden of his own support. So long as he can, under the inspiration of the Almighty and with his own labors, he will supply himself with the necessities of life. The immediate objectives of the welfare program are to 1. Place in gainful employment those who are able to work. 2. Provide employment within the welfare program, insofar as possible, for those who cannot be placed in gainful employment. 3. Acquire the means with which to supply the needy, for whom the church assumes responsibility with the necessities of life. Insofar as possible, this program is carried on in small, decentralized, grassroots groups. Families, neighbors, quorums, and wards, and other church organizational units may find it wise and desirable to form small groups for extending mutual help one to the other. Such groups may plant and harvest crops, process foods, store food, clothing, and fuel, and carry out other projects for their mutual benefit. Specifically, the Mormon bishops and priesthood quorums are enjoined to aid their brethren to self-help. In his temporal administrations, the bishop looks at every able-bodied needy person as a purely temporary problem, caring for him until he can help himself. The priesthood quorum must look at its needy member as a continuing problem until not alone his temporal needs are met, but his spiritual ones also. As a concrete example, a bishop extends help while the artisan or craftsman is out of work and in want. A priesthood quorum assists in establishing him in work and tries to see that he becomes fully self-supporting and active in his priesthood duties. Concrete rehabilitation activities for needy members enjoined upon the priesthood quorums include 1. Placing quorum members and members of their families in permanent jobs. In some instances, through trade school training, apprenticeships, and in other ways, quorums have assisted their quorum members to qualify themselves for better jobs. 2. Assisting quorum members and their families to get established in businesses of their own. The prime objective of the Mormon Church is to find jobs for their needy. To this end, the finding of suitable jobs under the welfare program is a major responsibility of priesthood quorum members. They and members of the Relief Society should be constantly on the alert for employment opportunities. If every member of the Ward Welfare Committee does well his or her work in this respect, most of the unemployed will be placed in gainful employment at the group or ward level. Other members are rehabilitated as self-employed. The church may aid with a small loan, and the members' priesthood quorum may guarantee repayment from its funds.
Those Mormons who cannot be placed in jobs or rehabilitated as self-employed are to be given, insofar as possible, work at productive labor on church properties. The church is insistent on work by the recipient as far as possible. It is imperative that people being sustained through the bishop's storehouse program work to the extent of their ability, thus earning what they receive. Work of an individual on welfare projects should be considered as temporary rather than permanent employment. It should nevertheless continue so long as assistance is rendered to the individual through the bishop's storehouse program. In this way, the spiritual welfare of people will be served as their temporal needs are supplied. Feelings of diffidence will be removed. Failing other work, the bishop may assign welfare recipients to aid individual members who are in need of help, the aided members reimbursing the church at prevailing wage rates. In general, in return for their assistance, the welfare recipients are expected to make whatever contributions they can to the church welfare program, either in funds, produce, or by their labor. Complementary to this comprehensive system of private aid on the principle of fostering independence, the Mormon Church sternly discourages its members from going on public welfare. It is requested that local church officers stress the importance of each individual, each family, and each church community becoming self-sustaining and independent of public relief, and to seek and accept direct public relief all too often invites the curse of idleness and fosters the other evils of dole. It destroys one's independence, industry, thrift, and self-respect. There is no finer model than the Mormon Church for a private, voluntary, rational, individualistic welfare program. Let government welfare be abolished, and one would expect that numerous such programs for rational mutual aid would spring up throughout the country. The inspiring example of the Mormon Church is a demonstration that the major determinant of who or how many people go on public welfare is their cultural and moral values, rather than their level of income. Another example is the group of Albanian Americans in New York City. Albanian Americans are an extremely poor group, and in New York they are almost invariably poor slum dwellers. Statistics are scanty but their average income is undoubtedly lower than that of the more highly publicized blacks and Puerto Ricans. Yet there is not a single Albanian-American on welfare. Why? Because of their pride and independence. As one of their leaders stated, Albanians do not beg, and to Albanians taking welfare is like begging in the street. A similar case is the decaying, poor, largely Polish-American and almost totally Catholic community of Northside in Brooklyn, New York. Despite the low incomes, blight, and old and deteriorating housing in the area, there are virtually no welfare recipients in this community of 15,000. Why? Rudolf J. Stobierski, president of the Northside Community Development Council, supplied the answer— they consider welfare an insult. In addition to the impact of religion and ethnic differences on values, Professor Banfield, in his brilliant book, The Unheavenly City, has demonstrated the importance of what he calls 
upper-class or lower-class culture in influencing the values of their members. The definitions of class in Banfield are not strictly income or status levels, but they tend to overlap strongly with these more common definitions. His definitions of class center on the different attitudes toward the present and the future. Upper- and middle-class members tend to be future-oriented, purposeful, rational, and self-disciplined. Lower-class people, on the other hand, tend to have a strong present orientation, are capricious, hedonistic, purposeless, and therefore unwilling to pursue a job or a career with any consistency. People with the former values therefore tend to have higher incomes and better jobs, and lower-class people tend to be poor, jobless, or on welfare. In short, the economic fortunes of people tend over the long run to be their own internal responsibility, rather than to be determined, as liberals always insist, by external factors. Thus, Banfield quotes Daniel Rosenblatt's findings on the lack of interest in medical care due to the general lack of future orientation among the urban poor. For example, regular checkups of automobiles to detect incipient defects are not in the general value system of the urban poor. In similar fashion, household objects are often worn out and discarded rather than repaired at an early stage of disintegration. Installment buying is easily accepted without an awareness of the length of payments. The body can be seen as simply another class of objects to be worn out, but not repaired. Thus, teeth are left without dental care. Later, there is often small interest in dentures, whether free or not. In any event, false teeth may be little used. Corrective eye examinations, even for those people who wear glasses, are often neglected, regardless of clinic facilities. It is as though the middle class thinks of the body as a machine to be preserved and kept in perfect running order, whether through prosthetic devices, rehabilitation, cosmetic surgery, or perpetual treatment, whereas the poor think of the body as having a limited span of utility, to be enjoyed in youth, and then, with age and decrepitude, to be suffered and endured stoically. Banfield points out, furthermore, that lower-class death rates are, and have been for generations, far higher than for upper-class persons. Much of the differential is caused not by poverty or low incomes per se, as much as by the values or culture of the lower-class citizens. Thus, prominent and particularly lower-class causes of death are alcoholism, narcotics addiction, homicide, and venereal disease. Infant mortality has also been far higher among the lower classes, ranging up to two and three times that of upper groups. That this is due to cultural values rather than to income level may be seen in Banfield's comparison of -of turn-of-the-century Irish immigrants with Russian-Jewish immigrants in New York City. The Irish immigrants were, in those days, generally present-minded and lower-class in attitudes, while the Russian Jews, though living in overcrowded tenements and on an income level probably lower than the Irish, were unusually future-minded, purposive, and upper-class in their values and attitudes. 
At the turn of the century, the life expectancy at the age of 10 of an Irish immigrant was only 38 years, whereas for the Russian Jewish immigrant it was more than 50 years. Furthermore, whereas in 1911 through 1916, in a study of seven cities, the infant mortality was over three times as high for the lowest as compared to the highest income groups, the Jewish infant mortality was extremely low. As in illness or mortality, so in unemployment, which obviously has a close relation to both poverty and welfare. Banfield cites the findings of Professor Michael J. Piori on the essential unemployability of many or most of the persistently low-income unemployed. Piori discovered that their difficulty was not so much in finding or learning the skills for steady, well-paying jobs, as in the lack of personal fiber in sticking to such jobs. These people are inclined to high absenteeism, leaving their jobs without notice, being insubordinate, and sometimes stealing from the employer. Furthermore, Peter Doringer's study of the Boston ghetto labor market in 1968 found that about 70% of job applicants referred by neighborhood employment centers received job offers, but that over half of these offers were rejected, and of those accepted, only about 40% of the new workers kept their jobs for as long as one month. Doringer concluded, much of the ghetto unemployment appears to be a result of work instability rather than job scarcity. It is highly instructive to compare the descriptions of this common refusal of the lower class unemployed to engage in steady work by the frostily disapproving Professor Banfield and by the highly approving leftist sociologist Alvin Goldner. Banfield Men accustomed to a street-corner style of life, to living off women on welfare, and to hustling, are seldom willing to accept the dull routines of the good job. Pondering the lack of success of welfare workers in luring these men away from a life of irresponsibility, sensuality, and freewheeling aggression, Goldner proclaims that they judge the proffered bargain to be unattractive, Give up promiscuous sex, give up freely expressed aggression and wild spontaneity, and you or your children may be admitted to the world of three square meals a day, to a high school or perhaps even a college education, to the world of charge accounts, of secure jobs, and respectability. The interesting point is that from both ends of the ideological spectrum, both Banfield and Goldner agree on the essential nature of this process— despite their contrasting value judgments on it, that much of persistent lower-class unemployment, and hence poverty, is voluntary on the part of the unemployed themselves. Goldner's attitude is typical of liberals and leftists in the present day, that it is shameful to try to foist, even non-coercively, bourgeois or middle-class values on the gloriously spontaneous and natural lower-class culture. Fair enough, perhaps, but then don't expect or call upon those same hard-working bourgeoisie to be coerced into supporting and subsidizing those very parasitic values of idleness and irresponsibility which they abhor and which are clearly dysfunctional for the survival of any society. If people wish to be spontaneous, let them do so on their own time and with their own resources, 
and let them then take the consequences of this decision and not use state coercion to force the hard-working and unspontaneous to bear those consequences instead. In short, abolish the welfare system. If the major problem with the lower-class poor is irresponsible present-mindedness, and if it takes the inculcation of bourgeois future-minded values to get people off welfare and dependency, pace the Mormons, then at the very least these values should be encouraged and not discouraged in society. The left-liberal attitudes of social workers discourage the poor directly by fostering the idea of welfare as a right and as a moral claim upon production. Furthermore, the easy availability of the welfare check obviously promotes present-mindedness, unwillingness to work, and irresponsibility among the recipients, thus perpetuating the vicious cycle of poverty welfare. As Banfield puts it, there is perhaps no better way to make converts to present-mindedness than to give a generous welfare check to everyone. Generally, in their attacks on the welfare system, conservatives have focused on the ethical and moral evils of coercively mulcting the taxpayers to support the idle, while the leftist critics have concentrated on the demoralization of the welfare clients through their dependency on the largesse of the state and its bureaucracy. Actually, both sets of criticisms are right. There is no contradiction between them. We have seen that voluntary programs, such as those of the Mormon Church, are keenly alive to this problem. And, in fact, earlier laissez-faire critics of the dole were just as concerned with the demoralization as with the coercion over those forced to pay for welfare. Thus, the 19th century English laissez-faire advocate Thomas Mackay declared that welfare reform consists in a recreation and development of the arts of independence. He called not for more philanthropy, but rather for more respect for the dignity of human life, and more faith in its ability to work out its own salvation. And Mackay poured his scorn on the advocates of greater welfare, on the vicarious philanthropist who, in a reckless race after a cheap popularity, uses the rate, that is, the tax, extorted from his neighbors, to multiply the occasions of stumbling set before the crowd who are only too ready to fall into dependence. Mackay added that the legal endowment of destitution, implied by the welfare system, introduces a most dangerous and at times demoralizing influence into our social arrangements. Its real necessity is by no means proved. Its apparent necessity arises mainly from the fact that the system has created its own dependent population. Elaborating on the theme of dependence, Mackay observed that the bitterest element in the distress of the poor arises not from mere poverty, but from the feeling of dependence, which must of necessity be an ingredient in every measure of public relief. This feeling cannot be removed, but is rather intensified by liberal measures of public relief. Mackay concluded that the only way in which the legislator or the administrator can promote the reduction of pauperism is by abolishing or restricting the legal endowments provided for pauperism. The country can have, there is no doubt of it, exactly as many paupers as it chooses to pay for. Abolish or restrict that endowment, 
and new agencies are called into activity. Man's natural capacity for independence, the natural ties of relationship and friendship, and under this head I would include private, as distinguished from public charity. The Charity Organization Society, England's leading private charity agency in the late 19th century, operated precisely on this principle of aid to foster self-help. As Mallet, the historian of the society, notes, the COS embodied an idea of charity which claimed to reconcile the divisions in society, to remove poverty and to produce a happy, self-reliant community. It believed that the most serious aspect of poverty was the degradation of the character of the poor man or woman. Indiscriminate charity only made things worse. It demoralized. True charity demanded friendship, thought, the sort of help that would restore a man's self-respect and his ability to support himself and his family. Perhaps one of the grimmest consequences of welfare is that it actively discourages self-help by crippling the financial incentive for rehabilitation. It has been estimated that, on the average, every dollar invested by handicapped persons in their own rehabilitation brings them from $10 to $17 in the present value of increased future earnings. But this incentive is crippled by the fact that, by becoming rehabilitated, they will lose their welfare relief, Social Security disability payments, and workmen's compensation. As a result, most of the disabled decide not to invest in their own rehabilitation. Many people, moreover, are by now familiar with the crippling disincentive effects of the Social Security system, which, in glaring contrast to all private insurance funds, cuts off payments if the recipient should be brazen enough to work and earn an income after age 62. In these days, when most people look askance at population growth, few anti-populationists have focused on another unfortunate effect of the welfare system. Since welfare families are paid proportionately to the number of their children, the system provides an important subsidy for the production of more children. Furthermore, the people being induced to have more children are precisely those who can afford it least. The result can only be to perpetuate their dependence on welfare, and, in fact, to develop generations who are permanently dependent on the welfare dole. In recent years, there has been a great deal of agitation for the government to supply daycare centers to care for children of working mothers. Allegedly, the market has failed to supply this much-needed service. Since the market is in the business of meeting urgent consumer demands, however, the question to ask is why the market seems to have failed in this particular case. The answer is that the government has ringed the supply of daycare service with a network of onerous and costly legal restrictions. In short, while it is perfectly legal to deposit one's children with a friend or relative, no matter who the person is or the condition of his apartment, or to hire a neighbor who will be taking care of one or two children, let the friend or neighbor become a slightly bigger business, and the state cracks down with a vengeance. Thus the state will generally insist that such daycare centers be licensed, and will refuse to grant the license unless registered nurses are in attendance at all times, 
Minimal playground facilities are available, and the facility is of a minimum size. There will be all sorts of other absurd and costly restrictions, which the government does not bother to impose on friends, relatives, and neighbors, or indeed on mothers themselves. Remove these restrictions, and the market will go to work to meet the demand. For the past 13 years, the poet Ned O'Gorman has been operating a successful, privately financed daycare center in Harlem on a shoestring. But he is in danger of being put out of business by bureaucratic restrictions imposed by the New York City government. While the city admits the dedication and effectiveness of O'Gorman's center, the storefront, it is threatening fines and ultimately the coercive closing of the center unless he has a state-certified social worker present whenever there are five or more children in attendance. As O'Gorman indignantly remarks, why on earth should I be forced to hire someone with a piece of paper that says they've studied social work and are qualified to run a daycare center? If I'm not qualified after 13 years in Harlem, then who is? The example of daycare demonstrates an important truth about the market. If there seems to be a shortage of supply to meet an evident demand, then look to government as the cause of the problem. Give the market its head, and there will be no shortages of daycare centers, just as there are no shortages of motels, of washing machines, of TV sets, or of any of the other accoutrements of daily living. Burdens and Subsidies of the Welfare State Does the modern welfare state really help the poor? The commonly held notion, the idea that has propelled the welfare state and maintained it in being, is that the welfare state redistributes income and wealth from the rich to the poor. The progressive tax system takes money from the rich, while numerous welfare and other services distribute the money to the poor. But even liberals, the great advocates and abettors of the welfare state, are beginning to realize that every part and aspect of this idea is merely a cherished myth. Government contracts, notably of the military, funnel tax funds into the pockets of favored corporations and well-paid industrial workers. Minimum wage laws tragically generate unemployment, especially so among the poorest and least skilled or educated workers in the South, among teenage Negroes in the ghettos, and among the vocationally handicapped. Because a minimum wage, of course, does not guarantee any worker's employment, it only prohibits, by force of law, anyone from being employed at the wage which would pay his employer to hire him. It therefore compels unemployment. Economists have demonstrated that raises in the federal minimum wage have created the well-known Negro-white teenage employment gap and have driven the rate of male Negro teenage unemployment from an early post-war rate of about 8% to what is now well over 35%, an unemployment rate among teenage Negroes that is far more catastrophic than the massive general unemployment rate of the 1930s. 20 to 25 percent. We have already seen how state higher education redistributes income from poorer to wealthier citizens. A host of government licensing restrictions, permeating occupation after occupation, exclude poorer and less skilled workers from these jobs. 
It is becoming recognized that urban renewal programs, supposedly designed to aid the slum housing of the poor, in fact demolish their housing and force the poor into more crowded and less available housing, all for the benefit of wealthier subsidized tenants, construction unions, favored real estate developers, and downtown business interests. Unions, once the pampered favorites of liberals, are now generally seen to use their governmental privileges to exclude poorer and minority group workers. Farm price supports, jacked ever higher by the federal government, mulked the taxpayers in order to push food prices higher and higher, thereby injuring particularly the poor consumers, and helping not poor farmers, but the wealthy farmers commanding a large amount of acreage. Since farmers are paid per pound or per bushel of product, the support program largely benefits the wealthy farmers. In fact, since farmers are often paid not to produce, the resulting taking of acreage out of production causes severe unemployment among the poorest segment of the farm population, the farm tenants and farm workers. Zoning laws in the burgeoning suburbs of the United States serve to keep out the poorer citizens by legal coercion, very often Negroes who are attempting to move out of the inner cities to follow increasing job opportunities in the suburbs. The U.S. Postal Service charges high monopoly rates on the first-class mail used by the general public in order to subsidize the distribution of newspapers and magazines. The FHA subsidizes the mortgages of well-to-do homeowners. The Federal Bureau of Reclamation subsidizes irrigation water to well-to-do farmers in the West, thereby depriving the urban poor of water and forcing them to pay higher water charges. The Rural Electrification Administration and the Tennessee Valley Authority subsidize electric service to well-to-do farmers, suburbanites, and corporations. As Professor Yale Brosen sardonically observes, electricity for poverty-stricken corporations such as the Aluminum Corporation of America and the DuPont Company is subsidized by the tax-free status of the Tennessee Valley Authority. Twenty-seven percent of the price of electricity goes to pay the taxes imposed on privately operated utilities. And the government regulation monopolizes and cartelizes much of industry, thereby driving up prices to consumers and restricting production, competitive alternatives, or improvements in products. For example, railroad regulation, public utility regulation, airline regulation, oil proration laws. Thus, the Civil Aeronautics Board allocates airline routes to favored companies and keeps out and even drives out of business smaller competitors. State and federal oil proration laws provide for absolute maximum limits on crude oil production, thereby driving up oil prices, prices that are further kept up by import restrictions. And government throughout the country grants an absolute monopoly in each area to gas, electric, and telephone companies, thus protecting them from competition, and sets their rates in order to guarantee them a fixed profit. Everywhere and in every area, the story is the same, a systematic mulcting of the mass of the population by the welfare state.
Most people believe that the American tax system basically taxes the rich far more than it taxes the poor, and is therefore a method of redistributing income from higher to lower income classes. There are, of course, many other kinds of redistribution, for example, from the taxpayers to Lockheed or General Dynamics. But even the federal income tax, which everybody assumes to be progressive, taxing the rich far more than the poor, with the middle classes in between, does not really work that way when we take into account other aspects of this tax. For example, the Social Security tax is blatantly and starkly regressive, since it is a soak-the-poor-and-middle-class tax. A person making the base income, $8,000, pays fully as much Social Security tax, and the amount is rising every year, as someone making $1 million a year. Capital gains, mostly accruing to wealthy stockholders and owners of real estate, pay far less than income taxes. Private trusts and foundations are tax-exempt, and interest earned on state and municipal government bonds is also exempt from the federal income tax. We wind up with the following estimate of what percentage of income is paid overall by each income class in federal taxes. In 1965, those earning under $2,000 paid 19% of their income in federal tax. Those earning between $2,000 and $4,000 paid 16% of their total income in federal tax. Those earning between $4,000 and $6,000 paid 17% of their income in federal tax. Those earning between $6,000 and $8,000 paid 17% of their income in federal tax. Those earning between $8,000 and $10,000 paid 18% of their income in federal tax. Those earning between $10,000 and $15,000 paid 19% of their income in federal tax. And those earning over $15,000 paid 32% of their income in federal tax. The average percentage of income paid in federal tax during 1965 was 22%. If federal taxes are scarcely progressive, the impact of state and local taxes is almost fiercely regressive. Property taxes are a. proportional, b. hit only owners of real estate, and C. Depend on the political vagaries of local assessors. Sales and excise taxes hit the poor more than anyone else. The following is the estimate of the percentage of income extracted overall by state and local taxes. For 1965, those earning under $2,000 paid 25% of their income in state and local taxes. Those earning between $2,000 and $4,000 paid 11% of their income in state and local taxes. Those earning between $4,000 and $6,000 paid 10% of their income in state and local taxes. Those earning between $6,000 and $15,000 paid 9% of their income in state and local taxes. Those earning over $15,000 paid 7% of their income in state and local taxes. The average percentage of income paid in state and local taxes in 1965 was 9%.
Following are the combined estimates for the total impact of taxation, federal, state, and local, on income classes. In 1965, those earning under $2,000 paid 44% of their income in all taxes. Those earning between $2,000 and $6,000 paid 27% of their income in all taxes. Those earning between $6,000 and $8,000 paid 26% of their income in all taxes. Those earning between $8,000 and $15,000 paid 27% of their income in taxes. And those earning over $15,000 paid 38% of their income in all taxes. The average percentage of income paid in 1965 in all taxes was 31%. Still more recent 1968 estimates of the total impact of taxes on all levels of government amply confirm the above, while also showing a far greater relative rise in the three years of the tax burden on the lowest income groups. In 1968, those earning under $2,000 paid 50% of their income in taxes. Those earning $2,000 to $4,000 paid 35% of their income in taxes. Those earning $4,000 to $6,000 paid 31% of their income in taxes. Those earning $6,000 to $8,000 paid 30% of their income in taxes. Those earning $8,000 to $10,000 paid 29% of their income in taxes. Those earning $10,000 to $25,000 paid 30% of their income in taxes. Those earning $25,000 to $50,000 paid 33% of their income in taxes. And those earning $50,000 and over paid 45% of their income in taxes. Many economists try to mitigate the impact of these telltale figures by saying that the people in the under $2,000 category, for example, receive more in welfare and other transfer payments than they pay out in taxes. But of course this ignores the vital fact that the same people in each category are not the welfare receivers and the taxpayers. The latter group is socked heavily in order to subsidize the former. In short, the poor and the middle class are taxed in order to pay for the subsidized public housing of other poor and middle-income groups, and it is the working poor who are socked a staggering amount to pay for the subsidies of the welfare poor. There is plenty of income redistribution in this country, to Lockheed, to welfare recipients, and so on and on, but the rich are not being taxed to pay for the poor. The redistribution is within income categories. Some poor are forced to pay for other poor. Other tax estimates confirm this chilling picture. The Tax Foundation, for example, estimates that federal, state, and local taxes extract 34% of the overall income of those who make less than $3,000 per year. The object of this discussion is not, of course, to advocate a really progressive income tax structure, a real soaking of the rich, 
but to point out that the modern welfare state, highly touted as soaking the rich to subsidize the poor, does no such thing. In fact, soaking the rich would have disastrous effects, not just for the rich, but for the poor and middle classes themselves. For it is the rich who provide a proportionately greater amount of saving, investment capital, entrepreneurial foresight, and financing of technological innovation that has brought the United States to by far the highest standard of living for the mass of the people of any country in history. Soaking the rich would not only be profoundly immoral, it would drastically penalize the very virtues, thrift, business foresight, and investment that have brought about our remarkable standard of living. It would truly be killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. What can government do? What then can the government do to help the poor? The only correct answer is also the libertarian answer. Get out of the way. Let the government get out of the way of the productive energies of all groups in the population rich, middle class, and poor alike, and the result will be an enormous increase in the welfare and the standard of living of everyone, and most particularly of the poor, who are the ones supposedly helped by the miscalled welfare state. There are four major ways in which the government can get out of the way of the American people. First, it can abolish, or at the very least, drastically reduce the level of all taxation. Taxation which cripples productive energies, savings, investment, and technological advance. In fact, the creation of jobs and increase of wage rates resulting from abolishing these taxes would benefit the lower-income groups more than anyone else. As Professor Brosen points out, with less attempt to use state power to compress the inequality in the distribution of income, inequality would diminish more rapidly. Low wage rates would rise more rapidly with a higher rate of saving and capital formation, and inequality would diminish with the rise in income of wage earners. The best way to help the poor is to slash taxes and allow savings, investment, and creation of jobs to proceed unhampered. As Dr. F. A. Harper pointed out years ago, productive investment is the greatest economic charity. Wrote Harper, According to one view, sharing a crust of bread is advocated as the method of charity. The other advocates savings and tools for the production of additional loaves of bread, which is the greatest economic charity. The two views are in conflict because the two methods are mutually exclusive in absorbing one's time and means in all the choices he makes day by day. The reason for the difference in view really stems from different concepts about the nature of the economic world. The former view stems from the belief that the total of economic goods is a constant. The latter view is built on the belief that expansion in production is possible without any necessary limit. The difference between the two views is like the difference between a two- and three-dimensional perspective of production. The two-dimensional size is fixed at any instant of time, but the third dimension, and therefore the size of the total, is expandable without limit by savings and tools. All the history of mankind denies that there is a fixed total of economic goods. 
History further reveals that savings and expansion of tools constitute the only way to any appreciable increase. The libertarian writer Isabel Patterson put the case eloquently. As between the private philanthropist and the private capitalist acting as such, take the case of the truly needy man, who is not incapacitated, and suppose that the philanthropist gives him food and clothes and shelter. When he has used them, he is just where he was before, except that he may have acquired the habit of dependence. But suppose someone with no benevolent motive whatever, simply wanting work done for his own reasons, should hire the needy man for a wage. The employer has not done a good deed, yet the condition of the employed man has actually been changed. What is the vital difference between the two actions? It is that the unphilanthropic employer has brought the man he employed back into the production line on the great circuit of energy, whereas the philanthropist can only divert energy in such manner that there can be no return into production, and therefore less likelihood of the object of his benefaction finding employment. If the full role of sincere philanthropists were called from the beginning of time, it would be found that all of them together, by their strictly philanthropic activities, have never conferred upon humanity one-tenth of the benefit derived from the normally self-interested efforts of Thomas Alva Edison, to say nothing of the greater minds who worked out the scientific principles which Edison applied. Innumerable speculative thinkers, inventors, and organizers have contributed to the comfort, health, and happiness of their fellow men, because that was not their objective. Second, and as a corollary to a drastic reduction or abolition of taxation, would come an equivalent reduction in government expenditures. No longer would scarce economic resources be siphoned off into wasteful and unproductive expenditures, into the multi-billion dollar space program, public works, the military-industrial complex, or whatever. Instead, these resources would be available to produce goods and services desired by the mass of the consuming population. The outpouring of goods and services would provide new and better goods to the consumers at far lower prices. No longer would we suffer the inefficiencies and the injury to productivity of government subsidies and contracts. Furthermore, the diversion of most of the nation's scientists and engineers to wasteful military and other governmental research and expenditure would be released for peaceful and productive activities and inventions benefiting the nation's consumers. Third, if the government also cut out the numerous ways in which it taxes the poorer to subsidize the wealthier, such as we have named above, higher education, farm subsidies, irrigation, Lockheed, etc., this in itself would stop the government's deliberate exactions upon the poor. By ceasing to tax the poorer in order to subsidize the richer, the government would aid the poor by removing its burdens from their productive activity. Finally, one of the most significant ways in which the government could aid the poor is by removing its own direct roadblocks from their productive energies. Thus, minimum wage laws disemploy the poorest and least productive members of the population. 
Government privileges to trade unions enable them to keep the poorer and minority group workers from productive and high-wage employment. And licensing laws, the outlawing of gambling, and other government restrictions prevent the poor from starting small businesses and creating jobs on their own. Thus, the government has everywhere clamped onerous restrictions on peddling, ranging from outright prohibition to heavy license fees. Peddling was the classic path by which immigrants, poor and lacking capital, were able to become entrepreneurs and eventually to become big businessmen. But now this route has been cut off, largely to confer monopoly privileges on each city's retail stores, who fear that they would lose profits if faced with the highly mobile competition of street peddlers. Typical of how government has frustrated the productive activities of the poor is the case of the neurosurgeon Dr. Thomas Matthew, founder of the black self-help organization NEGRO, Negro, which floats bonds to finance its operations. In the mid-1960s, Dr. Matthew, over the opposition of the New York City government, established a successful interracial hospital in the black section of Jamaica, Queens. He soon found, however, that public transportation in Jamaica was so abysmal that transportation service was totally inadequate for the hospital's patients and staff. Finding bus service inadequate, Dr. Matthew purchased a few buses and established a regular bus service in Jamaica, service that was regular, efficient, and successful. The problem was that Dr. Matthew did not have a city license to operate a bus line. That privilege is reserved to inefficient but protected monopolies. The ingenious Dr. Matthew, discovering that the city did not allow any unlicensed buses to charge fares, made his bus service free, except that any riders who wished could buy a 25-cent company bond instead whenever they rode the buses. So successful was the Matthew bus service that he proceeded to establish another bus line in Harlem. But it was at this point, in early 1968, that the New York City government took fright and cracked down. The government went to court and put both lines out of business for operating without licenses. A few years later, Dr. Matthew and his colleagues seized an unused building in Harlem owned by the city government. The New York City government is the city's biggest slumlord, owning as it does a vast amount of useful buildings abandoned because of non-payment of high property taxes and rotting away, rendered useless and uninhabitable. In this building, Dr. Matthew established a low-cost hospital at a time of soaring hospital costs and scarcity of hospital space. The city finally succeeded in putting this hospital, too, out of business, claiming fire violations. Again and again, in area after area, the role of government has been to thwart the economic activities of the poor. It is no wonder that when Dr. Matthew was asked by a white official of the New York City government how it could best aid Negro self-help projects, Matthew replied, Get out of our way and let us try something. Another example of how government functions occurred a few years ago, when the federal and New York City governments loudly proclaimed that they would rehabilitate a group of 37 buildings in Harlem. 
But instead of following the usual practice of private industry and awarding rehabilitation contracts on each house individually, the government instead awarded one contract on the entire 37-building package. By doing so, the government made sure that small, black-owned construction firms would not be able to bid, and so the prize contract naturally went to a large, white-owned company. Still another example. In 1966, the Federal Small Business Administration proudly proclaimed a program for encouraging new black-owned small business. But the government put certain key restrictions on its loans. First, it decided that any borrower must be at the poverty level. Now, since the very poor are not apt to be setting up their own businesses, this restriction ruled out many small businesses by owners with moderately low incomes just the ones likely to be small entrepreneurs. To top this, the New York Small Business Administration added a further restriction. All blacks seeking such loans must prove a real need in their community for filling a recognizable economic void, the need and the void to be proved to the satisfaction of remote bureaucrats far from the actual economic scene. A fascinating gauge of whether or to what extent government is helping or hurting the poor in the welfare state is provided by an unpublished study by the Institute for Policy Studies of Washington, D.C. An inquiry was made on the estimated flow of government money, federal and district, into the low-income Negro ghetto of Shaw Cardozo in Washington, D.C., as compared to the outflow that the area pays in taxes to the government. In fiscal 1967, the Shaw-Cardozo area had a population of 84,000, of whom 79,000 were black, with a median family income of $5,600 per year. Total earned personal income for the residents of the area for that year amounted to $126.5 million. The value of total government benefits flowing into the district, ranging from welfare payments to the estimated expenditure on public schools during fiscal 1967, was estimated at $45.7 million. A generous subsidy, amounting to almost 40% of total Shaw-Cardozo income. Perhaps... But against this, we have to offset the total outflow of taxes from Shaw Cardozo, best estimated at $50 million, a net outflow from this low-income ghetto of $4.3 million. Can it still be maintained that abolition of the entire massive, unproductive welfare state structure would hurt the poor? Government could then best help the poor and the rest of society by getting out of the way, by removing its vast and crippling network of taxes, subsidies, inefficiencies, and monopoly privileges. As Professor Brosen summed up his analysis of the welfare state, the state has typically been a device for producing affluence for a few at the expense of many. The market has produced affluence for many with little cost even to a few. The state has not changed its ways since Roman days of bread and circuses for the masses, even though it now pretends to provide education and medicine, as well as free milk and performing arts. It still is the source of monopoly privilege and power for the few, 
behind its facade of providing welfare for the many. Welfare which would be more abundant if politicians would not expropriate the means they use to provide the illusion that they care about their constituents. The Negative Income Tax Unfortunately, the recent trend, embraced by a wide spectrum of advocates with unimportant modifications, from President Nixon to Milton Friedman on the right to a large number on the left, is to abolish the current welfare system not in the direction of freedom, but toward its very opposite. This new trend is the Guaranteed Annual Income, or Negative Income Tax, or President Nixon's Family Assistance Plan. Citing the inefficiencies, inequities, and red tape of the present system, the guaranteed annual income would make the dole easy, efficient, and automatic. The income tax authorities will pay money each year to families earning below a certain base income. This automatic dole to be financed, of course, by taxing working families making more than the base amount. Estimated costs of this seemingly neat and simple scheme are supposed to be only a few billion dollars per year. But there is an extremely important catch. The costs are estimated on the assumption that everyone, the people on the universal dole as well as those financing it, will continue to work to the same extent as before. But this assumption begs the question, for the chief problem is the enormously crippling disincentive effect the guaranteed annual income will have on taxpayer and recipient alike. The one element that saves the present welfare system from being an utter disaster is precisely the red tape and the stigma involved in going on welfare. The welfare recipient still bears a psychic stigma, even though weakened in recent years and he still has to face a typically inefficient, impersonal, and tangled bureaucracy. But the guaranteed annual income, precisely by making the dole efficient, easy, and automatic, will remove the major obstacles, the major disincentives to the supply function for welfare, and will lead to a massive flocking to the guaranteed dole. Moreover, everyone will now consider the new dole as an automatic right rather than as a privilege or gift, and all stigma will be removed. Suppose, for example, that $4,000 per year is declared the poverty line, and that everyone earning income below that line receives the difference from Uncle Sam automatically as a result of filling out his income tax return. Those making zero income will receive $4,000 from the government. Those making $3,000 will get $1,000, and so on. It seems clear that there will be no real reason for anyone making less than $4,000 a year to keep on working. Why should he, when his non-working neighbor will wind up with the same income as himself? In short, the net income from working will then be zero, and the entire working population below the magic $4,000 line will quit work and flock to its rightful dole. But this is not all. What of the people making either $4,000 or slightly or even moderately above that line? The man making $4,500 a year will soon find that the lazy slob next door who refuses to work will be getting his $4,000 a year from the federal government. 
His own net income from 40 hours a week of hard work will be only $500 a year. So he will quit work and go on the negative tax dole. The same will undoubtedly hold true for those making $5,000 a year, etc. The baleful process is not over. As all the people making below $4,000 and even considerably above $4,000 leave work and go on the dole, the total dole payments will skyrocket enormously, and they can only be financed by taxing more heavily the higher-income folk who will continue to work. But then their net after-tax incomes will fall sharply until many of them will quit work and go on the dole too. Let us contemplate the man making $6,000 a year. He is, at the outset, faced with a net income from working of only $2,000, and if he has to pay, let us say, $500 a year to finance the dole of the non-workers, his net after-tax income will be only $1,500 a year. If he then has to pay another $1,000 to finance the rapid expansion of others on the dole, his net income will fall to $500, and he will go on the dole. Thus, the logical conclusion of the guaranteed annual income will be a vicious spiral into disaster, heading toward the logical and impossible goal of virtually no one working and everyone on the dole. In addition to all this, there are some important extra considerations. In practice, of course, the dole, once set at $4,000, will not remain there. Irresistible pressure by welfare clients and other pressure groups will inexorably raise the base level every year, thereby bringing the vicious spiral and economic disaster that much closer. In practice, too, the guaranteed annual income will not, as in the hopes of its conservative advocates, replace the existing patchwork welfare system. It will simply be added on top of the existing programs. This, for example, is precisely what happened to the state's old-age relief programs. The major talking point of the New Deal's federal Social Security program was that it would efficiently replace the then-existing patchwork old-age relief programs of the states. In practice, of course, it did no such thing, and old-age relief is far higher now than it was in the 1930s. An ever-rising Social Security structure was simply placed on top of existing programs, in practice, finally, President Nixon sopped to conservatives that able-bodied recipients of the new dole would be forced to work is a patent phony. They would, for one thing, only have to find suitable work, and it is the universal experience of state unemployment relief agencies that almost no suitable jobs are ever found. The various schemes for a guaranteed annual income are no genuine replacement for the universally acknowledged evils of the welfare system. They would only plunge us still more deeply into those evils. The only workable solution is the libertarian one, the abolition of the welfare dole in favor of freedom and voluntary action for all persons, rich and poor alike.